everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 357. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, it's me and you this week, and going back to the year 2000 for the first time in over a year, and what a show this is going to be. Yeah, um, some infamous things being talked about on this show, that's for sure. But the real question is, was this show going to be longer than AEW's Double or Nothing or not? I think we have a... Uh... I, I'm going to go with yes. But... <laughs> Almost all of our shows are, lo- are longer than any press review anyway, so there's that. But we do it over multiple days. There's a difference. <laughs> yes, we do it modern WrestleMania style when we record it. <laughs> yeah. So, But anyway... Yeah, so let's go to 2000, 22 years ago here. As we are uh, talking about the week of July, July, June the 1st through the 7th, an actual full seven-day week of 2000. And we begin with, yes, everyone's favorite world championship wrestling, and my God, what a week. We start out with the Pro Wrestle Torch. Multi-channel news reported that WCW is on pace to lose a staggering $61.2 million this year. Last year, WCW lost in the neighborhood of $20 million. The story categorized WCW as a drain on parent company Time Warner's earnings. Revenue gains for Turner Cable Networks were offset by higher programming costs and low results at WCW. Time Warner said in his first quarter earnings report. The story wasn't glowing in its coverage very Bischoff and Vince Russo either. The toss of SFX come as WCW's ratings and pay-per-view buy rates are at an all-time low. Despite several management changes, stated the article. Now, people with connections to SFX are saying that SFX considers a major deal of some sort with WCW a virtual lock. And it's only a matter of days or weeks before a major restructuring of WCW's house show business takes place, with SFX taking over. The chairman of SFX Entertainment, Robert Silliman, was interviewed on CNBC Monday afternoon regarding the SFX WCW negotiations. The host asked, How are negotiations going with World Championship Wrestling? Solomon said, well, we never come at anything that is in the pipeline other than to say this. We already enjoy an excellent relationship with them. Our motorsports division actually has a licensing, licensing deal with them where we build trucks in the likeness of some of their wrestlers. I'm sure you actually saw one, the one we did at Goldberg, one of their big stars. SFX is merging with Clear Channel Communications, and after the merger, Solomon won't be part of SFX anymore. He says his next project may be content-oriented and complement SFX. Turner Sports spokesman Greg Hughes said executives discussed promotional opportunities with SFX, but added that WCW is not for sale. That statement conflicts with what, what several torch sources believe. Well, also, here's what's weird about this. I have the multi-channel news story open, and the, they have their own sourcing about WCW being up for sale to SFX. So yeah. I don't understand why Wade is not repeating any of this in going over the multi-channel news story. Um, so Turner Sports spokesman Greg Hughes said executive discussed, quote-unquote, promotional opportunities with SFX. And yes, of course, the story is by Steve Donahue. Um, but one source familiar with the May 25th meeting said SFX appeared to be interested in acquiring a stake in WCW as executives requested detailed financial information about the company, including a three-year WCW cash flow statement a list of WCW employees and titles, and information regarding pending WCW litigation. TBS Inc., president of General Entertainment Network's Brad Siegel, Turner Entertainment Group Vice President of Finance and Administration Vicki Miller, and other senior Turner and SFX executives were present at the meeting, a source said. 
WCW, quote, is not up for sale, unquote. Hughes said last week, sequel's not available for comment. Uh, SFX chief financial officer uh, Thomas Benson confirmed that the company has met with TBS Inc. executives but couldn't confirm what was discussed regarding WCW. It certainly would have to be more narrow than something as broad as an acquisition. What falls in between? It's hard to say, he said. And then they get into the stuff about how WCW has been doing lately and other relevant stuff in the world of wrestling and cable television at the moment. So, I mean, you, you think about it. Uh, <laughs> okay. What was that ringtone? That was not a ringtone. Oh, okay. It was a, a video thing that popped up. Um, it, we really haven't talked about SFX stuff on this show. On the main uh, show and even really on the Patreon show either. Not no, much. because that – I mean when we start talking about the stuff with WCW and um, – Slip my mind now, Bix. Who was Bishop involved with? Of Fusiant Media Ventures. Fusion, yes, Fusion. Uh, that we talked about SFX at the beginning of that show as basically being on the outs at that time. But I mean, this was a thing throughout the spring of summer two thousand that seemed like it was going to be a done deal that SFX was going to buy WCW, and. Um, I know they talked about on, on the, the Yada show, Dave did with Brian. And I mean, there were people that were very uh, confident that something was going to happen. And then it doesn't. And it goes back to what we, I think, kind of talked about on the, uh, the Patreon show is that Brad Siegel was not going to uh, sell the cut, was not going to have that thing sold. It was going to go to WWF. Well, even work. that early? I think so. So, okay, so I just Googled SFX to WCW SFX offer 2000 just to see, you know, the stuff about, like, it, to remind my, myself what exactly the alleged bid was that got turned down. Um, hold on, I clicked away from the article by mistake, the one that just came up. Oh, wait, it's a whole paywall thing. I'll have to get around. But, because um, it's in, it's, it's June 18th when we start to hear the whole, uh, whatchamacallit thing that they are being sold and then it kind of goes back and forth for a few weeks it seems like but yeah this was a big deal at the time and just nothing really happens though in the long run no and you know i don't know if jay hasman being a part of it had any effect on it either um Oh, that's right. He was allegedly part of arranging the deal, I th maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, this article doesn't have what I'm looking for. Um, but, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot that's being put out there by different forms of media about this subject. And, um, I mean, who knows? You know, um there is a four-minute clip from 83 Weeks that is on, on the YouTube about this. <laughs> I don't know if you want to play that or not, but... I mean, it's up to you. I mean, it's Bischoff. It's Bischoff, but I am kind of curious what his insight is here. You know? Yeah. And yeah. it's not long. I don't want to make the show too long. We got a lot, but I'm curious to at least hear some of it. So let's see. This clip is brought to you by SaveWithConrad.com. <laughs> Oh, and it's the episode about this nitro. Well, let's get you on something I know you enjoy talking about. Dave Meltzer would write 
multi-channel news ran a story about the WCW SFX negotiations saying that the May 25th meeting between the two sides may have been about acquiring a stake in the company as SFX requests the detailed financial information about the company, a three-year cash flow statement and a listing of all employees, titles, contracts, and information about pending litigation. Turner sports spokesperson, Greg Hughes said in the story that WCW was not for sale, but many sources indicate the company is trying to unload the financial burden, but if possible, maintain the programming. The story said WCW is projected to post a $61.2 million loss this year as an entity and also drain the time Warner Inc earnings because of more money spent on programming costs this year, but lesser results as far as garnering ad revenue because of declining ratings. Jason Hervey and Mandalay sports have been the intermediary in the SFX slash WCW negotiations. Hervey is a longtime friend of Eric Bischoff. Chat me up. What is this? Uh, does this ring a bell? There were some discussions, um, with SFX and they were pretty serious discussions, I guess, initially, um, they weren't cursory, uh, but there was never any real traction there. I think one of the things that WCW was looking for was a clear channel type promoter. You know, somebody that already had a sophisticated infrastructure that was already promoting live events around the country, that already, around the world for that matter, that had a footprint, you know, with, with arenas and venues all over the world so that we could offload some of the live event components of our show and focus mostly on television. So that part of that whole thing was true. Where, again, you know, the $61 million loss, I encourage people, read Guy Evans' book. I just listened to an interview this morning, actually, when I got up early, early this morning. I found it on my Twitter feed um, where a, a, a couple of journalists in the U.K. interviewed Guy Evans and was asking questions about, now this is Guy Evans, the guy that did, unlike Dave Meltzer and that little Jack Sniffin' pimple on a hamster's ass, you know, partner his, Brian Alvarez. Um, <laughs> unlike the horrible reporting, and it's not even reporting, it's speculation and bullshit that they did where they're talking about the $60 million. The guy that actually interviewed people on the finance side of Turner Broadcasting acknowledges that a lot of those losses were, were other people's losses that they, it, it, through intercompany allocations, dumped on WCW because they knew they were getting rid of WCW. And that way the losses would show up on WCW's side of the equation and not on some other department's side of the equation, making that other department look better than they otherwise would have had they not been able to dump their losses into WCW. Perfectly legal, by the way. I'm not suggesting that it wasn't. That is the mystery and in, in, in the shell game of internet, inter, intercompany allocations. But again, this from a guy who actually did the research of the people, did interviews with the people who were actually instrumental in all that. So when you hear the $60 million loss narrative, know that that's Dave Meltzer and, and Brian, whatever his name is, Alvarez, not doing a fucking minute's worth of actual research because they're lazy fucking scumbags. Okay, I'm off that. It wasn't Dave or Brian, though, Eric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they reported what uh, somebody else reported, so it's their fault. <laughs> um, that said, most of this seems legit, right? Well, I mean, we talked about before, Eric Bischoff, I mean, 
he he lies but he, on some stuff, but some stuff he doesn't. And some stuff you is it's his memory, but and you can usually tell with his tone anyway. Yeah. So I feel like most of what he said here is legit. Um, okay, I pulled up Death of WCW because that's where I knew the alleged bid amount for SFX was given. I need to see if there's another source for this because, I mean, he's not wrong. There are issues with Death of WCW. Death of WCW says the SFX offer to outright buy WCW was $500 million. Yeah. I don't know if that's legit. I, that doesn't sound legit though, right? <sighs> Sounds a little high to me. Yeah, I am trying to see. Are there any other sources for that? Like, I remember, I don't remember the five hundred million being part of the story at the time. Do you? All right. Um, let's see. Dick Cheatham. Question. Oh, you're looking at right, Nitro. So okay. I got the book. I pulled the book out. Hmm. Uh, Dick Cheatham told Guy Evans. He questioned the veracity of such reported losses. Even when WCW books showed earnings, he said, I would question what I was looking at. But at this point, I was no longer associated with WCW after 1999. They wanted to dump as many losses from many other divisions as they possibly could, said Bischoff. WCW was a very convenient place to do that. WCW wasn't a line item. It was listed under other. So it's easy to reallocate money without anybody paying too close attention to it. I strongly suspect that's what probably happened. That's not to say WCW wasn't losing money. It was. But it's doubtful that it was losing that much money. So, okay. Uh, and I pulled up the SFX section, uh, multi-channel news. Okay. Oh, that's okay. That's where you're up to anyway. Uh, trying to see what else do we have about SFX here. Talking about the big surprise. Well, we, we, we'll have more on that. We'll have more on all that. But I'm so, seeing Bischoff but, was on WCW Live about SF and talk about SFX. He said the report was erroneous. I think it's a smokescreen. It's an opinion from people that don't know what they're talking about. I have friends from SFX, but a buyout of WCW is not likely. WCW is part of Turner and isn't going anywhere. Um, so Mike Weber, WCW's director of marketing for seven years, moved to take a position with Pace Motorsports, a division of SFX. In the summer of 1999, therefore, Weber says he was erroneously credited as having sparked the initial discussions. I was not involved in it, he recalled. It would have been an easy assumption, though, because of my relationship with both ends, but at that time, SFX was going crazy, buying everything out there in order to build a conglomerate of sports content, contractual relationships with venues, and sports agents. They were building themselves up to be sold, and ended up selling the whole thing to Clear Channel Radio. So did SFX have a conversation about purchasing the WCW? I'd be shocked if they did. So, yeah, I'm not sure if there's another source for 500 million. Is there? No. So, are we assuming that's Brian Alvarez bullshit? Probably. The more we learn about that book, <laughs> the death of WCW. <laughs> well, okay. So I saw someone point out, and then we'll move on from this. But it it, it reminded me of this. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago when people were talking about the Sasha Naomi thing, and people didn't like how Brian blew off the idea that race could be informing some of the reaction online and maybe some of the reaction internally too. And he's blowing it up and people were pointing out how he wrote about the discrimination lawsuits, which we'll be talking about later. Um, we're dressed in the book and one, how it's very kind of like, Oh, these greedy guy wrestlers who clearly didn't have a case cause they were job guys, which 
that's besides the point. But also pointing out, he talks about Bo- uh, Bobby Walker's old lawsuit, then talks about the later lawsuits led by Sonny Ono, and doesn't mention that Bobby Walker's one of the people who filed one of those lawsuits. Yeah. So, yeah. I Anyway, though, yeah, $500 million, I do not know where that actually came from. <laughs> I don't think anybody does. All right, so let's move on to more from the torch. Hulk Hogan's growing restless. He's been expressing dismay with the current push he has been receiving. He's been placated with a main event title match at Bash at the Beach in July against Jeff Jarrett. It's believed the plans for Hogan. <laughs> well, it's believed the plans for Hogan to win the title at that event, although a lot could change between now and then, including including a possible ownership change. There, there is no true proven flawless top star in WCW that management can confidently build around. The top spot's goal burst to have, but he is unproven enough that whispers for competing top stars, especially Hogan, may have some resonance with Bischoff and Russo, who are scared to alienate Hogan because he could wield influence with their bosses. Goldberg is far from a sure bet. There are a lot of question marks when it comes to his ability to carry WCW. Goldberg hasn't had that breakout interview or match that would give WCW confidence that, that he is the man. His acting skills are still in question. In the ring, especially with so much off time in the last year, he has a lot left to prove. Behind the mic, he hasn't been given a lot to say, and has shown since his interviews have been short and one-dimensional. Some top wrestlers of WCW begin to lose patience with Goldberg. They want him to be a team player, show up, work hard, stay healthy, help get WCW out of the rut it's in. Instead, the feeling on Goldberg is he only wants to be inserted into a winning situation and is going to wait and stall and come up with excuses to avoid being part of a struggling product in the meantime. He's not seen as a locker room leader by any means and is still considered a green wrestler who hasn't paid his dues. Goldberg's return didn't pop a rating, so his critics have ammunition to shoot him down. That assures even more political maneuvering for Bischoff and Russo to cope with. But well, the big the big problem with Goldberg, more than anything else, is the way Goldberg have been booked. I mean, it's the booking that's the reason why a lot of the, his problems were what they were. I mean, why he may not be quote unquote resonating with uh, the people, and why he isn't, you know, at this point in time a consider maybe a top star but in their best company, year was on the back of goldberg breaking out but they just they did so much damage on that though but the thing is is that i mean he's the he's the best guy they had to hope to, to do things with so that's what you're gonna do you gotta you gotta ride that horse and see which where it can take you i mean good lord then they're not that Hogan ain't doing nothing, but they're trying to, they want to go back to him. They, you know, they changed the title. They changed the title seven times in an 11 week time span during our time period here during this month or month and a half, two months, three months, seven times world check. The top world title changed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's no, there's no type of consistency. I mean, Goldberg, I mean, all you gotta do is push him like you push him in '98 or mm-hmm. close to it. I mean, we we it worked then. Build him back up, get him back on again. The Goldberg that people love. That's all you had to do. Yep. But and- this is this is Hogan and friends, you know, wanting to cut him off. Also, boy, is it interesting how much this sounds like some of the other stuff Wade has written lately. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's changed, but 
can you make an argument that at least until recently, Wade was more likely to be on the side of management and Dave was more likely to be on the side of talent? I mean, you could say that. You could say that. And now it seems like Dave and to an extent Brian are also taking the side of management more. Well, I think we can say all wrestling media is taking the side of management more in some cases. Well, I don't even mean management in just one company either. Well, that's not what I said. (laughs) I'm just talking about management in general um, for various reasons. Wrestling reporting these days is uh, is something. Let's see the differences in how some people report than others report. So I don't know. That's a whole other story. But yeah, you know, it's like I mean Hulk Hogan at this point in time, Hulk Hogan is not Hulk Hogan of even two two three years earlier. And, and Wade is right. There's nobody in WCW at that time that is the you know, in your face talent that is is right there that could be the one that, that can make a difference. At that time, Goldberg though was the best option because he can he can be re- rehabilitated because he's not old. He you know he he just had a little a setback in booking and but the you injury. Can bring him back up and the and injuries, but you can bring him back up. Yes, boost him back up. It's easier to boost him back up than Hogan because Hogan. I mean, it's 2000. Hogan had been uh, on top of wrestling for over 15 years at this point in time. You know, so 16 years. So Goldberg would have been the easiest guy to go with, but they decided they're going to turn him heel. But, well, uh, I mean, that's not during our way, but uh, boy, questionable, questionable stuff. All right, so let's go to Nitro on June the 5th. In Atlanta, Georgia, Phil Serena, where they drew 13,487 fans. He was like, wow, that's a hell of a house. 5,939 paid. But it was 178,295 gate. So <laughs> you look at those numbers. I mean, you're <laughs> it's over $30 a head. <laughs> wow. On TV and on their website, they claimed the show was sold out, but there was more than 6,000 potential seats left to open. And more than half of those in the building were paper. Overall, it was a good self-contained show, but it was really bad when it came to pushing the pay-per-view, and the ending was terrible. The basic gist of the show is, put all the bay faces over, which theoretically shouldn't be done the week before pay-per-view, except for Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo. Bischoff actually brought up that Luger and Elizabeth weren't there, while Russo challenged John Rocker at the beginning of the show. For those of you who don't know who John Rocker is, I know it's 22 years ago, but John Rocker was a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves at that time who had uh, just recently done an interview with Sports Illustrated, Jeff Perlman, uh, where he had had a uh, he had some issues with the city of New York uh, from the year earlier where, where they had been feuding with the Mets and uh, made some, some bad racially uh, charged statements about uh, minorities in New York, especially on the su- subway. I think we've read them on here before, too. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's, you know. It, and by the way, the, he still feels that way. Although, actually, wait, the last thing about that was from 2013, but still. Well, John, John is John. I mean, he's just a different guy, but. Uh, okay, so the the main quote that people remember. Um, was well, the Asian two. quote. Okay, well, there's, th- okay, there's three. I'm looking at. Um, excuse me. On ever playing for a New York team, I'd retire first. 
It's the most hectic, nerve-wracking city. Imagine having to take the 7 train to the ballpark. Which, by the way, I mean, I know, obviously, he's played there enough to know what the 7 train is, but I find it, I think I said this last time, too, I find it funny that he knows what the 7 train is. Uh, looking like you're riding through Beirut next to some kid with purple hair, next to some queer with AIDS, right next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, next to some 20-year-old mom with four kids. It's depressing. Uh, the biggest thing I don't like about New York are the foreigners. I'm not a very big fan of foreigners. Well, that's blunt. You can walk an entire block in Times Square and not hear anybody speaking English. Asians and Koreans and Vietnamese and Indians and Russians and Spanish people and everything there. How the hell did they get in this country? I love that he said Asians and then all those group and then all those other nationalities, only one of which could not fit into Asians. That's John. (laughs) And on Mets fans, nobody else in the country, excuse me, nowhere else in the country do people spit at you. Throw bottles at you, throw quarters at you, throw batteries at you, and say, "Hey, I did your mother last night. She's a whore." I talked about <laughs> what degenerates pro- they were. probably happened. <laughs> yes, and they proved me right just by saying something I could. Excuse me, make them mad enough to go home and slap their moms. <laughs> oh, and it, it was uh, a Reddit AMA that he did years ago where he said, "I rode the seven train about forty times before making those comments." And my comments were an assumption, so they were what I saw. <laughs> John's John. But, um, so yeah, so there's that. And, um, Wade has his little side comments uh, talk about how, uh, Russo ripping on John Rocker was one of the most dumbfounded things Wade had ever seen on a wrestling show. How does ripping the number one heel in the entire country help give you heel heat? <laughs> Sure, some Atlanta fans may be behind him, but Nitro's a national show. Do you really think that's the way to establish heel heat nationally is to support the New York Yan- Yankees, <laughs> Mets, Wade, New York Mets, Atlanta Braves rivalry by taking shots at John Rocker? That's a Roddy Piper level blunder. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, John Rocker, I mean, that was a, this was a national story. And yeah, I mean, uh, He's Vince Russo's a heel. Also, like I know we're back in baseball season, but the interview was six months old at this point. Yeah, but it was a story. You know, yeah. it was a, it was a bigger story this time than it what was you know when it first dropped because know? it was out of so, season when yeah yeah yeah. All right, so Russo challenged Goldberg. Goldberg came out, mowed through R&B security while Russo and Bischoff ran. A second group of security ran out, and then they all ran away too. So anyway, um, we have uh, Perfect Sean, Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palumbo. Uh, well, excuse me, Perfect Sean in the main event. Well, no, I think he's Get the event, not the main event, yeah. as Dave says here. And so, the, and, and the team, yeah. So Perfect Sean and the the event now collectively perfect event. Yes, um, they beat Chronic to retain the tag titles in six oh three. Fast pace, really bad match. Ernest Miller tripped out the referee in order to count the guys out. Adams threw Stasiak in the ring, so he actually beat the count. Cronin went to Miller afterwards, but Stasiak and Palumbo saved him, so Cronin laid those guys out after the match. Wade notes, as Cav forced the referee to count out the tag teams during the match, Shivani said, we've never had this before. Scott Hudson added, that's an understatement. How does Scott figure that's an understatement? That makes no sense. Sometimes it seems the announcers are spewing cliches with no regards to what they're actually saying. <laughs> It's a Nitro in 2000. I'm pretty sure those guys are uh, 
they're, heck, they're, they're going through it mentally. So, all right. Uh, next, we get GI Bro beating Billy Kidman in all of one minute and 53 seconds with Yurinagi. When Tori Wilson turned on Kidman and gave him a low blow, Kidman no sold it because he was wearing a cup. The cameras basically missed the spot, but luckily, an announcer explained why Kidman wasn't selling it. Of course, him wearing a cup made zero sense since the spot was a lead to the pinfall. Kidman hit a few of the missing in action guys with a chair afterwards. What? This company. Already. Wait, so the low blow was supposed to be the cause of the pin? Yes. But. Uh, what? <laughs> I okay, I'm not necessarily going to yeah. put the sound on, but I kind of need to see this for myself just to understand what the hell is happening here. Um, what the? And the reason why MIA, MIA is because Kidman was yelling at Major Guns. Um, that happened earlier in the show. Uh, something like that happened. So that's why they're out there. <sighs> Nash and Goldberg had encouraged uh, Scott Stein to kick Tank Abbott's ass because they had made a Goldberg Tank Abbott match for the show. There's just so okay. much going on. She here. turns by doing the China low blow. He has the cup, takes the cup out. Okay, it's the a distraction into the bookend for the finish. Okay, so Dave was a little unclear on what happened. It's not it's not as ridiculous as it sounds here in terms of not making sense. But it's still too much going on. Well, speaking of not making sense, Eric Bishop beat Terry Funk in eight minutes forty seconds to capture the hardcore title. <laughs> sure. Um, a minute to the match, Bischoff ran to the back. For some reason, it was a WCW hardcore match, but there were no cameras ready to film backstage. WCW, everybody. Uh, Dave noted, thank God they went backstage. Then Miss Hancock came out. Kimberly and Mike Awesome interrupted her. Kimberly hit Miss Hancock with a clipboard and walked towards the back. Hancock got up and called Kimberly a fat ass and challenged her to a fight. Kimberly said later, Mark Madden suggested they should kiss and make up. Of course he did. So then after all that happens, Terry Funk rolls Bischoff back to the ring in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> Funk pulled the back of his tights down and was going to give the stink face to Bischoff until the Mama Lukes ran out to stop him. They elbow dropped him with a chair over his face, beat him up some more, and then put a groggy Bischoff on top of Funk for the win. Vito also uh, used a broom handle to the groin in the DDT to set the pin. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I don't Rick care. Flair. I just want to move on. Okay, yes, thank you. Ric Flair showed up in a white limo, and then that and we have Scott Steiner keeping the United States title beating Vampiro in 507. Vampiro hit Steiner with a blowtorch. Medeja then saved Steiner across by the top rope. But Vampiro was chasing Medeja and about to set her on fire when Steam made the save with a bunch of bat, bat shots. In the ring, Steiner gave Vampiro overhead belly to belly and recliner for the submission. He's going to set Medeja on fire. Well, I mean, we're recording this the day after a pay-per-view where there was a try to set someone on fire spot. So. Yeah, well, she had a lot of silicone in her, so, I mean, that would have been quite the fire. I don't that know if that's how that works. I'm pretty sure. All right, so Goldberg destroyed Tank Abbott in 2 minutes, 14 seconds with a spear and jackhammer. Rick Stein here, Goldberg with two chair shots in the first 40 seconds, one of which split Goldberg's head open in the back. Kevin Nash made the save and tripped Steiner before Goldberg speared Tank. Yes. <laughs> Steiner hit so hard that Goldberg was bleeding from the back of his head. And Goldberg uh, wiped the blood off the back of his skull and licked it off his hand. 
Yummy. Before going before going backstage, and where Goldberg was called telling the trainer to stitch him up. So then Kimberly says she's going to team with Mike Awesome against Miss Hancock and a partner of her choosing. We'll have more on that in a minute. So next we get Sting against Jeff Jarrett. Sting pinned Jarrett in 2 minutes 24 seconds to apparently win the WCW World Heavyweight title. On TV, they strongly implied there was a title match, but Sting won. Bischoff on the mic and said, no, this is not a title. Sting, they continued to attack Jarrett afterwards, putting Scorpio on the ramp. Finally hit Jarrett with a guitar shot, and he fell off the ramp. Uh, Scott Hudson openly called this a dusty finish on commentary. <laughs> paramedics will help Jarrett on the stretcher and wheeled him into an ambulance where Bischoff yelled at the paramedics, saying, be careful with him because WCW is going nowhere without him. They're going nowhere with him. So then we get Miss Hancock coming out to the ring, asking Kimberly to sign a statement saying she agreed not to hold Hancock responsible for disfiguring her face. Kimberly gladly signed this, said she couldn't wait to find out who her partner will be. Diamond Dallas Page then showed up. And Kimberly just void the restraining order by singing that statement. So then we get DDP and Miss Hancock beating Mike Awesome and Kimberly. DDP pinning Mike Awesome. The women were awful, but they weren't in much. Did get a reaction, though, of course. Page and Awesome were really good, and they worked most of the way. It was a good match. Awesome was about to kill Page when Hancock started lifting up her dress. Mike Awesome froze, and DDP hit the diamond cutter for the pin. Well, that Mike Awesome, uh, he's been there for what? over two months boy (laughs) (laughs) so then we get (laughs) we get Pamela Paul shock interviewing uh, Hulk Hogan and uh, Hogan said he was no that's after this that's after this match that's what I'm saying so he refused to wrestle Hogan horse as scheduled because the family feud oh okay I thought you were going to the next Paul shock segment go ahead yes which leads to Hollywood Hogan Pinning Horace Hogan in 312 after a letter drop on the chair covering Horace's face. Well, this is the returning Hollywood Hogan as he, he had been FUNB Terry Bollea for how many weeks? However many weeks. Bischoff stepped out and Brad that Hogan wasn't going to wrestle Horace. Bischoff asked Hogan come to the ring and forth like a man. Hogan come out as the NWO music dressed as Hollywood Hogan. H- Hogan said that he said Holt wouldn't wrestle, but he didn't say anything about Hollywood. What? What about Terry Bostic? After Hogan pinned Horace, Kidman ran to the ring and attacked Hulk. Hulk threw Kidman over the top rope through a table at ringside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't care. I honestly don't think there's anything to discuss about all this. It's just inane bullshit. All right. So we do have this now. Pamela Paul Shock interviews Ric Flair as Ric Flair and Vince Russo. Oh, Hogan and Horace was inside the cage, too. Yeah. Just randomly inside the cage. So now we got uh, Flair and Russo, which is also going to be inside the cage. So let's go to Pamela Paul Shock and uh, Nature Boy Ric Flair. Version of Hogan is coming to the Great American Bash. Tonight, Nature Boy Ric Flair, you have the opportunity to choke the life out of Vince Russo in the steel cage. Are you worried that he may have something planned? Pamela, is this woo, Atlanta by God, Georgia? Is this the home of WCW? Do we have a steel cage with a locked door? Do we have Flair woo, versus Russo? I'm not worried about a thing, Pamela. I'm the dirtiest player in the game. And today, Russo, you're going to bleed, you're going to sweat, woo, and you're going to pay the price of a wrestling woo, lifetime. Come on, guys. Woo! David, what are you talking about? I'm up next, David. Where the hell are you? What do you mean, traffic? Get your ass here, David. I'm up next. Uh, he had 
Rick had Beth and Reed with him. That's no. how he's cut his promo there. So, all right. Well, let's go to the cage match, shall we? No. Vince Russo and Ric Flair. Flit Rick with Reed and Beth. Russo gave Flair a mule kick to take early offense. Russo chopped Flair and strutted. Flair ripped off Russo's shirt, chopped him red. Flair followed a back suplex. Russo did his Norman Smiley screaming imitation. Flair chopped Russo some more, punched him repeatedly, whipped him to a cage wall. Then David Flair came out from front of the ring to help Russo. Flair beat up on David for a minute. Russo tried to escape, but Reed Flair, standing ringside, stopped him from opening the door. Russo then went to plan B, which was grabbing a ladder and climbing out a trap door he knew about. Rick, though, followed him to the roof. Rick indicated to the crowd he was going to throw him off the top of the cage. Russo gouged Rick's eyes. Russo climbed back in the cage. As Russo hung from the roof, Rick stomped on his fingers. Russo fell to the mat. The cameras inexcusably missed his landing. That said everybody. Rick returned to the ring and put Russo in the figure four. Russo lasted longer in the figure four than anyone in history, over a minute, without giving up or reversing the hold. And that's where we pick up. So let's go to Vince Russo in the figure four, and here we go. Oh. Stage, we saw Vince talking to him on the phone. I guess David was lying in wait under this ring. David is pulling Russo. He is pulling. Rick says, asking. Charles says he hasn't given up. Russo. Oh, by the way, this is hair versus hair. Yeah, that's not mentioned either. But yes, hair versus hair here. Is a warrior to withstand this amount of pain for this amount of time. That's New York City for you, Tony. This was unbelievable. But look at David pulling, trying to get Russo out. What is keeping Russo alive? I think David Flair pulling his arm is going to add pressure to the figure four. The red of the new blood stretches the nature boy, Ric Flair. David slips on the bread liquid upon the figure four. And his biological father! The pressure from that red substance has wiped the referee out. David counts three. Russo covers. Russo wins. And we actually get a bell for some reason. What a eerie, disgusting sight! Oh, this is even clumsier than it says in the newsletter. Great. Russo wins. Like it or not, Russo wins. And then disgusting bloodbath. The new blood. And Vince Russo. And desecrated all that is professional wrestling with what they have done to Ric Flair on Nitro. Flair is a red mess. Is this the sign of things to come? Oh no, this isn't the hair match. The hair match is no, a different it's not the one. hair match. Okay, yeah, you're right. It's WCW right. in 2000. Cut us some slack, everyone, please. Um, you know what? I mean, a this is not clearly not Russo or David or Rick's fault. And I'll say this though: I feel like, and this gets kind of goes to the whole death of WCW is just Brian regurgitating old figure four and observer recaps and jokes thing. Um. The liquid does pretty much mainly hit Flair and the ref. Yeah. Some of it gets on Russo, but yeah. We'll have a lot more to talk about with this, though, the liquid. Okay. All right, so Dave, this is Dave. Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler who ever lived. This match was living proof. 
that this 51-year-old man actually carried Russo and David to what, after some terrible stuff early, to a good match. And then uh, talked about all the stuff went on. So people actually expected Russo to take a Foley bump off the top of the cage. Flair put him in the figure four. What's like eternity? Russo being the toughest man when 11 inch, arm, 11 inch arms ever lived, withstood the move longer than just by every bay face in the history of Jim Crockett promotions. When I even passing out for pain before the blood dropped from the sky. For some reason that Dave can't figure out, the blood immobilizes everyone but the heels, which it doesn't affect. That is a point. It appeared the blood was supposed to drop much sooner, thereby not making the figure four spot look so ludicrous. And that Dave was supposed to pull Russo out of the path of the blood, so only Rick would have to sell it. Neither happened. David put the figure four on Rick. Russo coming for the pin. Yeah. Yeah. So we immediately – so we have that and then immediately go to the next – to the, not even to the back. Um well, we did go to the back. To the back, where Kevin Nash and Scott Steiner are back there talking about Nash's new blood gauntlet match. So Nash comes out. Russo's still red. Came out and said if any of his friends interfered, he'd lose his title match at the Great American Bash. So Kevin Nash in the new blood gauntlet went up against the following. Disco Inferno, Chris Candido, the Mamelukes, Rey Mysterio Jr. Oh, excuse me, and Rey Mysterio Jr. He beat all of them. <laughs> in about five seconds these guys are pinned so quickly they took one move and laid there and Nash didn't even cover them some of the time finally Mike Awesome, Chuck Palumbo, Conan Shane Douglas, Vampiro and a few others all attacked Nash the idea was to get heat on Nash for Goldberg to make the save but Nash didn't bother selling for six guys and Goldberg's run in seemed almost unnecessary as the two of them clean house the show went off the air Bischoff ended the show saying that Goldberg would be suspended for interfering Goldberg said Bischoff, you suspend me, your ass is next. Um, some things I missed, I should have uh, mentioned here from Wade's sidebars. Uh, as far as Kimberly's acting goes, Lisa Kudrow could really learn a lot from her. Hey, Regis, you got your new co-host. The most amazing physical feat of the night was Kimberly's ability to even stand in the ring in her shoes. They were three inches off the ground at her toes and six inches off the ground at her heels. How does she not twist an ankle? When Kevin Nash and Scott Steiner arrived to the arena and Nash's continued effort to be cute at the expense of drawing money, he made an insider reference about being the last one to arrive at the arena since Goldberg was already there. Wade assumed he was saying that he and Goldberg used the most late arriving at the arena and was making a crack about being later than Goldberg. The only problem with that is Flair arrived in a white limo two or three segments later, so the insider reference didn't fit what was on TV. But that's not important, as long as you make the boys in the back chuckle. If the figure four deadline wasn't already dead, Russo leaping to his feet after being the figure four for over a minute sealed the deal. Russo said logic's important when booking. Explain this. The referee scolded and threatened to DQ Mike Austin for standing on Paige's throat, but he was perfectly fine with any number of, WC- any number of double teams by wrestlers during matches because, of course, WCW has laxed the rules. That's basically consistent how the rules apply, so that rule infractions draw heat and generate emotion. Hulk Hogan's gimmick changes are starting to border on pathetic. Hogan keeps thinking the gimmick's the problem. Maybe the problem isn't the gimmick. It's that he's in a business that he doesn't belong in anymore, at least not full-time in a main event position. Eric Bischoff putting himself in a match against Terry Funk seemed to be nothing more than a way to avoid being outworked and upstaged by Vince Russo. It didn't work. Russo put in a much better performance than Bischoff in a much more important match. Bischoff, if he wanted to impress the corporate suits, president of the Atlanta Arena, should have stayed out of the ring and portrayed himself as being above needing to pretend to be a wrestler like Russo. Wow. You think you think Wade might be onto something there? 
that Bischoff was only wrestling on this show because Russo was wrestling Flair? You mean also since he's wrestling Terry Funk? Ah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. All right. So let's stick with the tours. The red liquid was supposed to fall on the Vince Russo, Ray Flair referee Charles Robinson. Right after Flair applied the figure four leg lock during the cage match. The person in charge of pouring the blood was late with the trigger on the catwalk. Everybody in the ring was in the place they were supposed to be in. The majority of the liquid was supposed to land on Flair and the referee, studying both of them into unconsciousness. Russo was then supposed to cover Flair as the second referee ran into the cage to count to three. The second ref, though, couldn't get through the door of the cage. WCW, everybody. So they went to an improvised finish where David Flair counted the three. The original referee, Charles Robinson, then came to, and he also counted the three to make it official. Holy shit. What the fuck is this company, even? All right, well, let's get, let's go back to the Nitro book, shall we? In terms of a production element, the use of suspended blood was as atypical as possible, notwithstanding occurrence at the Nitro show. We were getting ready for the show, remember production vice president David Crockett? And Bischoff came up to me. We were opening up Phil's Arena that night. He said, David, I got something for you to do. He has this bag with him, this plastic bag, quart size, maybe a little bit bigger. He says, this is, this is blank. He passed away from cancer. His wife is here. And his dying wish to be part of Monday Nitro again. That's got to be Randy Anderson. I said, you are kidding me, aren't you? He said, no, figure out a way. So I went to my pyrotechnician. We had these flame projectors and these mortar shells. These things that go off with big explosions. I said, what do you think about this? He poured a little Chris, bit. Of Chris, Chris, Randy Anderson doesn't die until two years later. Well, who is this then? I think it's a production person. From what I've heard, he said, it's a form- well, he said this is a former WCW referee that was not named in the book. Oh, a referee. Okay. So that's what it said, name, a, referee, a former WCW referee, not named. So I don't know. So uh, he put a little bit in each one. I sort of walked back to the back. I wasn't going to stand there for the open, but we did it. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Is it possible he wasn't a full-timer or anything? I remember the, the, the time that I've seen David Crockett tell this story, I feel like he said it was a production person. 72 seconds was the amount of time Russo was in the uh, the figure four, according to the Nitro book. Too. Yeah, and a Hildebrand, I mean, unless they were doing like an ash spreading later, if it, for it to be Hildebrand, Hildebrand died the previous September. So I don't think it would be him Brady, either. Brady Boone? Ooh. Uh, when did he pass? Let me see. I mean, Brady Boone, Brady Boone died in '98. So I mean, who knows? But I mean, yeah, I, I'm guessing story. the referee thing is wrong. That's my best guess. A source said Russo's chest was not only welted after his Nitro match with Flair, but also bleeding from Flair's chops. Legend has it that Russo asked Flair not to hold back on the chops. After the match, Russo was pretty humble and seemed to be looking for assurances that he did okay in the match. The next day, Russo was really sudden the effects of the match. He was in great pain and moved around like an old man. He's seen the game's new respect for what it takes to be a wrestler. It might help him regain some lost credibility after he said last week on WCW Live that he would like to go to Hollywood and hire actors since if he could learn to wrestle, anybody can. He said, in essence, it might be easier to teach actors to wrestle than teach wrestlers to act. Hey, Russo was ahead of his time, wasn't he, in that thinking? <laughs> Look at what Nick Khan and them think now. Uh, I guess also... <laughs> uh... Is this a reply? Th- Wait, what is this? Okay, it's a Reddit thread that says it's Hildebrand. It, it's it's a reply to the Observer f- 
from our week to a recap of that. But I mean, yeah, I don't know where this person's getting it from that it would be Hildebrand. Um, I mean, I don't know. I would have thought that if it had been Brian, it would have been it would have been in the book. But who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, that's what I would think too. So I don't know. I, I, but anyway, yeah. Um, Christopher Daniels is backstage at Nitro and was scheduled to have his first match against Chris Candido at the Worldwide tapings as part of the Thunder tapings in Knoxville the next night. More on that in a second. Tuco Scorpio is also backstage at Nitro. Chip on the work. All right, uh, Thunder tapings on June the 6th in Knoxville drew 3,088 fans, which was 1906, paying $40,940. Uh, think Holy about how many. Shit. I mean, here's something to think about. How many U.S. indie shows these days do you think do gates of over 40 grand? At least, like, major big ticket indies. Mania weekend and the like. There's got to be a bunch, right? I mean, I mean, I can put it this way. I know. Uh, I think it was Wrestle the WrestleCon Super Show. I think it was 2018 in New Orleans did like 75 grand, and I think the New York City one did over 100 grand. So inflation, and everything, yes, but still, like that's not good. What Thunder did here. But look at the per- look, look at the amount per person though. So it's a little over twenty dollars per ticket. Good God! Which is probably in this era, that's probably the bottom or close to bottom price, right? Yeah. But anyway, uh, Christopher Daniels did uh, work the show here, facing off with Chris Candido, and uh, his uh, match here and debuted, putting him over. Daniels said it looked good, but not great. He also had Vampiro over Crowbar, and worldwide. Then we go to Thunder. Eric Bischoff came out with a group of lawyers. Apparently, they didn't force Bill Goldberg's suspension. One of the lawyers looked like the guy who played, and how's this for a data reference? Sam Drucker from Green Acres. They said he looked just like him. <laughs> Green Acres is the place to be. <laughs> Bischoff suspended Goldberg for 90 days. Dave, sure, everyone believed that. Jeff Jarrett then came out with injuries on just about every body part with Nash's old nurses. Nash had a bat and attacked him anyway. And as it turned out, Jarrett wasn't really injured. The old broken arm trick with a new twist, Dave guessed. Lieutenant Loco, Chavo Jr., won a cruiserweight title on a three-way over Daphne and Disco Inferno in 253. Tons of outside interference. Crowbar did a dive on everybody. Miss Hancock showed up and argued with Daphne. Dave guessed because David Flair. Kimberly shoved Hancock into Daphne. And as you can imagine, the physical interplay with the women looked awful. Too bad Vince Russo never said the attendance figures of Glow when they went on tour. <laughs> oh, my God. G.I. Bro, and boy, does that name suck, gave Disco Urinagi and then put Lieutenant Loco on top of the pen. Tigress, who is now Rem- Junior's girlfriend on the show, did commentary, and she was awful. Kim and beat Private Stash, who Dave guess got his ranking dropping from major because of a series of so many series of so many bad matches <laughs> in a row. <laughs> when Horace used a Death Valley driver on Stash and Kidman pinned him in two oh six when up off the top. 
Well, wait, 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 wait. Wasn't, wasn't Van Hammer's th- wasn't the whole story that he was Private Stash and then became Major Stash because despite the obvious pun, he didn't like having the lowest military ranking in the Misfits in action. <laughs> so did he? The thing is, it had, yeah, but they had Major Guns. I forget. I, I forget how that all plays out. But what the fuck? This whole thing. Anyway. <laughs> oh God. So. Um... <laughs> So Kimmy called out Tori Wilson, tried to apologize to afterwards, but she instead slapped him. The cat was out there trying to teach a group of senior citizens how to dance. Now, that was funny. Why? Vince Russo had Rick Flair's retirement party on uh, Thunder, came up with David Flair. They brought out a cake. Then a giant cake was brought out. Russo wasn't going to be so stupid to fall for the Rick Flair and the cake deal. So instead, Flair came up from the ring and started beating on him. The senior citizens were out there, and now that the skit was over, Dave's got no idea why. Rick gave David a low blow and put Russo's face in the cake. You want any of that? Clips? No. Okay. Just making sure. <laughs> Mama Luke's are now the hardcore champion. Dave knows Mama Luke's is plural, and the champion is singular, but this is WCW. Because Bishop gave them the belt. So he had to do a job. Well, they beat the wall at 517. Who sat there and came up with the idea this should be a second longest match on the show? Or that Sean Stacey and Chuck Lobo should be in the longest one? Terrible. Wall knows completely different, but he unfortunately wrestles exactly the same. Shane Douglas interfered powerbomb on the wall through a table, and Vito pinned him. Vito actually wore the belt during the entire match. Russell was just backstage. Tank Abbott came out, and Depp both Mama Luce and challenged Kevin Nash. Good boy. And a lengthy movie preview for Ray of the Rumble. And when they came back, Nash wasn't there. Finally, Abbott was looking around for somebody to pound on. And they showed a 12-year-old kid in the audience. And alert us, it was John Michael Schiavone, Tony's son. Tony hopped the rail. And the kid threw a drink in Abbott's face. Nash came out to save Schiavone's life. And they went all 13 seconds for Rick Snyder and Fear for the DQ. And Scott made the save. So much for not doing DQ finishes for run-ins. Do you want to play the hat? <laughs> oh, sorry, I was muted. Um, I don't know. I do kind of want to see Tony Schiavone. Yeah. Okay. So where are we in the show? How, where it's, are we Na- it's Kevin Nash. Um, this would be after the Wall Mama Luke's deal. Okay, but before the Tank Abbott thing. Well, yeah, it's right there at it. Or no, it's or it's at the beginning of the Tank Abbott Nash match, or what is it? Um, it's um because there's a separate chapter for the promo. It's before the, the ma- match. It's for the match. Okay, so is it? Okay, so let's see. Um, is it before Tank comes in the ring though, or after? It's before. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to pin this thing down. Ugh, this is a mess. It should be after the. I mean, it should be right there after the Mama Luke's. Dude. I know. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking. Uh, right there, Shane Douglas. Okay, so the Mama Luke's got the belts, and that's where I should jump in. Yeah. Okay, with the celebration. Okay, let's see what the hell is going on here. I've seen the wall down, guys. Believe me, we've never seen the wall down. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, there we go. Right around here, right. I guess. He's getting up! 
he's got God, sights on the franchise. Yeah, I forgot about him having the still having the short hair and the goatee, but dark. Who bails out and this is not bad. And wait, how does Tony's son come into this? Just keep well, here we go. Just keep watching. Okay. Are you sure? Yeah. So is it during yeah. the promo? I just read it. I just read what happened. I'm trying to understand the chronology though. Well, I'm skipping ahead and stuff. Tony's cutting the promo. He's getting heckled. Oh, okay. Let's keep going. Uh, I'm I'm trying. Hold on. This is not the most precise. The award-winning uh, WWE Network. Just, all right, just play it. Oh, here we go. Here when we he go. goes towards the crowd. Okay. Now, what's up? Get back. Bring it. Oh, this is a very dangerous situation. Come on, where's Big Ness? Where's Ness at? Uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, my oh, God. Ness ain't anywhere. He's never liked you. you I have his hand. No, what, I've always had a penis out there. He had eye contact with you. What do you mean? I want some. You want some? You don't want some, you dumb idiot. Just challenging everyone around ringside here. I give here. you the beating of your life. This is a scary you situation. You. What's he pointing you at? You want some? How about you, punk? I know who your daddy is. That's Tony Schiavone's son. Some of this popcorn, boy. That's John. That's that's John Michael Schiavone. Oh, he's trying water. to intimidate this this give kid. Me that. Get it. Oh! Hey. It just. He just threw the soda in Tate's face! Run for your life, John Michael! Yeah, you better get him out of here! And it's a very concerned Tony Schiavone, as any father would be, hanging on to his son, and I hear the music! What was even the point of that? <laughs> I don't know. Because Tony was back there. I mean, he didn't, Tony didn't hop tank. Hop, um, is no one hopped the rail. Hop the rail? Yeah. yeah, Tony was already back there. Oh my goodness. Uh, anyway, um, Mike Awesome and Lash LaRue are next. <laughs> or Corporal Cajun. There was a dead crowd until DDP ran in. Awesome and Page with a halo and powerbomb to a table and it was over with. Then we got Palumbo and Stage that retained the tag titles being Captain Rection. Captain Rection. And G.I. Bro in 642. The old guy used to play Hugh Morse's father from the Nuthouse is back. He'll be a push character on TV. He kept trying to hit on Tylene Buck, Major Guns at ringside. How long before Major Guns has to give him mouth to mouth? I wonder if he's going to get powerbomb through a table, too. Doesn't that end up being the gimmick, too? I think so, yeah. yeah and, of course, this uh, is Pops, who, yeah. first of all, looks way too old to be uh, Bill DeMott's dad in 2000. I mean, I guess it's possible, yeah. but still. And is just... And is very obviously Russo being a fan of soap and wanting to do a character based on the major. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Chuck Palumbo pinned General Rection when Pops Rection direct distracted him. Chronic Attack stays at Palumbo afterwards. Sting versus the Cat never took place because Vampiro sprayed Sting with a fire stinger. Sure, laid Sting out doing the Stinger Splash and Scorpion Death Drop. Vampiro set the table on fire, but Sting put it out. Vampiro then gave Sting a urinagi on the table, but the table didn't break and now like it hurt. Sting, Sting's almost like Randy Orton in that way. Uh, he's not as prolific with table. The table's not breaking, but he had his share. Let's put it that way. Um, Hogan came out as Hollywood Hogan to his old music and ring garb and cut the same old promo. 
Finally, it was Steiner's turn to run the gauntlet. Established all the mid-cards being completely not competitive with the top guys. The beneficiaries of the rub on this show were Candido, Stacey, and Palumbo, who lasted a combined 86 seconds until a whole group of heels beat Steiner down. Nash, who would have lost his title shot at Unifier, went to run in, but as soon as he left his dressing room, Jeff Jerry hit him with a guitar. That makes sense out of that. Jarrett was doing a broken arm trick with his whole body to get out of the match, but now Nash is going to do something to cancel the match, and Jarrett stops it. WCW, everybody. They put Steiner in a straight jacket and a body bag until Goldberg came in. They beat Goldberg 6-on-1 until he made his own save, nearly killed Shane Douglas doing a power slam. Bischoff came out with the police when the show ended. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible television here. Horrible. Well, at, at least Daniels Candido on Worldwide was a good match. <laughs> Worldwide, yes! <laughs> I totally forgot Bobby Heenan was still uh, doing Thunder at this point in time. I thought he was gone by, by this point. Good boy. Uh, well, <sighs> I, I'm, I'm so glad we're out of the TV section. How, how, how much more do we have, anyway? Yeah, we have some. Oh, it's oh, not oh, huge, oh. but we have some. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so there was an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution talking about a protest at Nitro involving 12 wrestlers along with Sonny Ono, as well as the Rainbow Coalition Civil Rights Organization, charging WCW with discriminatory practices. Is such a protest took place? It didn't garner a lot of reaction that night. Yeah, and we couldn't find any coverage of it after the fact. Um, a couple very quick quotes, though, from the AJC article uh what's the guy's name again uh let me make sure i'm reading this right uh lawyer 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 i think it's merrick bernstein is that what oh, wait hold on why am i not seeing it all of a sudden there you go yeah merrick bernstein who i guess is one of the other lawyers at carrie Ictor's firm uh he says the trio will shout slogans and wave picket signs along with 10 other xwcwers for since joined the lawsuit which by the way it was never one singular lawsuit they were all separate it's just they shared discovery stuff um, and this is the first Monday Nitro that's been held in Atlanta in a while, and we just want people to know they're giving their money to a bunch of racists, said Bernstein. Alan Sharp, a WCW spokesman, declined comment on the planned protest, but said of the pending lawsuit, quote, we deny the plaintiff's allegations and intend to vigorously defend ourselves against them. So there you go. I mean, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and the lawsuit drags on for a few more years until they get the settlement that at least everyone has kind of heard was at least a million apiece. I mean, that's that's what's always been out there. I don't know how true that is, but it seems to, you know, with what we know about, well, he had other means of making money too, obviously, but from what we know, like, about uh, Hardbody Harrison spending and stuff, uh, seems accurate. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is interesting to know that this didn't get covered more. The, the lawsuit in general, or that the actual protest didn't get covered once it happened. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it is weird. But anyway. On the TV, asked for the Great American Bash. Instead of sending a surprise, something that will change the face of wrestling, they're building a surprise as something that will change the career of Kevin Nash. It gives more credence as simply Goldberg turning a heel on Nash and costing the title and joining the New Blood, or worse, Scott Hall returning, on, Scott Hall returning and turning on Kevin Nash. Is Bill Goldberg, which was in stupid as shit. It's a bad idea. It's stupid. This is shop value. Didn't need it. Nope. You just you're just making your company worse. I remember was we watched that show, went in live and just like it's like what you know just because everybody's you know kind of pumped for Goldberg and like what what are they doing, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Torch. No theory on the surprise. The formation of a fight club. Yeah, this is Torch theory on the surprise. Feature former UFC fighters led by Eric Bischoff to take out Bill Goldberg. That would explain WCW's fixation with building the Goldberg tank fuse as it could lead seamlessly to Goldberg feuding with other mixed martial arts fighters. WCW needs fresh heels to face Goldberg. Mark Kerr told a martial arts website a few months ago that Bischoff was playing the former Fight Club stable to invade WCW. Which I think is where the public story initially came from, right? Yes. And Speaking of Kerr, yes. well, I got more Kerr. Stay with the torch. Kerr, who used to have a conservative look, recently shaved his head, got tattoos, and added earrings. Some believe there's further evidence that his WCW debut is Im- imminent. Then again, he might have been revamping his look to be more marketable in the mixed martial arts world. Mark Coleman's also expected to join current WCW when and if the Fight Club gimmick debuts. And that would be the Knockout Club, was the story, was always the name. And, okay, I thought that... Uh... Pre AEW on his website in that WCW contract thing, the uh, Chris Harrington put this stuff in there, but I can't find it. Um, there is a memo that talks about people. They, I think, from JJ Dillon about making offers to people about potentially the Knockout Club. Um, let's see, because we do have some memos from around this time. Um, that he also has isolated, let's see, either right around or right after a week. Uh, say not here. Because it's in there somewhere. Well, my thing is, if you're going to do this, I mean, you better damn get in touch with Kevin Randleman, too, at this point in time. Well, yeah, uh, nothing here either, as we go into some of this other uh june stuff so i don't know i mean maybe it was earlier that they actually talked about that because that was december but yeah i'm not seeing anything right now um that would fit unless this is it no i can't find it it's in one of the memos that came out in the discrimination lawsuit though about allocating money i forget all the names though i think with goldberg tim catalfo might be in there too but i don't think anyone gets signed of course well, no, but that would have been a better surprise. <laughs> um, so Goldberg talked uh, talked to Jim Varsaloni of the Miami Herald about his return. I don't feel completely ready for this clear Billy to be back. So let myself go a thousand percent all out like I normally do. I'm just not close to that point, but I'm ready to come back in some capacity to contribute in some way or form. Now, in regards to the angle on May 29th when he returned, he said, I, I felt a little sore after that. I felt uncomfortable prior to it. But once my adrenaline was going, I forgot all about the injury. Unfortunately, my adrenaline is probably my worst enemy because it masks a lot of the injuries that I have. He talked to the AP on June the 7th. He said he's bothered by how much wrestling plays took the sexual aspects. We are farther away from the kids and closer to pornography. It bothers me. Absolutely. We have a show that has a girl in a bikini in every single segment. I'm not in favor of that. I force my opinion on everything I have a problem with. We can't shut our eyes on the kids who watch. There's time and a place for segments where kids can watch with their parents, and we don't have it. I remember all this, and this was kind of like a controversy at the time, because that was a thing that a lot of the online fans enjoyed about WCW, was more the scantily clad women on there at that time. I mean, both companies still had that at the time. Yeah, but WCW was really ramping it up. They had newer women on there doing it, not the same old, same old that WF had at the time, so to speak. You know what I'm saying? So, 
I mean, Stacy Keebler as Miss Hancock was Popular. one of the hottest things. Yes. Oh, one of the hottest things on the internet. Good lord. Y'all that don't remember that, too young, wasn't alive. I mean, her and, and that gimmick, uh, when she started doing the risque stuff, that <laughs> that was over. Just ask my Kanae. <laughs> that was over with the with the young internet fans in that time period. Good lord of mercy. Yes. Also, also how we learn that uh, Mark Madden doesn't know what Snoochie Boochies is a reference to. <laughs> if you notice, we got a lot from the torch in this section. Thank God. Even if Scott Hall was healthy enough to return, Goldberg's against Scott Hall returning. Minutes before Goldberg punched his hand through the limo window months ago, there was heat between Hall and Goldberg. Hall had been cutting heel promos against Goldberg, but showed him up with one-liners. Goldberg had complained to the manager that such lines were counterproductive because they were getting baby-faced bobs. Hall agreed not to do it again, but then went ahead and did it anyway. Goldberg claims that Hall set off his temper, which triggered him to recklessly punch the window. He still holds a grudge against Hall for it to this day. Wait, wait, wait. He's blaming Scott Hall? He said he did the Hall. Yeah. Yeah. He Being a bit of an ass to him earlier in the day for him losing the gimmick to break the window of the limo and then deciding to start elbow, shoot elbowing through the window that then severed, cut his artery and caused him to be on the shelf for six months. He got worked into a shoot, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, a lot of things were Scott Hall's fault, I'm sure, back in the day. This does not sound like one of them. Well, the thing is, he was Hall did whatever he did on the air, and that's that what pissed Goldberg off. Doesn't matter. Um, I'm saying he got worked to a shoot. Yeah, all, I'd like to know more about some of these alleged Scott Hall comments because I think, like I said, when he passed away. Hey, what's your finisher again? Oh, right! Can't wait to kick out of it. That's objectively funny. It is. <laughs> it is, but you can see. Where somebody would not be laughing at that. Sure, you know? sure. I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting, you know. I guess it all depends on how you are as a uh, as a person, your mentality towards things. Goldberg obviously is somebody who's kind of I want to say uptight, but kind of intense and takes things a little cl- too close to the heart and not the type of not the type of guy to do that around but that's the thing with some of these guys that do stuff like that and and they know of people that act like that it makes me want to do it even more you know needling so that, I think that's part of it too I mean, all, I knew he, all knew he could piss him off and he kept a, he kept doing it just do it yeah so. and uh Interesting choice of words there that you just said needling, given what our next story is. Kimberly released a statement through DDP's website saying she was not the person who told Tammy told management about Tammy Sitch leaving a vial in the women's bathroom. Other women at WCW, though, insist Kimberly and Elizabeth were the ones who let management know about the vial and blamed Tammy for it. A number of sources insist that Tammy seemed clear-headed that day, which they had was unusual for her. There's some speculation that some of the women may have planted the violence to make Tammy look bad so she had some disputes with some of the women and had given them incentive to try and sabotage her. Okay. I believe this comes up in the Chris Candido interview with Larry Goodman from late 04, early 05, which I cannot find the archived version on that was on 
post on bodybuilding.com on Google right now. I'm sure it's around somewhere, and I'm sure if I emailed Larry. I think he still has it. But um, the way I think, uh, I think maybe this is in the Candido obituary that Dave talks about it. The way that Dave would talk about this later was it was Newbane, which was a synthetic opiate that was popular with like bodybuilders and fitness models at the time. Um, I believe Chris and Tammy had been deliberately staying away from Newbane, if I'm remembering it right. And the kicker, though, of course, is WCW had just brought in a bunch of women from the fitness community in California where this was becoming a big thing at the time. And yeah. yet somehow Tammy got blamed for it. Yeah. So. So what do you think? You think that she was set up? I don't think she was set up. I think they just assumed it was Tammy. So it could have been an honest mistake. I don't think that. Well, they shouldn't have blamed her. But um, they shouldn't have blamed her. But I think to a degree. Yeah. Uh, all right. Just Googling. So from the previous week's Observer. Um, this is the, I didn't look in the actual observer. This is the summary that's on Reddit. Uh, pulled from Nitro after incident backstage. Lots of reports she was fired. Not true. Not as press time. Okay. Two other unnamed women found syringes in the women's bathroom with a vial of Nubane, painkilling drug that's become popular with wrestlers. Somehow it was traced back to her. Tammy was said, okay, this is conflicting what in the observer, what Wade said. Tammy was said to be in very bad shape backstage before the show. And others said that she was in the ba the bathroom, that bathroom, for an attorney beforehand. She was supposed to have a catfight spot with Miss Hancock on the show, but after Bischoff was alerted to the situation, Tam was pulled from the show and reportedly ordered to take a drug test. This, of course, ends with Tammy. This says the uh, this person's note says she gets fired. I don't think that's right though. But yeah, so Dave was saying that she was fucked up. Wade is saying she was not. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Conflict of uh, stories here with the newsletters. Yeah, and I'm trying to... I'm curious what Dave actually wrote now, so I'm opening up that Observer, but I'm not sure what I make of these... Because, I mean, we know Dave was t would talk to Chris. Um, Let me see what he actually wrote here. Uh... Become popular with some wrestlers. Major problem in the ECW dressing room several months back. Uh, she was described as being in very bad shape backstage before the show, and it was said she, before the show she was in the same bathroom for an eternity. Okay, so yeah, we're getting two completely different stories here from the two main newsletters. Huh. One in which it makes sense that it's her because she was fucked up. The other in which it doesn't make sense that it's her because she was not fucked up. Hmm. So the truth's probably somewhere in the middle. Yeah, what would the what would the middle of those two things be? <laughs> I don't know. She was partially fucked up. Uh, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, it, it, it was, if she was out of it, obviously, if it's contractually allowed, it makes sense to ask her to take a drug test. But short of that, I don't think anyone really should have like acted like it was hers. Had to be hers in their mind. Who else was going to do it? I uh, I don't know. She's an easy target to blame. I guess. You know? Especially if they don't like her. Yeah. All right. Lex Luger and Elizabeth have been running out of WCW storylines entirely for the time being. 
a couple of purple shots taken at them during Nitro, but otherwise they are non-existent for as far as WCW storylines go. WCW has an option on Liz's contract every 90 days, and they're expected to terminate her contract at the next opportunity. Luger's guaranteed contract, so this situation is more difficult to deal with. While Vince Russo is frustrated with Luger's incessant unprofessionalism, apparently Eric Bischoff has completely run out of patience for Luger, and is talking, taking Luger's attitude problems personally. The locker room belief is that Liz encouraged Luger's behavior and riled him up anytime management asked something of him that they disagree with. Lex and Liz's scam was trying to do as little as possible while still getting paid, said one wrestler who grew tired of their backstage antics. It's interesting that Liz is being painted as the uh, instigator here and the this like the Spengali in a way. Uh yeah. I, well, I, I don't know what to read too much into this since both were not in a good way at the time. Yeah. But you know, this this kind of goes there, there was some people and I've read it before. There's some people that believe that like Liz was kind of pushing Savage's buttons, and that's why Savage was what he was, way how he treated her behind the scenes in those years. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. she would like do things to get him riled up. So I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, okay. So going back to Prison Tammy searching through our Google drives and stuff. So this is from Alvarez's Candido obit in late 2000, a bottle and, and look, whatever we have to say about Brian, I'm going to take his contemporary, relatively contemporaneous WCW stuff over some of his other stuff. If that makes sense. Um, in late 2000, a bottle containing the drug Nubane was found in WCW one's locker room. Despite the fact that the drug was popular with bodybuilders and there were at least a half dozen female fitness bottle models working for the company at the time, blame was immediately put on Tammy, who roundly denied it. Candido admitted many times that the two of them had taken Nubane in the past, but hadn't used it for at least a year prior to the incident. At the following Thunder tapings, Bischoff demanded Sitch take a urine test. The company proceeded to immediately lose her sample. Yes, I think this is this I think is all from the Larry Goodman interview. Um Three weeks later, it finally turned up, and lo and behold, she was clean. Bischoff sent her home anyway, and that was the end of her run there. Well, convenient. They lost the test. And then they found it anyway, and it was still negative. Um, But yeah, that, that to me, I'm pretty sure was – that's all from the Larry Goodman interview with Chris. So And the Luger Luger stuff happened the the week before our week. But, Mm -hmm. of course, this is talking about after the fact. Yeah, yeah. All right, Chris Kane is expected to return within the next couple of weeks. W7 management is trying to resign him to a contract extension. Those who know say Diana Myers, who is negotiating with WCW, isn't helping to speed up the process. Of course. <laughs> oh, I, well, she's got a lot on her plate. <laughs> yeah. Mike also said to be happy in WCW, and especially likes working in shorter matches compared to DCW. Well, his knees and other parts are a mess, so that makes sense. Yeah, they're a mess, and that's probably why he's happier that he's not doing all that crazy shit he was in ECW at the time, so. Yeah. That's one thing. Great Muta scheduled on either the June 19th Nitro in Billings, Montana, or the Nitro a week later in Des Moines. Since New Japan's been running this angle for months, where WCW has stolen Muta from New Japan, and since the angle, he's never actually worked the WCW show. Just to try and make the angle a jet. He's scheduled for uh, Thunder in Bozeman, Montana on June the 20th. It's all part of his uh, Mayo Clinic thing, too. This tour here. Mm-hmm. And boy, 
Talk about some of the worst wrestling matches of that year, too. Oh, oh, I found the Knockout Club stuff, too, in trying to find the Canyon stuff. All right. Okay, so this is from March 3rd, an email from Don Edwards to Bill Bush, CC Diana Myers. Um, Okay, so we were talking about Canyon, if we find him here, but first, okay, Mark Coleman. New contract to be offered to renowned quote-unquote shoot fighter that will be part of our quote-unquote knockout club. He has an existing commitment in Japan in May. WCW would put him under contract prior to his Japan appearance and possibly show him in the audience at one of our TV shows. A two-year deal with an option for a third at a base of $104,000 with cycles and we would immediately pay $1,250 for appearance. Coleman would almost would be an almost instant commodity in Japan, and we would have to and we would have to create some special language to cover our sending him there. Then also Mark Robinson, similar deal and circumstances to Coleman. Initially, we could offer the same base and probably five hundred per appearance. And Brian Johnson, similar deal as Coleman, but Brian is currently wrestling some with New Japan. Initially, we would offer the same base and five hundred per appearance. So there's the knockout club, and none of this happens. Mm-hmm. And Canyon is supposed to be in here. Let me see. So the Canyon, it said, amend his current deal to start paying him $500 per appearance, including from day one of the next contract year, protect 36 PR dates, and give him TV, hotel, and car. So they're covering covering his road expenses, basically, in this new contract. Plus, he's getting a $500 a shot a bonus for each appearance that he was not getting before. Um, and cause the contract was April 98 through April 01, um, making about 240 grand base. So now he's also getting more, although actually, yeah, I can see, yeah, based on the, uh, added stuff, he's making more than he had the previous years. Good, get a pay raise always. WCW is always uh, eager to give money out, so there you go. Well, and also, if anyone deserved it, it was Canyon who was doing the movie stuff. I'm sure he got paid separately for that, too, but worked as a scout, you know, I believe might have helped at the power plant, too. So if anyone deserved a raise, it's him, especially since he was at the lower end of the pay scale anyway. Oh, yeah. All right. Conan finally had the MRI on his tricep on June the 7th. Shane Huntsville only had the reconstruction surgery on, to fix his broken nose. Ming has been given his notice. Well, he sticks around, and then they, his contract expires, and he just leaves with one of their belts. Yeah, the hardcore title. Uh, the Parka either quit to work for CMLL or is with, still with the company technically, but is working for CMLL. Well, what? he's working in Mexico, but it's not for CMLL. He, he works on... Some CMLL shows it's not televised because he can't be on TV with CMLL. Okay. Um, all right, because we're in the early stages of the fight over the name and stuff. Does this say when he's terminated? No. Um, oh, I think we've talked about this before, how he ba- it seemed like he was making the most of the non-Ray Luchadors. You know, he was on a $180,000 a year contract, um, but ends up getting cut i think by the summer yeah back to the torch source continues in the praise of keith mitchell of the production crew while criticizing the work of craig leathers and annette yothers why am i guessing 
I'm, well, I'm guessing that uh, this is someone who is not on the DDP side and does not like Craig Leathers and Annette Yoder. I think it's not Yoder's, uh. it's Yoder acquiescing to uh, to DDP's uh, various production demands so much. <laughs> oh, the old backstage drama in WCW. Um, Lenny Lane, who was on WCW Live on June the 6th and said he was counting down the 54 days remaining in his contract. Lane was also critical of Russo, asking why he can't come up with anything for him. If Russo is such a genius, both WF and ECW, uh, if Russo is such a genius, both WF and WCW are interested in Lane, Lodi, Idol, whatever, Lane's former partner, still has a year that remained in his contract with WCW. Lenny and Lodi are not on good terms these days. Lane even accused Lodi of faking an injury. Ooh. Wow. Has two, wait, is, two, is 2XS a thing by this point, or is that after this? They had a falling out, but I think they got back together. Uh, yeah. Don't, 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 do not ask me about WCW timelines. I know, I know, I know, I know. Don't, don't even attempt. <laughs> <laughs> believe me, I mean, we just had a deal here. We thought the hair was hair matches on this show, and it wasn't. So, yeah. and... I haven't watched this stuff in 22 years. This is not something I, I revisit. And yeah, Lodi's contract is through uh, October 01. And believe it or not, over the past two weeks, there have been a lot of interest in bringing Dennis Rodman back, hoping for mainstream publicity. Perhaps it stems from Carl Malone expressing interest in doing something again when they were in Salt Lake City, and Malone getting the big pop for his run-in. Well, it'd been nice if they would have got him. They would have brought him some publicity. I don't know if it would have been a saving grace for anything because it's 2000 it's Dennis Rodman he's not as big as he was in, in the late 90s but still would have gotten publicity which they needed at this time yeah but nothing happens nope nothing at all so 2000 WCW uh, quite quite the experience here for those of you who are reliving it now and definitely for us that lived it in real time well, let's go to Pry now as we go to Japan. Land of the Rising Sun, and Pry leads off with us. Dream Stage Entertainment number nine, pay-per-view Japan only, on June the 4th from the Goya Rainbow Hall. Once again, prove the axiom that when you ask the question as to who is the best fighter, the answer depends upon what the rules of the fight are. Witness Gilbert Ivel. Ivel, who in his last fight, defeated Kyoshi Tamara, giving Tamara his worst beating of his career, and route to winning the Rings World Heavyweight Championship. Hey, title was started out as a pro wrestling version of the world title and actually is defending in shoot fights. He'll be one of the most exciting fighters to watch due to his great kickboxing skill. In rings, when fighters taken down, if the action slows on the ground, the referee orders to stand up. I was taken down repeatedly in every one of his major wins in rings, but his repeated stand-ups allowed him to eventually connect on strikes and put the hurting on his foes. Even before his main event against Peter Belfort, the psychologically challenged Brazilian, who at one point was thought to be the man who had put the sport on the map, Akira Maeda, the head of the rings promotion that he was a champion of before jumping one month earlier, so he had no chance to win because of the different rules, which don't have as frequent stand-ups. The analysis is right on. Belfort was able to use his superior grappling background to take Ivel down to gate his kickboxing skills and use ground and pound to win a 20-minute decision before a crowd of approximately 6,000 paid Announced at 9156. Either way, this was considered attendance figure. This this attendance figure. Either way, this was considered attendance figure. Something's missing. Considering the highest t- high ticket prices, and that there was no Japanese name fighter on the show. 
the biggest news on the show wasn't the fight themselves, but Dream Stage Entertainment President Naohito Morishita announcing a business tie-in with Antonio Inoki, which means more pro wrestlers on future shows. This is both good for business and bad for purist credibility. Unlike in the United States, the entire pro wrestling industry has changed greatly due to many high-profile shoot shows. Not only have predominantly work, pro wrestling organizations, Reigns, gone from mostly works to 50-50 to pure shoots, where for big shows for New Japan, they need a shoot aura, which the January 4th, 1999 Shinya Shimoto Noyo match gave them to draw big crowds and large TV ratings. The success on TV of not only Hashimoto vs. Agawa in April of 2000, but the May 1st Pride show and the May 26th Hicksai and Gracie Matsukatsu Vinaki show when it comes to ratings, tells the story of what interests the general public today. As it pertains to the pro wrestling industry, and make no mistake about it, in Japan, these ratings and these crowds come largely from fans of pro wrestling. What many feared in 1995, when USC was gaining popularity, while pro wrestling was in a major slump, that fake wrestling couldn't compete with real fighting, which turned out not to be the case, as Americans, for the most part, never cared about the real versus fake issue as it pertained to pro wrestling in the first place. Something promoters finally realized and led to the current boom. In Japan, it's a different story. The two phases are drawn together. The real fights need pro wrestling personalities to draw large crowds or TV raids because they are supported largely by wrestling fans. But the pro wrestling also needs to adapt more towards making its big matches have a shoot aura. Because fans who can see the real thing have become more interested in, in it than the routine, well-worked pro wrestling match. Most of this show was designed more to build up August 27th when Pride runs the 52,000-seat Seibu Dome in Tokorozawa, a city a few hours outside of Tokyo. Through the help of Inoki, they are attempting to put together a match with Tokomichi Sezawa, which fans Kendo Kashin, who came out without his mask, against Henzo Gracie. Ishizawa, a former national champion in wrestling who those who have trained with him say is great with submissions, and his pro wrestling gimmick is being the submission master. There's also going to be an attempt at the ticket seller to get Shinyashimoto on the show, which if they can get him in a work match against the name opponent, would be a huge draw. They set up a spot where Gracie went to shake Ishizawa's hand, but Ishizawa at first refused to build the heat, but finally did. If his main event would be Ken Shamrock facing either Kazuki Fujita or Mark Coleman, and at the rest of the top pride stars such as Mark Kerr, Kazuchi Sakuraba, Igor Vachanshin, and Gary Goodrich was all, would all appear. This is the beginning of New Japan and Pride uh, hooking up, and this is the beginning of Enochiism, basically. Um, it would seriously damage New Japan in ways. It helped them in business ways, too, but it would damage New Japan in ways for the next five years or more. But you can understand, looking at the business patterns, why they would be interested in going in this direction. Do you agree with that? E clearly, yes, because that's what had been drawing was all pro wrestling related. Like, of course they're doing this. Like, obviously. But it's, it's the thing that, like I said, the thing is, is that is what what Dave's calling out. You know, the 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 ratings and the business is going to these shoot style things involving pro wrestling concepts. Yes. Or pro wrestling having a shoot style thing like a Hashimoto Ogawa situation. You know, um, but the problem is you do that, but you do it in a way where you're not sacrificing your pro wrestling company, which is what happened with New Japan. Well, yes. I mean, that's the problem. So that would be the future. But I understand. I mean, again, it's totally understood why Noki would want to get New Japan involved in this. And I mean, because pro wrestling strongest. Yeah. 
And, and Ishizawa is totally elevating all this for a short time. Yeah. So he he he's a winner in that way. I guess so. But but um yeah, and and, and it's something to mention too. Uh, Peter Belfort's son is a top-rated high school quarterback uh, in Florida. In the I think I don't know if it's twenty twenty-four. I think he's a junior in high school mm-hmm. or about to be a junior in high school. But yeah, he's a he's a highly rated football quarterback on uh, coming out, and uh, a lot of major universities are looking at him. So be ready for that to be uh, coming out in the next year. Or so you know you'll hear about Beater's son and where he may be going to school. Honestly, of all like the second generation athlete types, that's what I'm not really worried about because from all accounts, I mean, especially I think some of it probably. Owing, unfortunately, to what happened to his sister, um, Vitor appears to be a wonderful dad and not overly pushy when it comes to sports. So, well, it's a totally different sport. I mean, it's football. Well, that's you know, it's, it's totally, di- totally different from any type of mixed martial arts. So, well, I mean, well, the other thing is too is like, was Vitor ever really like that into being a fighter? So it makes sense. Yeah, but anyway. All right, back to Pride. Uh, there was a tragedy before the first fight, and the car consisted more hype in the next show above matches that were said to be overall disappointing in the ring, with the domination of the better wrestlers in matches that went to time limit. Before the first match began, Brazilian Jogil de Oliveira was badly burned by the pyrotechnics. According to a post by Brazilian promoter Sergio Battarelli, as the two of them, along with João Ricardo, were at the entrance tunnel, a flame was lit. And the Oliveira was badly burned. He ended up with secondary burns over 40% of his body. He'll be hospitalized for two or three weeks. The burns are not life-threatening, and it's believed he'll be able to fight again. Obviously, his match with Matt Serra, a protege of Hinzo Gracie from New York, was canceled. And uh, the week later, Dave noted that uh, the Oliveira was supposed to be hospitalized in Japan for at least another three weeks. Um, so, yeah. And that's... That- Woof, that's tough. And that would have been Matt Sarah's first fight outside of not entirely legal fights in New York. Yeah. Because he had been but... having these, like, sort of MMA mixed rules fights on um, Lunagulia's kickboxing shows on Long Island up to this point and a little bit after this. And then his first full-on MMA fight is the Shoney Carter fight a year later. Yeah. Um, if this happens today, up. yeah. But if this, if this happens today, there's a lawsuit, right? And you would think there was a lawsuit then too. Well, look, you of could, course, though. but you would think today though it would be maybe even more. But of it's a pride and Yakuza, and I'm sure they took <laughs> care of him and made it clear that yeah. they would take care of him in a way that didn't necessitate a lawsuit. Yeah. So and it's, it's a different world, 2000, no social media as well. So, all right. So let's go to the results of the show. Heath Herring beat Willie Peters in 48 seconds with a choke. Herring, who started his career with Steve Nelson's USWF, took Peters, a ring veteran, down, got his back, got the choke quick fashion. Peters only had three days' notice taking this fight as a replacement for Marcelo Tiger, who pulled out. Marcelo Tiger is a wonderful name for a Brazilian fighter. You're not a, you're not a boxing guy, but, uh, 
back in the 60s, one of the most dominant uh, light heavyweight fighters, whose name was Dick Tiger. But was that his actual name? Was he Richard Tiger? <laughs> um, I think so. Dick Tiger was, yeah, he's from Nigeria. Well, it's not his, his real name was Richard Ihitu. Okay, well, there you go. But still, Dick Tiger's a great name. <laughs> All right, uh, next we get Carlos Barreto. But Brazil won a 20-minute decision over Trey Tellerman in the Lions' den. Barreto was able to take Tellerman down and dominate positioning and run to the decision. After the match, Barreto issued a challenge to Ken Shamrock. Well, naturally. It's Lions' den. Alan Goez then won a 20-minute decision over Vernon Tiger White, uh, the former Lions' den fighter and Pancrase veteran. Goez dominated positioning on the ground and run to win the decision. And then he challenged Kazusa Caraba. And they had already went to a 30-minute draw previously. Carlos Newton of Canada submitted a much larger pro wrestler Naoki Sano in just 40 seconds with an arm bar. Sano replaced stable mate Minoru Toyonaga, 21, who in a pre-fight physical two days earlier was found to have a brain tumor, which apparently is going to end his career as well as a pro wrestler. Oof. Hmm. 21. God. Sano has the rare dual distinction of competing both in the Pride event and the Super Jacob within a two-month period. Sano's never looked good in shoots, and this was no exception because he's a pro wrestler. Um, so stable mate, stable would be Takata Dojo. Yeah. Okay. Damn, okay. that sucks. And yeah, and meanwhile, yes, of course, Carlos Newton in 2000 is going to beat a aging pro wrestler. Akira Soji submitted John Renkin in 6:42 an armbar. Renkin was brought in in large because he was the opponent and lost to Matsukatsu Fanaki's first fellow to the rules match. Soji dominated the match. Hiko Rodriguez, his training partner, Mark Kerr. Rico, he's not Brazilian. <laughs> How do you always do I this? Like, no, I was, I was doing that to get you to do it. Okay. <laughs> yes, Rico Rodriguez, training partner, Mark Kerr, who seconded both Rodriguez as well as Trey Tellerman, dominated the ground game and won a 20, another 20-minute 20 decision over Canadian Gary Goodrich. Rodriguez was said to have major star crowd charisma and good look. Is able to take Goodrich down and win the decision based on positioning. Most sports label this fight as boring. A lot of decisions on this show so far. Any yeah, other card? and who knows what happens with Rico if he if his uh, demons don't take hold to the degree they do. Because I mean, think about it. We are talking about a guy who won the UFC heavyweight title by taking down Randy Couture during, I guess, what you could say was his prime, relatively speaking, not his normal athletic prime, but you know what I mean. Getting on top of him, pounding him out until he broke his orbital bone and made him quit. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot. That's impressive. But, yeah. Yeah. Eagle Wartanchin defeated the former pro wrestler Daijiro Matsui of the Takata Dojo on 503 when the match was stopped by the doctor due to blood. Both Chanchin got his back, started punching. Matsui bled a lot. Doctor checked the cut once and allowed the match to continue, but the second time he stopped it. Igor against any pro wrestler in 2000 is a criminal-level mismatch. Uh, yes. Yes. For those who don't know MMA that well, I mean, Igor is... At this point, what I would say, top three fighters who never competed in the UFC. Yes, it would probably be him, Fedor Emelianenko, and probably one of the older lightweights like a 
Vitor Shaolin or uh, um, I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden. The, the jujitsu guy that also does pro wrestling. Um, Japanese guy. Why am I blanking? The, the, the flipped got flipped like uh, the, you know, broke. Bro, what's his No, um, no, Kyle Luno fought in the UFC. Why am I forgetting his name? The jujitsu guy fought, um, had the fights with Eddie Alvarez. God, why am I forgetting his name all of a sudden? Um, hold on, I know I can find it. Why am I forgetting his name? He's wrestled in DDT. Shinya Aoki. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm not sure oh, yeah. who, like, yeah, if you were saying top three, I'm not sure who the third would be, but I think Fedor and Igor are the top two, clearly, right? Yeah, that'd be up there. Yeah, if you built out a five, I guess, yeah, it would probably be some of the lightweights from there, or there was no UFC lightweight division. Did Peter Belfort beat Gilbert Ivel by decision after 20 minutes? Belfort was able to deck Ivel and then got the top position, mainly doing ground and pound while caught in the garden in the first 10-minute round. Belfort took Ivel down twice more in the second round. Ivel got very little offense in and bled heavily from a cut with the right eye. So that's your main event. Now, Sakuraba, Fujita, and Alexander Oskal did color commentary. Henzo, during their mission, also challenged Sakuraba for family revenge. Fujita did an interview where he asked the crowd if they'd like to see him against Ken Shamrock, which the crowd popped for. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of Sakuraba, Pride announced that they would attempt to put together a Hickson Gracie Kazu Sakuraba match. Well, Yuki Kondo talked about facing Gracie as well. A lot of mainstream press regard to both these challenges. The reality is that while Sakuraba or Kondo may give him tougher matches and have proven themselves, they still aren't dome-level ticket-selling names, which is the unfortunate reality. <laughs> Dave's talking about Sakuraba. Wait, 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 wait. Wasn't, when was the Grand Prix final? We just had May, May the 1st. That's what I was saying. So, okay, the, yeah. it hasn't, he hasn't become a draw out of that yet, then. Okay. Not yet, no. Well, here's who Dave thinks should face Hickson Gracie. The biggest thing for boss office will be Naomi Ogawa. But Antonio Noki isn't about to put Ogawa in there if he's not in control of the situation because they're basically trying to mold him into the new Inoki as Japan's wrestling hero. Punaki's retirement was covered as lead sports story on Nippon TV on May 27, which is the most repeat, respected newscast in the country. However, in the story, they claim that Funaki had lost to Gracie, who had a 450-0 record. Sure. One of the reasons the crowd appeared small at the Tokyo Dome was because it was total one-match show, so the high roller types, like at a boxing match in the U.S., who didn't care about the undercard, arrived late. There were reports that the show may have legitimately drawn 30,000 pay, which is quite frankly along the lines of what the prior Grand Prix current tournament drew. The reality of martial arts had a dream match between two mainstream names who are probably no longer top-shelf fighters outdrew the biggest card in history from a realistic name value perspective featuring the toughest tournament ever held. And uh, that Coliseum 2000 card was the previous week, the Funaki retirement against Yes. Um, yes. So interesting timing that, you know, this is the week we're doing because I, oh, I forget who it was with. There was an interview Hickson just did that I was reading about on MMA Fighting earlier today where he talks about both the thing with his claimed record where he does admit, as people have said over the years, that when he comes up with that number and he thinks it could easily be bigger, that's not just Valet Tudo and Street Fights and stuff like that. It also includes Jiu-Jitsu, Sambo tournaments, etc. Um, that was part of it. But he does talk about Sakuraba. He says, basically, kind of, you know, dovetails with what's here. He wanted it. Um, made sense after... Sakuraba going through his brothers and seemed like it was potentially going to be real. And that's when Hickson's son, Hoxon, died tragically at a very young age. So he just, he was done. 
Yeah, I mean, Hicks on Gracie was like that the like, Moby Dick in the, in the Japanese MMA world in the 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, here's he, the he thing. He was the white whale. But here's the thing, though. Like, okay. In terms of MMA accomplishments, once MMA is a thing, Henzo is the most decorated Gracie. I don't think there's any argument with that, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's the best of the best. Yes. Jiu-jitsu-wise, it's trickier, but everything you hear from within people, you know, that community and people who know, Hickson was legit as he said he, as legit as he said he was. He was the best overall fighter. Yes, but he was not fighting in organized fights that much. He wasn't the best jujitsu guy. He was the best overall fighter. Well, Hickson might have been the best jujitsu guy of that era in the family. Henzo was the best, like, organized MMA fighter. And Hickson, because of how Uh, he was business-wise. I would say. Hick, but apparently everything you hear about Hickson and his jujitsu prowess and what he knew from other martial arts and stuff is legit. So. I'm sure he knew, knew what he's doing, but the, the, but is he, he are you, the, you, well, okay, I get what you're saying. Knowing that Sakuraba's already beat, go ahead. He wasn't a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu guy. He was, like I said, he was more into standing up and and doing that type of stuff. Other Gracies weren't necessarily in that way. Henzo was, but a lot of I mean, I get what you're saying. They were the two who were the most fighterly of the family. Yeah. Hoyler and, and and Hoyce and that crew, I mean, they were more. Let's go to the ground. Let's do it straight. The right. real Gracie I am Jiu-Jitsu. going to right. Their thing was I am going to prove Gracie Jiu Jitsu is strongest. Henzo the and Hickson were yeah. more about winning a fight. Yes, exactly. But yeah, I guess the thing is, is like since he is older at this point, but Sakurab has already beaten Henzo, who is the tougher challenge. Of the two. You think Hicks... Okay, I was going to say, Hickson is still the tougher challenge, so... Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. Um, oh, no, the Henzo fight hasn't happened yet. That's in August. He just decimated Funaki, you know, so... No, what I'm saying, Sakuraba Henzo doesn't happen until August. I know that, but I'm talking about... We just talked about that. The challenges. Okay. But what I'm... What I'm trying to say, it depends on Sakuraba Hoist has just happened. That's yes. what I'm yes. talking about. That happened May 1st. I'm just, I had so forgotten a, that Henzo was after Hoist. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, because that was on the, the next big American pay per view, was that one. Yes. But, um, but yeah, Hickson had just beat Funaki's ass. And, you know, that whole thing was still buzzing around the MMA world and it kept buzzing around the MMA world for years. So, all right, we're not doing MMA yet. And what was built is Andy Hoog's final match ever in his home country of Switzerland and K1's annual big show in that country on June 3rd before a sell of 14,000 fans in Zurich. Andy Hoog won a five-round unanimous decision over Mirko Krokop to keep the WKA World Muay Thai Super Heavyweight Championship. That show air on Fuji's TV on June the 10th. K1 has show scheduled for Cape Town, South Africa on June 10th, but it's been moved to July 1st. Andy Hoog. Talk about a guy who, good God. I mean, if he was still alive, you know, when the boom really got big here, I think his legend would have been even more than what it was. Yes. Because he has his final match on July 7th. He knocks out Nobuhoyashi, and then he's he dies on August twenty fourth. 
Yeah, I always forget that part of the story. Yeah. Clearly he knew something was going on. Yeah. But yeah, but that's yeah, a man. different timing. He's I mean he was already a huge star. I mean they were jumping in with like to play his fights when he died, breaking into whatever like with new, news coverage in Japan. So, I mean he like oh, he, he was, was a big star, but we're not into like the crossover MMA kickboxing boom yet where if he fights in pride or whatever, I mean, someone being that he was such a great heavyweight kickboxer who was also so flashy and charismatic. Yeah. He absolutely would have been an even bigger star. Yeah. And, um, he was a big part of the K1 video game. Yes. And, uh, yeah, what he died of was he was uh, diagnosed with acute leukemia. Yeah. Died a week later after he was diagnosed with it. Yeah, we covered the week he died, didn't we? Yeah. It's sad. But what a fighter he was. Good lord. Mm-hmm. Master. Even, even he, Go ahead. huge. No, but even also. huge. Oh. I think we're lagging more than usual for some reason. Go ahead. Well, I'll just move on. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go to All Japan Pro Wrestling. Akita Professional Gym on June the 7th for 2,400 fans. Yoshinobu Kanemaru defeated the Michimaru Fijian in the opener. Masai Inoue over Takeshi Rikiyo. Masafuchi, Haruka Egan, and Shiyoshi Kikuchi over Russia Kimura, Mitsuomomoto, and Kenta Kobayashi. Team No Fear, Takao Mori and Yoshiro Takayama defeated Stan Hansen and Eric Watts. That's a match. Mitsuo Masao, Yoshinarugawa, and Daisuke Ikeda defeated Junakayama, Manakea Masaman, and Makoto Hashi. Johnny Ace and Mike Barton defeated Kita Kabashi and Katara Shiga. And their main event with Dr. Dusty Williams, Johnny Smith, and George Hines, Jackie Fulton over Tocha Kawada, Akira Tawe, and Takeshi Morishima in your main event. So, young boy Morishima getting the main event on this show. And, you know, we had the topic uh, on the, was it the 99 show we did with yes. Kaya? Yeah, 99 show with Kaya. And uh, we talked about the first Noah trainee, and somebody noted to us after the show, and I cannot believe that I totally forgot this. And that I did that as Takashi- well, yes. Takashi Segura was the first true Noah trainee. Or at least the first because graduate, you, yes. Yeah, you look at the show here, and you got Marafuji, Rikio, Kenta, Morishima, Hashi. You got the, all these guys here, but they're in all Japan. Yes. At Young Boys. So, yeah, Takashi Segura was the first true Noah graduate. But, uh, yeah, this is the final tour of uh, the traditional all Japan. And uh, after this show... As a sign, so to speak, the All Japan Guy Jim bus driver told all the wrestlers to clean up the bus of their gear, CDs, and etc., which came with a shot to all the wrestlers who had heard rumors for a year. This was a total scare that they may not be brought back. The wrestlers also checked with the hotel in Tokyo they usually stay in if rooms were booked for the July tour, which is always done well in advance, and they weren't. Nor was anyone given official confirmation of their return dates. A lot of foreigners were closer. To Matoko Baba, since she paid them, and there were never money problems dealing with all Japan, nor the stresses of dealing with the office politics in the United States. And touring was much easier with the company bus and the hotel taken care of by the office, and with the time off between tours. Both Masawa and Baba heard from wrestlers who did their best to alleviate their concerns and not not to worry, although basically they were all left hanging. Dr. S.D. Wins and Johnny Ace are the tightest with Matoko Baba on a personal level, I'll say. Stan Hansen, who's the highest paid of the foreigners, is apparently staying out of the situation, and he's just about ready to wind down his career and has talked of retiring, as he saved his money 
wants to become a geography teacher and a high school football coach. Okay. Which I think he does do some teaching. I don't, he never becomes a high school football coach. I've been a hoot. But uh, yeah, I mean, if this ain't a sign, I don't know what is. Good lord, get your shit, go home. <sighs> Good lord. And it makes sense that Matoko Baba is the one that's the you know the closest to all the guy the guy Jean. Which is also so, interesting, so- since her role was to be the bad cop, at least with the native talent. But she's a good cop with the foreigners. Uh, it's a uh, complete opposite. Uh, I wonder why. <laughs> Dr. Stevens and Eric Watts have been teaming a lot on this tour, which has its ironies, because if Vincent Russell hadn't gone out of business, they probably would have ended up being the stars of that company. Watts has already banged up his left knee and right elbow to two weeks on tour. That's a very interesting point. If Bill Watts doesn't sell out, it, the top two baby faces it going into the 90s in a Universal Wrestling Federation would have been Dr. Death Williams and Eric Watts. Yeah. I mean, that that is completely uh, completely true. Because who knows if Eric Watts, I mean, they probably do him like they did Doc. He plays at Louisville, and then in the summer, he goes and wrestles. Mm-hmm. They probably use that template and, and put in him and Doc like or maybe a tag team in that way. Maybe. How different is Eric Watts' career if Bill Bill doesn't sell? You know, I don't know. I don't know because then at least he's in a territory of sorts. He's at home. Yeah, it does make you wonder. Hmm. They're giving Yoshiro Takayama a face lock submission that's close to his to the old Iron Claw, which was a legendary move in the '60s when French Von Eric was Giant Baba's big rival. And whatever, all these guys are about to leave anyway. Yeah. All right, New Japan. There's supposed to be some major changes in the hierarchy of the company at the stockholders meeting at the end of the month. The speculation is that Antonio Inoki will gain more power when the dust settles. Yes, he does. And this is the change that's coming. As Sushanita's asked for his match with Ricky Choshu at the Yokohama Arena to be an empty arena match with the idea it would hype as something special. Since this will be New Japan's first tip in doing a live pay-per-view. The problem is it would kill live ticket sales. They're charging nearly $200 ringside for this show. If fans know they aren't going to be able to see the main event, and right now there's still more money to be made, selling live tickets because not enough homes are equipped in Japan for pay-per-view to ignore the live house as they are in this country. Onita said he would do his most dangerous explosive-style match in Tokyo on July 20th, 10 days before this match. He also wanted Choshu to appear at his show on June 18th in Chikasaki. Ah, that Onita. Always grandstanding. What can you say about him? Yeah. He learned from the best, I guess. Yep. Cookie City Gym on June the 1st in front of 2500. It's a TV taping. That's run the best of the Super Juniors Tour. Shinya Makabe defeated Kid Romeo in your opening match. Then Minoru Tanaka beat Hiroshi Tanahashi. Then we have a tournament match. El Samurai beat Dr. Bano Jr. Then we had Jushitana Liger, Kendo Kashin, and Kasumi Yasuda defeat Koji Kanemoto, Shinjiro Otani, and Minoru Fujita. That sounds like a hoot. Shiro Koshinaka and Kenzo Suzuki defeated Tadalya Suda and Black Cat. That doesn't sound like a hoot. No. Then we have Kensuke Sasaki and Takashi Izuka over Tetsu Shigoto and Michi picks Freedom Dogs. Yeah. And, and then our main event, Masahiro Chono, Scott Norton, Hiroshi Tenzan, and Shizuchi Kojima, T2000, defeated G-Eggs, Manama Nakanishi, Yuji Nagata, Brian Johnston, and Yutaka Yoshie. 
if I'm not mistaken, this may have been a uh, SXW TV taping. So New Japan Strong Style Extreme Wrestling on ESPN Japan. Yes, uh, that's right. By the way, I pulled up uh, the Pro Wrestling History page for Super Juniors to see the full field and what the points ended up being and stuff. Uh, this is some of the more egregious errors I've ever seen on Jason Campbell's website. Because the B block has two of the people in the tournament being Katsumi Ueda and <laughs> not Minoru Fujita, but Kazuyuki Fujita. Of course. Ah, wonderful. <sighs> Budokan the next day, before about 10,000 fans, we had the Super Junior Tournament matches. Katsumi Yasuda defeated Kid Romeo with a crooked head surgery submission in 616. That's a match you never would have guessed happened. <laughs> Grant Hamada beat Koji Kanemoto at armbar in 13 minutes. And Shinjiro Tani defeated Minoru Fujita with a lager bomb in 946. Osamu Nishimura returned. It was first match in more than a year, coming up for testicular cancer, and he lost to Tatsumi Fujinami in 1129 with his old Cobra Twist submission. This is uh, Nishimura in his Muga gimmick, which he would maintain for years after. This is the beginning of him making it his persona, although it, yes. really, it really takes hold after he starts training with Dory Funk Jr. in Florida. Yes. Because you watch Nishimura in the late 90s, it's a totally different guy. He's kind of adrift. He's just kind of a generic mid-card heavyweight. Yeah, but he's colorful, and he's a good baby face. But, but yeah, he's colorful just, and stuff. There's just nothing for him, yeah. So he uh, just decided to yeah. become completely unique relative to the rest of the roster, and he got over pretty big. And he's one of the highlights especially, of New Japan for the next several years. Especially in Anokiism era, absolutely. He's mm -hmm. the opposite. Yes. In other top, in other top singles matches, Masahiro Chono defeated Yuki Takayoshi with the STF in 1358. Takashi beat Yuji Nagata in 1658 with a choke. Man Vince Sasaki retained the IWGP Championship over Manama Nakanishi with an online bomb in 2014. Match said to be better than one would think from these two, as it was said to be a good power bout. Sasaki suffered two legit two broken ribs in the match, had to be checked out after the match in the hospital, but didn't miss any shows. Nakanishi, after the match, vowed he would get Naoya Gao in a torch rack if he could get him in a singles match. After the match, Sasaki issued a challenge for Shane Yashimoto to return to New Japan to get his next title shot. And New Japan held a 10-count memorial ceremony for Jumbo Shiruta at this show. Since Jumbo just recently passed away. Uh, looking at the results, uh, we got the junior, junior best super junior matches. Matches we missed. Kendo Kashin and Tatsuto Takiwa defeated Jushin Tanelaga and Minoru Tanaka in 2 minutes and 58 seconds. Gee, I wonder why that match was so short. Because Kashin's in here, and they just did the pride angle. Then we had Scott Norton and Tenkoji over Shiro Koshinaka, Junji Arata, and Kenzo Suzuki. And then all the other matches that we named. Um, Dave talking about Sasaki and Nakanishi being better than you would think. Again, let me let me do this again. Late 90s or early 2000s, New Japan Heavyweight Wrestling is severely underrated by the internet fans. It's really fun stuff for what it is. It's not all Japan, but it didn't need to be all Japan. It needed to be different. And it was different. And what so, really, I think, got people to start to warm up was the all Japan feud later in the year. Because, you know, when Kawada has the initial match with Sasaki at the Dome in October, it's worked like a New Japan style match. It's not worked like an all Japan style match. And the, th and the thing is, too, is it, I mean... Is it, are they great matches? No, 
but they're entertaining, they're different, and they're fun. So I I, I enjoyed that. That, that. that 2000 G1 I thought was really good. Especially the Sasaki Nakanishi stuff. And that one, I mean, yeah, they're like Riki Choshu clones, but they're big Riki Choshu clones. They're out there who are actually better workers than Riki Choshu was. Riki Choshu was a hell of a worker, but he was different. I mean, he was all about the heat and all about all that type of stuff. These guys are doing a little bit more, and they're more powerful. So, yeah, good stuff. Go back and watch that stuff, folks, if you get a chance. At the show in Kamioka, which is a day after the Pride show in Nagoya, the press asked him to question about the Pride Seibu Dome show. He pretended that he wasn't Tokumichi Suzawa and claimed he was playing Pachiko all day the previous day with El Samurai and Yuji Nagata and Osaka, and they all went out afterwards drinking beer. <laughs> I love it. Isn't it canon, that though, that he is Tokumichi Suzawa? Yeah, but there was no, not, well, no, not this time it wasn't. Okay. It's not until it after. Was, it, it was, but it wasn't. Let's put it that way. It's you know like it's like Katara Suzuki be Kotaro. Excuse me, Suzuki being Mushiking Terry, kind of. No, no, it's kind of like um, it, it's kind of like how uh, you know, it's a nod, wink, nod, nod, wink, wink, in a mm-hmm. way where you have a guy who has like a mass alter ego, kind of Mister Lampy and Jerry Stubbs. Well, that was a little more explicit. I was going to say Elias and Ezekiel. Well, none of them's wearing a mask or Abyss and so. okay, Abyss and Joe Park then. Oh, that's a little bit better. On the June 7th house show in Imabari, after Ken Nakashin lost, it was knocked out of contention for one of the best super juniors by Otani. Otani shook hands with him and afterwards told him over the PA to do his best representing New Japan in pride. <laughs> Otani said, fuck you. <laughs> I'm going to expose you. That, that, <laughs> that is the Enochism way of saying, bless your heart. <laughs> and, yeah, God bless Shinjiro Otani. Uh, I haven't heard anything new, new on him, but still paralyzed from the waist down. And no, it was uh, neck down, wasn't it? Neck down, waist down, still paralyzed. Yeah. You know, and God, he's just one of the all-time great professional wrestlers, and uh, just sad that sad that this happened to him. Absolutely, yeah. and hope pl- he, uh, hope somehow gets better. And I do hope people learn from this, though, and not do stuff as needless as a German suplex into the buckles, please. Especially his age, too. Yes. Good lord. Where he can still really work quite well for his age, but he did not need to yeah. do something like that. Yeah. All right, indie time. Big Japan Pro Wrestling, June 2nd, Nagaoka Welfare Hall, in front of 1459. Masayoshi Motegi and Electro defeated Fantastic and Ryuji Ito. Oh, here we go, Vix. Yoshiko Tamara and Kyoko Ichiki over Miss I, Genki, and Marcella. So we got Neo on the Big Japan show here, Vic. In an 18-minute match. Love it. Kamikaze and Shimi Masasaki defeated men's club members, men's tail, and Daisuke Sakamoto in a 24-minute match. Then Shadow WX and the Winger defeated uh, Skinheads, Abdul Kobayashi and Takuba Benke. White Beater beat Jun Kasai. And then our main event for the Big Japan Tag Titles, Zandig and Nick Gage defeated Tomoki Homa and Ryuji Yamakawa to win the championships. And uh, yes, I remember this stuff going on, and boy, were the Big Japan fans pissed off when these CCW guys beat their uh, beloved pillars of Big Japan to become champions and how they would just take over the whole promotion. Because, I mean, also, like, on top of everything else... Like, 
whatever you want to say about how well the CCW guys were or weren't trained by Zandig in that era, Nick is a rookie. He's barely out of his first year in the business. Why? Like, why? Like, this. Especially since they may not have had as cool looks or anything, but at the time, IWA certainly has the better working deathmatch wrestlers of the two big American deathmatch promotions. Big, you know what I mean? The two main American deathmatch promotions. Yeah. But things happen. So there you go. All right, FMW. They ran Fukushima City Gym on June the 5th in front of 1,800 fans. We have Chuckleball Mukai and Flanky Chihara going to a 15-minute draw. Kori Nakayama over Emi Murakawa. A three-way, Katara Kanemura defeated Azusa Kudo and Yoshinara Sasaki. Then we have Jado and Gato over the team of Michael Shane and Ruben Cruz. I'm assuming Ruben Cruz is one of the other TWA guys using a different he name. He was. Is it, yeah. Who is it? Fast Eddie, maybe? Um, I think it was just a guy that never did anything. Okay. Um, because there were some of those guys that didn't become much of anything. Oh, like uh, your John and, Hope and... Yeah, in fact, like, like if you go to the cage match, he doesn't have a profile. So, um, and then our main event, H, Tetsuya Kuroda, Hiskatsu Oya, and Ricky Fuji defeated Kota Fuyuki, Goemon, Kyoko Inoue, and Hideki Asaka. And of course, H being Iji Izaki in his, uh, handsome attire here, I call it, call it. As the rock, he's a kind of. He's a mast, yeah, he's handsome. So, that's FMW for our week. Osaka Pro. They ran June 3rd at Nagata Phase, or Fraze, I call it Phase, front 290 fans. Super Demican over Takashi Tachibana. Policeman over Shusaku Wada. Kachimbo Kamen and Monkey Magic 2 over Ebison and Kaiju Zeta Mandora. Yoshida Sugimoto over Super Demican, doing double duty. And our main event, Masada Yakusuji, Nerhoshikawa, and Super Delphin over Violence Party members, Black Buffalo, Dio Qualt, and Dick Togo. So, love me some Violence Party era Osaka Pro. There you go. Toymon, they ran their biggest show ever at this point in time on June the 4th at Kobe World Hall before Pat House at 6,500. Where the main event saw Tiger Mask 4 and Great Sasuke. Go against uh, Sumo Dandy Fuji and Shima, where the losing team will wrestle each other in either a Caballero contra Caballero or Mascara contra Mascara match. Tiger Master Sasuke won. Shocking. Leaving Shima to beat Sumo Dandy Fuji, who got his head shaved. Again, shocking. Also on the show, Sua retained the NWA Worldweight title, beating Dragon Kid. And Yoshikazu Taru beat Makoto in a Illusion Leave Town match. Funny how that worked out because. After this, a certain Darkness Dragon would show up. I wonder who that could have been. Hmm. This crowd for such a tiny promotion shows what happens when fans believe the stipulations advertised actually mean something. I mean, that may be part of a here, but as we would see, Torimon would draw gigantic in this building for every year because Kobe was their home base, basically. Kobe Chicken George was their... Like, uh, I wouldn't say their Cork and Hall because they ran Cork and Hall, but it was like their their venue. It's like their full sale university or their daily's place, so to speak. Yes, and uh, Makoto Saido takes about three and a half months off and comes back in September as a, as Darkness Dragon. 
Yes. All right, results. In the 24th match of Kenichi Arai's Repursuit of Knowledge, <laughs> he beat Ryo Saito in your opener. Then we have Saito, all caps, Genki Horiguchi, and Daioka Uchi over Masaki, Masaki Mochizuki, Yoshishikanda, and Susumu Mochizuki, M2K. Aja Kong beats Stalker Chikawa. Uh, this is the one where he comes out doing the Gracie train, right? Yes. <laughs> Look, some, some fantastic stuff in this era with Stalker. Then we have uh, Taro Makoto, Silver Dragon Kid, Sasuke Tucker Mask 4 with Seaman and Fuji, and then Shima with Fuji in the hair match. Yes. Uh, this was a big deal, this show at the time. This was when I started getting into Toribon. It was right yes, here. Me too. I think I, st- I think I started getting it regularly the month before, but yeah. Like, I had watched it's some, fantastic. but yeah. yeah. It was so, such a breath of fresh air. And... Because it was so different. Yeah. It was so different to every other promotion in Japan. And we already had, I mean, junior heavyweight based promotions like Michinoku Pro and Osaka Pro. But Torimon just had, it, it was the coolest wrestling promotion in the world. With the gimmicks and the music and the. It's just cool. Yeah. Everybody's young. Everybody's young and they're just going boss the wall. Yeah, it was fantastic. Everyone's got a distinct personality and a distinct gimmick. It's, you know, it's kind of what a lot of people thought AEW was going to be at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that, but I get where you're going with that. Yeah. Um, All right. I was just yeah. going to say, too, and also just you look up and down that, you know, between both the Dragon Train guys and the outside guys. What a crew. Like, some of these guys are just all-time, like, underrated great wrestlers. I would say especially, like, the non-Dragon Train ones, like... Makoto and uh, Masaki Mochizuki, you know, like, God, Mochizuki's still going now and still going. There's both of them. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it is both of them, yeah. But Mochizuki might even still be one of the very best wrestlers in the world, and he's, what, 50? Yeah, he's, I mean, he's a war trainee, for God's sakes. Yep. No, he wasn't even war. He was a, he was a Katao guy. Uh, Coach Katao, Katao, but he was a war, I mean, he was in war, though. He came up in war, yes. He was Buko Dojo. Yes. All right, Joshi time picks. Okay. Let's go to Zenjo. They ran a show in Tokyo, no venue list, on June 7th. We have Miwa Wakazawa over Miyuki Fuji. Kamiko Mekawa over Kayanomi. Manami Toyota over Momo Nakanishi. And Zaps, Zapai and Zap T defeated Passion Red. Yumiko Hota Nane Takahashi in your main event. And the Zaps are Tomoko Ma- Zap T is Tomoko Watanabe. Zap I is... I always forget. I always forget which who was... Because I remember, always remember, Zap T is the obvious one. It's Tomoko called Karuta. Karuta. Okay, there we go. Yes, it t- took me a second to remember who had an I name. Arsian. It's P-Mix time at Cork and Hall on June the 7th. Ooh. Where we have round two of the P-Mix Grand Prix tournament going on here. We have Yuki Ishikawa and Aja Kong defeating Subo Genjin and Gami Metal. Then we have Granamata and Aokohamata defeating Ikoto Hudaka and Akano. And then Minoru Tadaka and Yumi Fukawa, husband and wife, defeating uh, Alexander Otsuka and Mariko Yoshida. And then our main event was Gami over uh, Michiko Omakai. Very good show on paper there. And I'm sure, I know I saw some of the PMIC stuff at the time. That was. It was confusing if you were getting tapes in that era and you didn't know what to look for because they had P-Mix, which was the, I forget, was it Trade Intergender or was it Mixtag? 
Mixed tag. Okay, which was the mixed tag tournament, and which was your serious work rate tournament. Yes. But a few months earlier, I think it was March, they did the intergender two, what was it, two women, one man each team? One man, yeah. I think, in the trio yeah. tournament. And it was all Apex like, of Triangle? No, Apex of Triangle is um is the Mobius thing, right? That's right, yes, yes. But I forget what it was called. And that one, I think, was explicitly Battle Arts in RCN. And it's, like, all Yuki Ishikawa and the other guys doing, like, pervy comedy spots. <laughs> it's not good. Whereas the, But then you have PMX, and PMX was really good. And we also see here something that's kind of cool about PMX. And it, it makes sense because it's RCN and mostly Battle Arts people that the style mixes. But... Everyone is kind of paired off with who you think would be a good stylistic partner for them, pretty much. Yeah. JD! They ran Kitazawa Town Hall on June 1st in Tokyo. Abachi Azuka over Harumi Tori. Yuki Morimatsu and Sayendo over Princess Maru and Hiroyo Muto. Ran Yu Yu over Kazuki, all caps. And Yoshiko Tamura, Megumi Yabashida, and Ren Maru over Yuko Kazuki, the bloody. And Sachi Abe in your main event. What is it lately that we ha- we've had JD results in this era that we haven't had Sumi? I don't know. You know, because well, actually, good. I well, no, I was going to yeah. say because when when Kai was on a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, if we have JD, we can talk about Sumi because she's trained at you know Summit Worldwide Dojo and stuff, and Sumi was one of the coaches there. And nope. <laughs> so, oh well, maybe another time. JWP Ueno Hall in Tokyo on June the sixth. Azumi Yuka over Kanemasaki. Yoshiko Tamara over Yuka Nakamura. And there's this match. Kohei Sato over Tomohiko Hashimoto. Okay. Kohei Sato, that means zero ones on this distance yet. So who, where did he train? So Kohei, here's Kohei Sato. Kohei Sato was a um, shooto guy. Um, That's where he started. So um, was Sayama, well, is Sayama, is Sayama still shooto at this point or is he on his own? He's still Shuda. So, guys like Tiger Mask 4, Koichiro, Kimura, were they also being trained to, like, I guess Kimura you think of as being more Shudo shoot fighter, but, like, but see, all yeah, those but, really but, the same dojo Hashimoto, for both working and Shudo? That's what, shooting? That's what I'm asking. Hashimoto just debuted on the JPWA show, uh, beating Tom Burt in, hmm. in April. So... And he's a Koichi Kimura guy too. So, so at least on cage match, they don't have this, but they have the only thing I should say before zero one that they have for Sato is a Kingdom card in October ninety eight where he goes to a time limit draw with Tomoharu Fusei. Yeah, so he's in that world. So someone in the general like. Mixed shoot, but also knows how to work orbit at the time. So, but pro- probably somewhere in Takata Dojo or Shudo or whatever. But joins Zero One a year later, and, and that's when he starts making a name for himself. Yes. Rest of, the other two matches on this show: Command Bolshoi over Subasa Kurakagi and Grand Yu over Kyoko Hariyama. And then we have LLPW. They ran Corkin Hall on June 4th, headlined with a couple of interpromotional matches with Zenjo. In the main event, they had a rare double knockout draw finish 
where Manami Toyota and Zamoko Watanabe uh, go into a double KO with Rumi Kazama and Eagle Sawai, Black Joker. And then we have Miyuki Fuji of Ultraman Women teaming with Takako Inoue, losing to Keiko Ono and Shinobu Kandori of LLPW. Uh, the two matches on the show, Nareo Tateno over Ayakoyama, and Carol Midori and Serena Okuno over Harley Saito and Bazuki Endo. So, that's it for Joshi, Bix. No Neo this week. I know that... Uh, well, we had a Neo offer match in Big Japan. Yeah, we, we, we did, but it hurts your heart that we don't have a full Neo show experience during our week. But yeah. I'm sure that we will have one uh, very soon. So, uh, uh, do we have? Let your heart, let your heart be uh, eased with that news. All right, we, we got a couple other things here from Europe we'll throw in here. There's another promotional match of sorts in Holland. As Pancras champion Simi Schlitt defeated Yoshihisa Yamamoto of Reigns on June the 4th. The 6'11 Schlitt caught Yamamoto coming in with a knee to the head, which split him open. Schlitt was pounding Yamamoto from the top before the corner threw in the towel. Yamamoto is another long list of Japanese fighters who are fighting too often and destroying themselves in the process. Yeah. Of those of that crew, yes. Of those rings, ex- UWFI guys, absolutely. Absolutely. Tamara was the only like- one that escaped it. And it's not like he was a bad fighter either. No. Well, we got a uh, note from Holland here to close out this section. And so there's still an promotional bout of sorts. As Pancras champion Simi Schlitt defeated Yoshisa Yamamoto of Reigns on June the 4th in Holland. The 6'11 Schlitt caught Yamamoto coming in with a knee to the head, which split him open. Schlitt was pounding Yamamoto from the top before the corner threw in the towel. Yamamoto's another in the long list of Japanese fighters who are fighting too often and destroying themselves in the process. Yeah, a lot of those rings, UWFI guys that were starting to get into the shoot world were uh, not finding things going in their way doing that. And it's not like he was completely out of his depth either, but he... In fighting in general, I should say. He was fighting people he shouldn't have in way too often. Yes. And also, just Sammy Schill was going to be a tricky opponent for a lot of people, especially under anything that had anything resembling pro wrestling rules because of rope breaks and because he's so tall. Yeah, that does uh, help him in that way. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So, uh, after some great 2000 commercials, we'll come back and we'll go to other North America where we'll have a note from Stampede involving one of Bix's favorite wrestling names. And we go to Mexico where we got some AAA stuff to talk about, including Art Bar's brother talking about some stuff. Younger brother, that is. And uh, AAA invades Arena Mexico. All that and more after the break. KCCI.com, sponsored by Dolls, Internet Services by DWX, only from News Channel 8, Iowa's weather leader. At Florian Express, we don't take your trust lightly. We earn it. People make their decision based on beauty, and they sometimes don't worry about the performance issue until afterwards, until it's a problem. It's our responsibility as salespeople to keep people out of trouble. That's the trust factor. Some people have price, other people have service, but you need one place where you can devote, and that's Flooring Express. Flooring Express, where better floors cost less. 
If you've been thinking about improving your vision with laser vision correction, call Dr. Chris Denouden for a free consultation at 1-800-832-EYES. The Iowa Skycam Network, only on News Channel 8. Broadway's biggest night to shine, the Tony Awards Live CBS Sunday. When you start getting a migraine, you know it. You can feel the pain bearing down on you. Well, you should start fighting it fast before it gets really bad. With new Advil Migraine, the first and only FDA-approved migraine medicine in a liquid-filled form. It gets into your system fast. You can start controlling the migraine before the migraine takes control of you. Take Advil Migraine and take control. Am I on? <clears throat> Geico Direct could save you hundreds of dollars on car insurance. Result? Smaller bill. Geico. A 15-minute call could save you 15% or more. A typical car insurance agent is on the job during regular business hours. On the other hand, GEICO insurance professionals are on the job 24 hours a day. GEICO. A 15-minute call could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Hot. Too hot to cook. Now she was ready for something new. Noodle bowl. New from Uncle Ben. If you want help maintaining healthy joints, the makers of Tylenol proudly introduce Aflexa. Aflexa contains glucosamine, which can help promote flexibility. Try it for a month. Aflexa, do what moves you. Fish and chips. Brainwash. Rough and tumble. Brainwash. Brainwash gets out what America gets into. Now there's a new and improved Spray and Wash. Spray and Wash is better than shout at getting out greasy food stains like butter, hamburger grease, bacon, and more. New Spray and Wash. Keeping America clean and spotless. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. Join me and my friends Lucy and Mark Anthony. It's another chance to catch the hottest act in the coolest summer concert. Gloria Stefan, CBS Tonight. All right, we're back. And I hope you enjoyed all those great 2,000 commercials of the Fifth to the Halftime segment of the show. We're being talking about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And yes, we are in a new month, the month of June. So uh, the month of May. So the, the latest episode of Titan Gate come up, episode two, where we talked about uh, some stuff that we left off out on episode one with Murray Hodgson and, and the Ring Boys and all that type of stuff. But we ventured into other topics on this show, like the steroid scandal. We got in that a little heavier, and we got into uh, Chatterton for the first time and uh, her uh, issues with Vince McMahon that she talks about and uh, all kinds of other things in the show as well. So a different show than part one, although it has a lot of part one stuff in it, but a different show in part one. So everybody check that out. And you can get all that more for five dollars a month at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Of course episode one for is up there we did in April and all the other shows that we've done in the uh, almost six full years of the Patreon is up there now and uh yeah ECW of course stuff that we talk about on this show which we'll talk about after this when we get to ECW 
Uh, a lot of that's on uh, the ECBN TNM Patreon show. So, yeah, go check that out. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. Yes, uh, and actually before we get to the newer or returning patrons, we should note that uh, if you have not listened to those ECW on TNN and Death of ECW shows, then uh, be ready to hear Chris and myself at many, to- at many times throughout those podcasts say this to the uh, ECW talent of the time. You fucking mark! <laughs> yes yes indeed i mean that's literally uh, what we say <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah you'll hear about it later in this show too yeah uh, but all yes. right so, so dollar month gets you access to the discord and thanks in this segment then uh, of course the five dollar tier and then twenty dollars twenty five dollars a month gets you access to uh everything and you get able to pick a show for the week now um Make sure that you have two ideas handy to do that, two shows, that because somebody could have picked your week, and then you won't be able to do that. Or somebody may pick the show that you have wanted to do in the past, and you don't know, and it could have been a time delay or something like that, because we're getting into time now. We're seven years into the show just about, so... We've had to do a lot of time maneuvering over the years to make shows work. So you could forget about what we've done in the seven years ago or six years ago. So ask us questions. Make sure that, you know, everything can work out in your favor. Let us know why you want to do the show and uh, we'll make it work for you as best that we can because we want to uh, take care of our patrons. So you do all that. You follow the Patreon um, protocol on that 30 day rules in effect. Uh, get that in before 30 days of your show. Ten-year rules in effect, of course. Then you got Wednesday to Tuesday of the year that you want your show in, not the year of your show. And you follow that, we should be good to go. $50 allows you to send for a segment of the show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. At patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, real quick before we go, give thanks to our new and returning patrons. I have one of our patrons uh, DM me on Twitter. Saying that his he never heard his name mentioned on the show. Um, I mean, Patreon can be very funky when it comes to organizing things at times. Yes. Bix has had issues with that. So real quick, before we get into the list, I want to spend a special shout out yes. to uh, Jordan, J-O-R-D-E-N, the FTR card collector on Twitter. So mm. we want to uh, send a special thanks to him. Because he wanted to, he wanted us to thank him. He wanted to hear his name on the show. So, uh, yes. so I, I'll send that special shout out to him uh, all alone here on the on the halftime segment. Yeah, and if by some chance that happens in the future, you know, obviously depending on when we record halftime, I would I would say give it two weeks from when you sign up to, in you know, depending on our schedule, as far as when we might give the thanks. But if it goes like two full weeks and you don't hear it feel free to reach out yes so all right so we jordan we thank you all right so now let's go to the rest of the patrons that we're going to thank here so big so i think this week is our new and or returning patrons well our dear longtime friend keith harris uh went up to a hundred dollars because he wants to do in july uh the second noah dome show when he was in japan uh, 17 years ago 
Yeah, Keith hasn't been on a long time, so I definitely want to thank our friend Keith. Absolutely, and that should be quite the show to talk about. Yes. Uh, the returning Matthew Toy. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, SE Scoops uh, owner and Grand Pooba Michael Shalik. Thanks, Michael. Great websites, the Scoops. Yes, he he did it as a hundred a year, so I guess he. I don't. I'm hey, assuming he just did it as happened? extra and said it. Yeah, I mean, good. Thank you. Um, He's a good dude. Yes, yes, big fan of Mike. Uh, also went to annual subscription for. Uh, I always want to make sure I'm pronouncing this name right. I believe it's. I think when when we said it before, they said I got it right. I believe it's Hijalti uh, Nonison. Thanks, Hijalti. Yes. Uh, returning as well, Laron Mason. Thanks, Laron. Also, I believe returning Jared Cheek. Thanks, Jared. A new annual subscription from someone who I believe is brand new, Chris Tar, T-A-R. Thanks, Chris Tar. Yes. Yeah, last name, Tar. Yeah. And uh, finally, another returning patron, Brian Blake. Thank you, Brian. So thank all you new patrons, returning patrons, patrons that are from the beginning. Come along the way. We thank all of you for joining us at patreon.com slash the sheets. And yes, if you want to go annual, what's that, 5040? Yes, in American dollars. $50, $50.40 American dollars per year, 16% off, correct? Yes. 16% off. So uh, great deal for all you guys if you want to go annual at patreon.com slash tween the sheets. All right, Bix, it's time to talk about some IWTV, and they're always busy. Yeah. So what is catching your eye on IWTV this week? So I have not watched the Prestige shows from last week yet. They are on demand now. There were there were some live streaming issues because of the internet in the building, but they are on on demand now, which I presume means they uploaded the live edits because I don't think they would upload messed up versions. So those are up now, and I'm going to try to make a chance to watch those. Excuse me, make make some time to watch those soon. And now coming up this coming week, you know, we try, at this point we're trying to, especially with how many streams there are. Focus more on the stuff that is coming following when the show comes out. So That's like, correct. You know, last week we talked about the Black Label shows that have not happened yet as we record this, and, you know, you get the idea. So uh, Uncharted Territory Southeast first. Uh, this week is a loaded one on Monday, you know, the day this comes out. Headlined by AC Mack defending the Independent Wrestling World Championship against Speedball Mike Bailey in an interesting match. And, and, and speaking of AC Mac on the on demand, yes. the life of AC Mac is up that our dear friend John Philip Havage was a part of. So uh, he's done great work on these folks, and mm-hmm. AC Mac is definitely an interesting guy to uh, be talking about, especially with Pride Month going on and being openly gay and the champ- IWTV champion. So yes. uh, should yes. be quite the sh- quite the watch. First openly gay PWI recognized world champion. Right. Yes. Yes. And okay. Since you brought it up, I, I've asked some of our friends this before, and they, I think their answer was yes. But I'm curious, what do you think? Is AC Mac the first wrestler where the character is canonically gay, but does not have anything resembling a gay gimmick? Yes. There's nothing about his char- his character that screams stereotypical gay. Right, which, but my point is, though, is like, it's not just I mean, that the man, yeah. AC Mackey, is gay, AC Mack is also gay. 
Yeah, but the gimmick never really plays that up. I at mean, all. Yeah. At I mean, all. I mean, it just came out. I mean, it came out that way because he came out. I mean, yeah. that's what it was. I mean, it's basically AC Mac. The gimmick is AC Mac the person. So they're one and the same in a lot of ways. And that's it. So you got one, you know, that's that's gay and another one's right there with it. So, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just that simple. Yeah, that means... There's there's no stereotype or anything like that that uh, that would make people think, oh, that's he's gay. You wouldn't know unless you wouldn't know unless you knew. No, no. Which is great that it we're great that we can able to we're able to do that now. Yes, the only <laughs> the only reason I had an idea in the first place before he talked about it more was that he was on some of uh, he was on like a Mania weekend uh, like LGBT themed show. Uh, it was stuff ago. that it was stuff that people knew, but it wasn't. It was one of those things that w- it wasn't a big deal made out of it, you know. It's right. like yeah, I'm gay. I mean, when when, when people start talking about it, it's like yeah, I'm gay. Okay. Yeah, I remember. That's good. <laughs> I remember. I remember <laughs> when I think he hadn't. I think maybe he hadn't spoken about it before, but he. I think he tweeted about it for Pride Month like a couple years ago, and I remember Matt Griffin like quote tweeting it like. People saying, what, like, you haven't been paying attention? You didn't realize that our champion in action was an out, proud, gay black man? Because it wasn't in your face. You know, it wasn't being pushed in your face or anything like that. It was just something that... Like, he was... It was well, it I was wouldn't there. even say... I mean, he was out, but he was not... But it was not... He was not necessarily talking about it all the time, and that's fine. That's whatever. It was a shove down that. your throat. I mean, exactly. I mean... It was there, like it was. It was like it's a it's a normal thing, yeah, <laughs> as know? it should be. Yes. So, so that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, it's good that we have something like that going on, you know, where it's not something that just shoved down your throats. Right. It's it doesn't a, a have normal, to be part life. of. It doesn't have to be a gimmick, exactly. or part of a gimmick. Yes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, loaded episode of Uncharted territory in general. Though we've also got Jaden Newman versus Colby Carino. Uh, Kevin Koo versus Kyle Matthews, Robert Martyr versus Kevin Giza, Ace Perry versus Alex Kane, and more. So, very nice episode looking episode of Uncharted Territory coming up tonight as we release this. Um, so, then coming later in the week on. Okay, I realized I didn't switch it to just live because we have some premieres too of some Paradigm stuff, which. Uh, I think it was Shannon Hunter asked me on Twitter uh, the other day. At these marathon paradigm, tape, paradigm tapings that they're doing, has any announcer ever called more matches in a single night than the announcers on the paradigm tapings are? Now that they're up to like forty. Um, I mean those WF tapings, they were there in in the in eighty six, eighty seven. But they 80, weren't necessarily. But there weren't necessarily forty matches being called by the announcers live. No, though. I mean no, no. They take three weeks worth of TV. Plus, so, uh, you know, international, dark matches. Well, I'm not counting that. I'm just counting the, the TV. Well, that's not 40 TV matches, matches, though. No, that's what I'm saying. But, that, mm. I mean, that's what we know of yeah. that. But I would think that would be, be it for them. That would be the closest. Yeah, I would agree. Um, then what else? We've got Action Wrestling this Friday. Um, at least on the web. I'm assuming there's more that Action's announced on social. But at least on the IWTV site. The matches that are listed are AC Mack, if still champion, obviously, defending against Eric Royal, 
J.D. Drake versus Adam Priest, and uh, our dear friend Daniel Maccabi, Maccabe, I don't know why I said that, said it that way, taking on Anthony Henry. It should be a very interesting show. Wish yes. I was able to go. But yeah. and later, that, go. later that night, West Coast Pro is also back on Friday with, uh, what's this one called? 93 Till Infinity. We've got Jacob yeah. Fox. Go ahead. They got a load of show. I mean, they always do at this point, but this one's got but, a... I mean, but, 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 but good Lord, Takashita's on it. Yes. He's facing Speedball. Trey, Trey McGill against Jacob Fatu is on that show. Uh, Tom Lawler and AJ Gray is on that show. Vinny Massaro, Nick uh, Wayne, Brian Keith, Titus Alexander, Adam Brooks, Starboy Charlie, Kevin Blackwood, Levi Shapiro, West Coast Wrecking yeah. in action. That is a loaded show. Again... I think at this point, show for show, top for bottom, they are the top, top for bottom, top to bottom, they are the best independent in the country right now. They stack their shows, and who would have thought that the West Coast, uh, North, Northern California, would be would be the one leading the way at the moment. So yeah, it's yeah. crazy because everybody, because PWG is always the one that gets that talk, but Northern California, no cow. Well, like PWG, there. you know, they're not streaming soon. The shows aren't as frequent, yeah, so but, it's a but, little but different. Still, but still, when it comes to indies, though, I mean, they are considered the gold standard in many yes. ways for what they do. And, I mean, I know they don't run regularly, but, I mean, they are the gold standard when it comes to the, the big names. And, uh, yeah, Northern California's got something to say. Yeah, and with West Coast Pro, I also like that even for a promotion that is doing a really loaded super indie show, it still doesn't feel like it's um, it still doesn't feel like it's interchangeable with a similarly stacked indie. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it has its own flavor. You've got Vinny. You've got more of the just the West Coast guys in general. You know, they were the ones who booked. Uh, you know, Masha Slamovich, I don't know why I can't talk, Masha Slamovich versus Debbie Malenko. You know, it's it's a little different, and the production is great. You know, their streams are always flawless. So I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of West Coast Pro. Um, I really, really liked, was it the last show or the show before? The one that had uh, Bandito Fatu, though. I really liked that match. But uh, anyway, and then is there okay? Yeah, there's two more this coming weekend. Uh, TWE, our friends there, have a show as well on Saturday at 80 Stern, including Merck defending the title against Tank, Brett Eisen, Jan, Jaden Newman, uh, Daniel Maccabe, Robert Martyr, Brogan Finley against Noah Hossman, and more. So good-looking show there. And then finally, Beyond has Sunday. Their first uh, Please Come Back show in quite a while. Please Come Back 3. And it's being billed as Beyond Wrestling versus Wrestling Open with the feature matches, including Biff Busick versus Alec Price, uh, Willow Nightingale versus Rex Lawless, uh, Channing Thomas versus Slade, and more. So a lot of live streams this week. And uh, on demand, it looks like mainly, as far as archival, what got added this week was some uh, 2010s IWA Mid-South, if that's... That's something people are into. So, if you are not already a subscriber, independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD, and as long as you stay a paid subscriber, we will get a referral fee from your subscription. All right. There you go. Let's go to the next step of this. Private Internet Access. 
Today's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one and numero uno virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help you. Private Internet Access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PCMag. Can't beat that. Number one, the fastest. And what else do they have? They have unbreakable VPN security, strict no-law policy, ton of customizable privacy features. Trust that your data is protected by the most transparent privacy-focused VPN ever created. You can get access to up to 10 devices at no extra cost with dedicated private internet access apps for every platform, every browser, and every operating system. Zero restrictions, unlimited content with thousands of servers in undefined countries. You can easily access all your favorite content, shows, music, apps, and more regardless of where you live. Why choose private internet access, you might say? Well, we got that strict no-law policy. They don't record traffic or store any browsing data from the users. 100% open source. Software is completely open, making us one of the most secure and transparent VPN services available. Easy configuration. You get it up and running in no time. With private internet access, fast and easy setup process. Built-in ad blocking. They block ads, trackers, malicious websites for a faster, safer web experience. 24-7 customer support. Along with their extensive resource library, you can get in touch with technical experts by email and 24-7 live chat. Plus, you have advanced features like a kill switch, split tunneling, torrenting support, highly flexible settings, and so much more. Trusted by millions of satisfied customers. Millions, not hundreds of thousands, millions. And if you sign up with Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go over those deals, shall we? Monthly. Eleven ninety-five per month. Yearly, three dollars and thirty-three cents a month, which comes out to thirty-nine ninety-five per year, or the best deal you can get. Eighty-three percent off. Three years, four free months, one dollar and ninety-eight cents a month. Or seventy-nine dollars for three years. What a bargain. That's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. And if you get it right now, you can take it. The 30-day risk-free challenge that Private Internet Access offers you. Try it for 30 days. See if you like it. If not, just turn it for a full refund. So go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1991 where we'll – Go over World Championship Wrestling, where they have Clash of the Champions, 15 in Knoxville, featuring Ric Flair and Bob Eaton in the main event, and uh, Lex Luger and Great Muda in a controversial uh, match, and uh, all kinds of other things going on. New Japan uh, has quite the presence on this show, so to speak, and they may not be too pleased with it. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll have all the stuff from uh, the indie scene, and, of course, Jerry Lawler is making his return to Memphis after some time off from, from sudden injury. We'll talk about that. We'll have news on the 
Global Wrestling Federation and what's about to happen with them. And a lot more there. Then we go to Mexico. We got some uh, Europe here. We got Canada. We got, of course, stuff in Japan to talk about. They got some tours going on. And we got World Wrestling Federation to talk about. Where And World Bodybuilding Federation to talk about. The first WBF show, which was not on pay-per-view. So we'll talk about that. And WF, we got the Dr. George Zaharian trial about the ramp-up. And Dave Meltzer was on John Arancy's Pro Wrestling Spotlight talking about that. So we'll have uh, news on that. But the big story of our week, Herb Abrams, UWF Beach Brawl, 91. First time we talk about this show on the show. And to talk about that with us, it, when, on the end of this week's show, which was recorded obviously before halftime, we weren't confirmed yet, but I safe to say we are confirmed now, making his return to the show next week. And what a great topic uh, and stuff to talk about with him on the show. Dave Prezak, next week on Between the Sheets. to talk about Herb Abrams. Always a good time. So uh, should be quite the entertaining show. So everybody check that out when that comes out next week. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on in your world this week? Yeah, I should have two articles at uh, Fanbyte. There's one that almost surely is up by now because they already paid me. I think it's going up the Friday before this comes out. Um, the title, at least as it is in the invoice payment notification thing I just got, is All Right, Guys, We Get It. You Love Bret Hart. <laughs> Basically... <laughs> Going over, <laughs> I knew that would pop you. Um, the trajectory everything has taken with the, uh, you know, the much warranted and overdue Bret Hart has it be- influence. Has it become ironic now? Well, that's kind of. I wouldn't go say that per se. Are get, are, but are we getting to that point? I think so because as I go into the article, like it's one thing to lift the beginning of Bret Hart versus One Two Three Kid, or do a match even even to do a match like Dax versus Cash that is so consciously a love letter to Brad and Owen Hart that's you know consists of so many you know, like notable sequences from famous Brad and Owen matches it's another thing to do even that but to to completely yank one of the most famous finishes of Bret Hart's career for a pay-per-view main event weeks after the 30th anniversary of the match when it was on a lot of people's minds more, that's a bit much as far as Punk Hangman and uh, Bret Piper. So go into that there. And then also, uh, not sure if it'll be up yet by the time the show is up, but I'll have something looking at uh, kind of the history of the shoot angle, so to speak, and how it's evolved and devolved over the years in light of, yes, you guessed it. You fucking Mark! <laughs> it's quite the, quite the uh, weekend in uh, All Elite Wrestling and uh, stuff going on. What there, makes absolutely. you say that? Quite the weekend. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, nobody sent me any DMs about this. I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot going on. What can we say? I mean, there's um, there's stuff that can be said that can't be said. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it, – it made for exciting television. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, even though – who? I mean, 
as we record this, the ratings drop, the quarter hour ratings, which tell a story, possibly. So, I mean, there's a lot going on. A lot going on. But uh, the Dynamite was a hell of a show. Pay-per-view was a solid show. At some points, great. Some points, not so great. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, they got a lot going on. That's all. Yes. I mean, that's what we can say right now. It's not, it's not boring, so to speak. So uh, we'll see where they go from here. But uh, well, we should yeah, also quite, single quite out the time, quite the time in all the wrestling. I tell you what, I mean, is they're interesting, and that's something you definitely can't say about WWE right now. Oh. No, um, they're not should, interesting. We should single out though too the uh, return from his years long hibernation of our dear friend Stokely Hathaway as well. Absolutely, yes. Yes, Malcolm Bivens was around, but Stokely Hathaway hasn't been around. So no, although although for some reason Stokely Hathaway, I believe, is still using uh, Malcolm Bivens' Twitter handle until he can make sure he can get uh, re-verified. I'm guessing. I guess. But anyway, yeah, I don't want to get started on the weekend. So that this show is long enough as it is. All right, well, that is it for us this week. This week. This after this this segment. I'm thinking about the end of the show. That's it for us this segment, so let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to North America now and we begin in Canada real quick as we have a note from Stampede Wrestling, where Tiger Khan beat Principal Richard Pound on June the second in Calgary to win the British Commonwealth mid heavyweight title. To set up Khan, who is said to be the best worker in the territory, against Sabu. When he comes in, on June the 8th in Stettler, Alberta. You just talked about Dick Pound the other day, Bix, and here he is. Mm-hmm. Um, Tiger Khan was a New York guy, interestingly enough. I'm not really sure how he ended up in Calgary in the first place. But he was considered, yeah, I mean, he was considered kind of the best up-and-coming worker around here, too. And then he somehow ended up in Calgary and was considered the best of the guys in the new Stampede in this run. And unfortunately, he had some personal issues that probably derailed his career and definitely cost him his life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how much I've ever actually seen him wrestle. I'm sure I've seen some of the Stampede, st- stampede stuff. Yeah, I mean, he was a guy who, uh, he was kind of a name that was uh, out there as somebody that could have been, you know, doing something uh, in the future. But, um uh, yeah, he uh, wait, wasn't he like a steroids? What was he when he battled steroids? Maybe that sounds familiar. Um, I'm checking the Slam Wrestling obit. For, could he? Jeez, 2006, 16 years ago. Um, so does it say how old he was here? Five ten, two hundred pounds from Queens. Fan since he was twelve. Started training at sixteen. Oh, he started in eighty nine. Wow. Okay, he was around longer than I thought, too. Um, Died at 33. Yeah, yeah, so he was 16. Yeah, okay. So he's 16 when he breaks in at Gleason's, you know, with uh, Bobby Bald Eagle as his trainer at, you know, Johnny Rods' place and others who, excuse me, broken at the same time with him were Jason Knight, Falcon Coparis, Shark Attack Kid, Sonny Beach, and Primo Carnero III. That's a group of people. Yeah. Uh, Harry Smith told Slam, Khan was around at a, time, at a time when a lot of the Stampede roster didn't have much experience. Quote, he was a guy that was sort of a leader in the back, sort of a veteran that everyone could come to for advice. He really helped out a lot of guys, and he was probably the most experienced wrestler 
he means in the territory at the time. He really helped elevate guys like Greg Pistol Pollock and Hotshot Johnny Divine, myself, TJ Wilson. He was always a really good hand to have. TJ Wilson concurred with his former tag team partner's recollections of Khan. He would teach all the guys. He was more experienced than most of the guys that were here. He definitely helped them out a lot traveling on the road. The time I was on the road with him, he helped me out quite a bit. He was totally the locker room leader. He had a pretty good mind for everything, I thought. Yeah, and he, uh, I mean, he toured the world on Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, England, Wales, Trinidad. He uh, made a show against Jerry Lawler, a show promoted by Michael Hara. Um, Yeah, I mean, he was a guy who, you know, had a name, but yeah, died tragically way too young. And steroids is linked to the reason why he died, basically. So I think he died of a heart attack, so... Yeah, if you're a wrestler dying of a heart attack at 33 without any uh, other factors, that's kind of assumed to be the reason, especially in that era, which, God, I mean, Meltzer mentioned on Twitter recently when there was that pro-steroid troll account tagging him, not that we're still not seeing wrestler deaths and still a decent, you know what I mean, what I mean decent, a, a relatively large number at younger ages, it is not what it used to be. No, thank God. Yeah, thank God. And yes, I did just to remember to mute my phone just now, by the way. Um, but Thank you. I, I, like I've told Chris off air, it's that I, ever since I got this Galaxy S22, it's that it doesn't um, – you can't queue up the mute uh, – the notification sounds and the ringer from the volume controls. You have to go into the top thing, and I am still not used to doing that. From if the only you had an iPhone, all you had to do was – you know, well, it has a hard it, it, mute button, yes, which yeah. <laughs> which I, I love the idea of. Um, yeah. Well, it's a switch, right? Yeah, it's right down the side of the phone. All you have to do is press down and then press up to unmute, yeah. <sighs> they must have trademarked – they must have patented that in some specific way that it's not on Android phones, I would think, right? I guess so. Um, but anyway, yeah, TigerCon and the steroid – yeah, it's like it has changed so much. You know, yeah. with the steroids that, like, again, people are still doing steroids, but there are very few people who are egregiously overdoing steroids, it seems like. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Mexico now. What a segue from steroids to Mexico. Uh, let's go to AAA. Interesting angle in the June 4th AAA tapings in Sonora. During a tag title match where Abismo Negro and Electro Schultz defended the tag, Mexican national tag titles against Hector Garza and La Parca Jr. As El Abrije, a Tenico who seconded Garza and Parca, turned on Garza and knocked him out leaning to the pin. However, at that point, another El Abrije, the real one, came out and amassed the imposter as Toro Irasan, one of the kickboxing crew. This is a theme that you're about to see here in just a minute as we go along. Uh, results of this TV taping, what we do have, we have Mascarilla Sagrada 2000 and other Concito over a Mini Abismo Negro and Rocky Marvin by disqualification. Mascara Sagrada, Oscar Sevilla and Torero over Espectro Jr., Mocho Cota and Toro Irasan. Then we had the tag title match. And then El Abrije, Pero Goyo Jr. and Heavy Metal over Cibernetico, Sangre Chicana, and El Tejano in the main event. Then they had another TV taping. That was in Nogales, Sonora. Then they had another TV taping two days later in Hermosillo, Sonora, where we have uh, the same minis. No result listed there. 
We have La Parca Jr., Oscar Sevilla, and Rayo de Sonora. Going against Especho Jr., Resplendor de Sonora, and Tejano. Hector Garza against Toro Irosan. And our main event, Alabrije, Paraguay Jr., Evan Metal, and Mascara Sagrada. Of course, it's the AAA version, not the original. Against Abismo Negro, Cibernetico, Electro Shock, and Sangre Chicana. So, uh, there's your AAA TV tapings for the week. Toro Irosan getting the uh, big push in this era here as the leader of the kickboxer group. Interesting faction in AAA. Yeah, they're still time. kind of rebuilding. Yeah, it's different, to say the least. It's different. Now, this is a story that I totally forgot about, so I didn't notice. Sean Barr, brother of Art, is telling people he's going to Mexico to wrestle under the name of Love Machine, which was Barr's gimmick when he became arguably the best Rudo in the business working in AAA. That does not happen. Wasn't there someone else that started using Love Machine briefly in Mexico in this time frame, though? There may have been somebody using That's come up name. in results? Like, I'm guessing it's not John Barr, but... No, no. I mean, there may be, possible. But, um, no, it definitely wasn't him. Now, he did, he did become a wrestler. Okay. He has wrestled. Um, in, in the Pacific Northwest. But, um, but no, and I think there's another brother. That wrestled too, a, a younger brother, Josh. I think he wrestled. Another younger brother, you mean? Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, at least on Lucha Wiki, the only lesser-known relative they have for Michonne as a wrestler okay. for the for for art. Yeah. All right, CMLL. They're building towards a the biggest show in Mexico City since the Conan Cien Carlos match on 1993 at the Plaza de Toros. The same building AAA sold out for that match. We nearly 50,000 fans. Of course, we talked about that a couple weeks ago between the Sheets. Triple Mania won. The show is built for June 17th as a AAA versus CMLL future. Padrissimo, right? Yeah, Father's Day special. The matches haven't been announced yet, but a press conference will be held this week with Bapaco Alonso and Antonio Pena. Apparently, there will be both AAA versus CMLL matches along with matches where wrestlers from both companies team up. Now... This all got kickstarted on June the 2nd at Rio Mexico. As we have uh, Negro Casas, Felino, and Antifaz del Norte going up against El Satanico, Ribo Cunero, and Otomo Guerrero. All of a sudden, AAA wrestlers, Los Vatos Locos, Cobarde, Tejano, and Sacre Chicano surrounded the ring, which led to CML wrestlers, Atlantis, Viano Tercero, and Miss Niebla coming out in a wild situation. Televisa, which carries both promotions on television, both whom air in a three-hour block on Tuesday nights on Galavision in the United States, has been wanting this sort of show for years. But both sides have been uncooperative at different times in keeping it from happening. News of the joint show was carried as one of the lead sports stories of the past week on Televisa Network News. It's believed the car will air on the few-way tape today in the United States on Galavision. This was crazy. I mean, because it's something that nobody thought would ever happen. Nobody. Because of the hatred between Paco Alonso and Antonio Pena. And the fact that... And see, that's not even the big angle. I think the big angle was maybe the week after. I'm, I'm going to check real quick where this, the AAA guys come out uh, in mask of the CMLL guys. And oh my god. Yes. June 9th. Yeah, that's the one. Um, this is the first one. June 9th, which is the week after our week, was when... Um, they had the big angle. All right, so let me see who all who were the particulars here. 
Um, it was Rosa de Plata, Emilio Chávez Jr., and Negro Casas against the Guapos. Shocker, Scorp- uh, Scorpio Jr. and Zimbito. Then all of a sudden, these guys come out wearing masks of like Atlantis and Fuerza Guerrera and Felino. They come out there and start attacking everybody in the ring with no, uh, you know, preferences, which is odd. And then here come the real guys come out there. And boy, you talk about a hot building. Rio Mexico was rocking as they knew what was going on here. And, and then the, the mask come off, and it was Abismo Negro and Cibernetico and guys like that under the mask. And then the other, some of the other AAA guys come out there. It ended up being with the CML guys brawled with the AAA guys out into the parking lot where the cameras followed. Fans were out there. I mean, it was fucking crazy. It's one of my favorite Lucha angles of all time. And all it, was, all it did was to build to this one-off show. Which only happened because Televisa forced the issue. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. Yes. And the way the show ends up happening, there are no explicit, you know, AAA versus CMLL matches. They are all AAA babyfaces and CMLL, well, AAA Technicos and CMLL Technicos against AAA Rudos and CMLL Rudos. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you don't get that promotion versus promotion deal, though, sadly. Um, I mean, I understand why it didn't happen, but it's sad that we didn't get that. But this was hot shit, and C- and CMLL has—I mean, they had just come off the Atlantis Viano Tercero match. They got momentum going on, and this just really kicks it up even more. And this is all. This is what you know builds up to them pretty much having a dominant run in the first half of the decade. He has one of the best promotions in the world, if not the best promotion in the world, is this year right here, 2000, and what was happening. So now yeah. the Mexico show. Well, and two, I was going to say 2000 also sees the whole Infernales feud brewing with the new Infernales, and, and then the split and everything. And and Shocker becomes you know a bigger deal. And of course, 2001 is when he really gets kicked off, but 2000 is the beginning of that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Rimesco on June 2nd was headlined by a non-step match with Pedro Aguayo over old rival Mascara Año de Samuel by DQ when Pedroff interfered and Viano Tercero made the save. Pedro beat Mascara Año de Samuel in the Caballero Contra Mascara match as a semifinal to the Conan Cien Carras match at Triple Mania that year. So there's your tie-in there. All right, results. Brandon and Filoso over Alan Stone and Motocross, Chris Stone. Then you get one of these confusing mini-matches as you have Fierito and Fire on the same team with Perofito beating Brasito de Oro, Ciclosito Ramirez, and Ultimo Dracancito. Then we have the Atlantis, I mean, Atlantis, Antifaz, Felino, Negro Casas, Infernales situation, which was a draw. Opolo Dantes, Tiancaras, and Perov over Atlantis, Missiniebla, and Viano Tercero, and Impero over Mascagna, and Yudosimil. So. You know, both for the booking and the role that Satanico plays in it, we really, especially now that we're more than 20 years removed, we really, as much as it was praised as it was going on for what it was doing and getting these guys over, we really need to look back historically, though, at that whole Nuevos Infernales into the split 
into Guerrero's Del Inferno versus the new New Infernales, that whole thing is some of the best booking anywhere of the last, you know, 25 years. Especially for making new stars. Yeah, it just, it had that, that tire dragging out, though, where they would turn somebody ruder, like Tarzan Boy, and it, it would take forever for them to finally do but it. But that's you know? MLL anyway. Yeah, that's the, that's the one drawback about stuff like that, yeah. But then once he finally finished turning, you know, I mean, yeah. think about it. I mean, you know, Guerrero, Bucanero, and Tarzan Boy all become much bigger stars. Um, You know, uh, I would say Shulker becomes a bigger star from his, you know, ancillary involvement as kind of as one of Satanico's replacement partners. Um, you know, like, uh, I guess Black Warrior benefits some too. Apollo Dantes is pretty much Dante, Dante's, well, uh, Dante's uh, is already kind of made well, by this I point. Well, I mean, I wouldn't even count them, but you got guys like Mascara Magica, Averno, Mephisto. That well, yeah, yeah. Well, I was going in chronological order, but yes, they're made. And But I would say it helped Shocker a lot too. Shoker. Some. Yeah. He already had his deal going anyway with uh, the Guapos and Emilio. So that was what really was his main thing. He did. He was, he I did. mean, but he was involved with Satanico too. But still, I mean, it was Tarzan Boy. Man, his, that was his feud. So that's the reason why he's you know aligned with Satanico because of that. Yes. But, um, yes. But still, like, think about like all, all most of those guys. You know, Mascara Mahika ends up flaming out a little bit. Mephisto sticks around, but not as a big a star, but still. Still going. But he's still, still around. And still main eventing. Think, think about how many different guys become main event level stars in Mexico off of that one program. Well, you get, I mean, and that even afterwards, you know, with some of the other guys that he he was involved with, you know, so. Yeah. And who else has a I, career year at 53 years old? He's still going now. Well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, he just he, he just had a pretty not want to say a big match, but he had a, a big title match with Atlantis a, a couple weeks ago in Guadalajara. So yeah, he's still he's still going, defending the, one of those Maestros championships at over seventy. Yep. Yeah. IWRG Super Colo team that was younger brothers, Alan Stone and Motocross for the first time ever. On Mexico Television on the uh, June 1st TV tapings. This would be for the, the ESPN uh, show. Man, man, that show saw Scorpio Jr. retain the IWRG heavyweight title beating Beyond 04. All right, the results we have here. Galaxia, R2, and Greta C3 over Colt and Slayer. Then we have Super Colo with Alan Stone and Motocross beating uh, Yo de Diablo, Mega, and Super Mega. Sneakon on Ramirez, Felina Viana Tessera over Bombello, Bombero Infernal, Dr. Sorebro, and Shocker. And then Scorpio Jean retained the, the IWRG Intercontinental Heavyweight title over Viano 4. Then the Sunday Owl Show on June the 4th, we have Aguila de Acero 2 and Aspeed over Asteroid and Slayer. Aguila de Acero 1 teamed up with Leon de Ring over Aladino and Zonic. Mega, Paramedico, and Super Mega over Island Stone, Bruley, and Motocross. Dr. Cerebro and Maniakop over Seaborg and Fantasma Jr. That's Io de Fantasma's brother, uh, Santos Escobar. And then we have Black Dragon, Fantasy, Motocross, and Starboy over Baron Fernand, Guardia, Official, and Vigilante in your main event. 
So the TV taping is definitely the more attractive of the two. Yeah, because it's got the similar guys on there. Because, I mean, they could work those shows fairly easily because it's Thursday. Yes. Thursday's not as in demand at that time because uh, Cornavaca is one of the main Thursday stops for those guys. It's about the Cornavaca. And then there's some other places here and there that would run on Thursday. But yeah. That's the easiest way for IWRG to get some of those guys on the show when they were on good terms with them. Yes. Tape the TV on Thursday. Yes. And 2000, you know, I know a lot of this is not all of it, but a decent amount of it's online now. Um, IWRG is one of the very best promotions in the world for match quality. Yes. Just t- especially since this is like the peak of having all of those like trademark IWRG specific guys in their primes. Like, Super Mega, Dr. Cerebro, Black Dragon, who fades away soon, Ultimo Vampiro, Bombero Infernal, Los Officiales in their prime, the Seiko and Ramirez, not even just the younger guy, but also like Seiko and Ramirez's comeback run. Like, they are loaded. And one thing I always remember, too, is, you know, from the uh, ESPN Dos Mexico coverage is they had, you know, ESPN-style graphics, and they would say, you know, what fall it was, who, who had won which falls, who were the Rudos, who were the Technicos. Whenever Super Colo teamed with his brothers, they were listed as Technirudos. Yeah. Because they were Rudos, but he was still a Technico, I guess, at the time. Yeah. Or, well, here, though, they're facing Rudo, so maybe not. But he he hadn't worked heel yet anywhere, had he, in 2000? Who's that? Kala. Um, Some. Okay, so he, he he might be the heel then. Okay. It depends on where they're at sometimes, what they do. Yes, but, yes, Fredo, if you're listening, please also just put more of the stuff that you haven't put on YouTube yet on YouTube. Yeah. Monterey. We only got one match from the Sunday Coliseo show. Scorpio Jr. beat Mr. Niebla by disqualification at Arena Coliseo. And then uh, Triple H show at Arena Solidaridad on June the 4th. We have Estrellita, Fabio Pachi, and Princess Shugi over Mato Villalobos, Rossi Moreno, and Tiffany. Los Payasos, Coco Azul, Coco Negro, and Coco Rojo over Mascaro Sagrado Jr., Oriental, and her original. Maje Negro Jr., Pacho Tequila, Pocho Jr., and Paquero Romo. Over Los Vatos Locos, Charlie Manson, Espiritu, Enigma, and Picudo. And then Dos Caras, yes, the father, Bill's brother, beat Jaddy Estrada by his qualification when he, after a foul. You know what's interesting so, about these Monterey results? What? Even though we don't have the Coliseo results. That at this point, at least, we actually have a lot of the same locals working both the arenas. Working on both the CMLL headline shows and the AAA shows. Because Pancho Tequila, I believe, is working for both at this time. Uh, I believe Sergio Romo Jr. is. Um, anyone else? Well, they, they they go back and forth. So I don't know if they're concurrent. I think they are at this time, though. They would jump okay. here and there. Delubios Negros would jump back and forth at times. Um, so like I said, some of these other guys, Potro... Uh, my Negro, those type of guys. I mean, it's back and forth a lot mm-hmm. of the time. And then you have you guys that just 
are strictly the CMLL affiliate affiliated and AAA affiliated talent. So there's that too. But anyway, that's Mexico. Puerto Rico. IWA Puerto Rico had two title changes on their June third show at Ponce. Andres Borges won the junior title from Ishmael Feliciano and Club WF. Andy Anderson and Steve Bradley won the tag titles from Nueva Generacion, Nueva Gran Apollo, and Ricky Banderas. Crowds for, have been up for the past week, past 700 mark consistently for the first time since the company opened up. Feliciano regained that junior title in Catania on June 4th from Borges. But anyway, back to June 3rd. We have Borges over Feliciano. Jesus Cristobal over Sean Hill. Chiqui Star over Fidel Sierra. Headhunter B over Payne. Urga Castillo Jr. went to no contest with Victor the Bodyguard. Glamour Boy Shane over Takamichinoku. Then you had the tag title change. And then the main event, Miguel Perez Jr. over Hombre Dinamita. Sabio Vega. So uh, there's your IWA show. And yeah, I mean, they're starting to... Uh, get traction here and starting to put up a, a strong opposition to double C. Yeah. Took some time, but I mean, really not that long. It's only been about a year. Cause I need to remember, even though the show started sooner, they don't really start airing them until 99. Um, so, but yeah, they're starting to pick up some steam. They have some good names and good talent. They have the WWF affiliation. So it'll come in time. Um, yeah, as we're about to get into double C. I mean, there's still a little ways to go. Yeah, I, I I love that we have a club WWF team who are the top, the best guy in developmental, and someone who people forgot was in developmental. <laughs> yeah. Um, double C. There's also a major controversy in Puerto Rico. Double C brought out a rookie tag team with a big push named Thunder and Lightning and dressed them up in costumes similar to Kane. Word got out, and Joe Briscoe, WF, contacted the office. The new the, the team the new team has since changed their costumes. No, they just changed the colors. So, did they wear black and red at first? I think so. Okay, okay. So here's the thing, but though. I think it was in reverse. It was like the cane road uniform. It was a black suit with a red trim, other than red suit with black trim. Okay, but. I did go looking for pictures recently. It is very hard now to find pictures online before they change the outfits to, from the blue cane outfits. So maybe they did change from those sooner than we thought, too. Yeah. Because I remember when we first saw the pictures originally, it was just straight up cane outfits with blue instead of red. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So results from the show on June 3rd in Carolina in front of 2,800 fans. La Familia del Milenio, Bouncer Bob and Bouncer Bruno over El Profe and El, El Inhabanajo. Then we have Invader 3 over Rico, Rico Suave. El Exotico over Black Boy. Street Fight, Richie Santiago over El Raquero. Then, then we have this match. Middle of the car. Carlos Colon over Big Date Dudley by disqualification. <laughs> sure. We have a steel cage match where Carly Cologne beat Jose Rivera Jr. Dutch Mantel and Bronco number one over Invader number one and Tita by disqualification. Universal Heavyweight title. Ray Gonzalez retained over Abdul the Butcher by disqualification. 
And then World Tag Title Match, Thunder and Lightning, La Terria Pesada over the Pitbulls. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So we, we got Big Dick Dudley in the Pitbulls here. No ECW comment. Representing the 2000 WWC. Yeah. Um, Dutch is wrestling, choices. so that tells you he's booking. Yeah, probably. This is a t- well, it's definitely Dutch because it's time period where he does that shoot interview with Feinstein in Puerto Rico. That's right. Okay, I forgot so, about that. So, yep. Anyway, there you go. Well, let's move on to Extreme Championship Wrestling, who weren't their own section this week. A lot going on here. Yes. Well, and we should say, if you want to hear about everything going on around this week, uh, patreon.com slash between the sheets, since this is also and the stuff around it covered on our ECW on TNN series. And this, this is on there, too. Some of this. Some of it's not. Though. Yeah. Paul Heyman, who hadn't appeared on ECW events as a hardcore pay-per-view, surprisingly, after missing the TV taping on June the 2nd in New Orleans, flew to Pensacola the next day for the house show for a lengthy ECW team meeting. The one-hour-long meeting was largely a pep talk, since most of the wrestlers hadn't even spoken to Heyman in a month. And with smaller crowds, slightly declining ratings, and late checks, morale had hit a new low. Heyman went through a story about where he saw the wrestling business in the United States headed. The theory he had was that WF and USA Network would settle their lawsuit before going to trial because both have so much dirt on the other that would come out in court that both sides' stock prices would drop and suffer public embarrassment. At that point, he figured USA Network would, a strong sum, would get a strong summit and WF would go to CBS and Viacom, moving Raw to TNN on Monday nights. He talked about the chance that TCW would get on USA Network or possibly even the Fox Network. The trial, that re- the results of which should be the catalyst for however the entire business is going to shake up, is scheduled to begin on June the 12th at the Delaware Chancery Court. Theoretically, it could be as long as 60 days after completion before the judge rules on the validity of USA's case. However, due to the fall season imminency and that the networks are involved, it's already late in finalizing a new schedule. That kind of timetable makes everything precarious. It should be noted that this is not without major risk to Vincent Mann because the Raw ratings will almost surely drop to going to a weaker station. Although with Raw being destination programming, how much numbers drop is up in anyone's guess as Raw and SmackDown both draw far greater numbers than anything on either USC or UPN. Heyman also said there's a possibility WCW could be out of business due to its money losses, leaving ECW as a number two company. It's still more like a scenario before WCW would actually be folded that it would sell even to its rivals at USA. That even with the red ink, USA would more than likely buy a group with the star power and stronger ratings at WCW than a company with no proven ratings power or star power, but obviously with a better balanced ledger. I don't even know about that. Uh, Heyman went on a long speech putting over the towel on everyone in the locker room with a noble section of Raven. He brought up that he would only take a free agent like Randy Savage to put over people already in the company. He said if he was forced to produce more hours of television per week, he'll need more talent. But with the only time being brought in, would have to put over the established wrestlers in the company. He said if business goes up, that he'll rip everyone's contracts up and sign them to more lucrative deals. And then he gets into the multi-channel news story that uh, we talked about earlier in WCW. So there's that. Uh, the meeting was in all hearts of flowers, though. Either Jerome Young or Jerron Ratner, New Jack and Balls Mahoney, asked Heyman about pay-per-view bonuses. ECW hasn't paid any pay-per-view bonuses in a long time. Heyman said the money was on its way. New Jack went to the window, pointed to the sky, and said he could see them coming. (laughs) 
Amos, if it was up to him, which it is that they would go on Tuesdays to avoid the competition from Raw. But he did say they have no choice in the matter. And if it's decided they would be on Mondays, he's hoping that they could do well enough on Monday to convince whatever network they are on to move to Tuesdays. He said a lot of the wrestlers in the company are out of the, are of the opinion that going to Monday nights head-to-head with Raw would be suicidal. Heyman also claimed he would never self-control an interest in the company. He said he would always have to control the wrestling aspect and it wouldn't be a company that would buy ECW's controlling interests. The reality of that is if a company did buy controlling interests and anyone from the outside made product decisions, the first thing they'd do is bring in Randy Savage, the free agent, make him the world champion because they wouldn't know any better and would know the Savage name. The same outside perception that almost guarantees no matter how the wrestling landscape changes, if any new company buys any old company between now and September, Hulk Hogan will have great leverage even without having any drawn power left. If anything were to happen to WCW, a company with decision-making powers would naturally gravitate towards signing the big names for WCW, who would be seen by nearly everyone as bigger names of the current ECW crew. This explains why support to the town of ECW to make sure they believe, even in the case above buyout, that Heyman would be in control of the creative end, with enough voting power to keep them from being forced out. Heyman claimed the reason the budget's been cut so far back and TV tapings hadn't even had television lights brought in the past two weeks is that because TNN broke their promises to ECW. He claimed he just they didn't want to spend money to make the product look good on TNN. He claimed that there was no money trouble, but also that he wants to get the company out of the debt by fall. Instead, it was because pay-per-view money tickets, or I mean, pay-per-view money trickles, and usually starting about 90 days after an event, and that's caused money to be short. This could have been a legit issue in the early days of pay-per-view, but with pay-per-view shows being done for years, the time lag and the money coming in shouldn't lead the company in a cash flow problem. At this point, almost no money is put in the promotion of house shows, which has led to the crowds falling, and this can't be blamed on TNN. The local promotion consists largely of flyers and posters put up by Lou D'Angeli, Louis Dangerously, Ken Reinhurst, Jack Victory, and Jim Mullineau, as well as ECW Street Team in each city. And whatever free real publicity in the local market, the promotional team can drum up. All right, then we'll get into the inside the ring stuff. But, uh, Bix, we talked about this on the Patreon show. Uh, again, we're going to direct people to go to that, patreon.com slash 20 sheets. But um, anything that you want to talk about here as far as uh, what we just read for people that may not have heard the Patreon show? No money problems, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what what is there even to say about some of this? He's delusional. He's delusional, and he's trying to he's trying to save face with his roster. Yes. And as again, please, please listen to the Patreon show. I mean, ain't that ain't that one of them free up in the feed? I don't know if it's this one or not, but something. But I mean, if there is one of those ECW shows that's up free for the in the feed, we have part that. one up in the feed. Part one is free in the feed, so go listen to that. Make your decision. Okay. Yes. If it's not in the feed, and I know I need, still need to do the thing to re-expand the feed again, then it's on the website on the Red Circle page. But we go deeply in depth in, in, on that show on this subject, and. Yes, we have some passionate takes about all this, especially how these wrestlers are getting conned by Paul Heyman. Because that's yes. what it is, a total con. Yes. It's much bullshit. And it's bullshit for months and months and months and months and months. So, yes. all right. So let's go to stuff that we really didn't talk about 
on the Patreon show, the inside the ring stuff, because mainly we focus on outside the ring. Everything was outside the ring mainly. Some in the ring, but mainly outside the ring. Um, New Orleans taping, well, not a lot of major stuff. A lot wasn't a lot of major stuff going on on the taping. It was headlined by Dreamer and Sandman over Rhino and Justin Credible. But after the match, the heels are beating on the faces until Rob Van Dam made the save. Tony Marinara, or as Dave has it spelled here, M A R A N E R A. Marinara. 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 Seems to have got himself a job with the sick bumps he took the previous week as he was working with the FBI and helped Little Guido beat Mikey Whipwreck. The new FBI also left Balls Mahoney, who ran it for a save, to set up Whipwreck and Balls as a tag team. They also set up a tag feud with Danny Doring and Roadkill against Simon Diamond and Johnny Swinger. It started with the Baldies, turning the beat on Angel this weekend, since Vic Grimes missed a weekend moving back to California, and he's done anyway, over Doring and Roadkill when Swinger and Diamond interfered. Swinger and Diamond then wrestled Nova and Chris Chatty, which saw Nova and Chatty win when Doring and Roadkill interfered. They also take the match where Scotty Anton beat Raven clean with a Scorpion Deathlock. Okay. Um, ECW is finally kind of improving and finding their footing, at least in terms of entertaining shows again in this era. But honestly, uh, Tony Mameluke is low-key one of the MVPs of ECW in 2000 in making those shows better. Yes. Yes. Whether it's a singles, whether it's the tag team stuff, he... He just fit in perfectly. He and Guido were immediately a really good tag team. He was much needed. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he has that same effect in Wildside a year a year later. Well, then two years later, 2000, 2001 into 2002. You know, joining that junior heavyweight division and really giving them, you know, a little gravitas and having somebody in there. And, I mean, yeah, he's he's... Very, very good there, you know, and, and being a veteran leading those young guys along. Well, he's not a veteran, though. That's the thing. He started in 98. He's a veteran to some of those guys. <laughs> and he didn't wrestle really in WCW, but still. He's a veteran to some of those guys, though. Yeah, he is. And he, and he was already just a polished worker. Yeah. Like, when you think about it, especially when he started and how little, like, major league or whatever experience, like, it, it is really impressive how good he was. And he had a little bit of a different style, you know, too. Yeah, so very, very unheralded guy in, in indie wrestling and over the years. Hell of a talent. But, yeah, the New Orleans taping didn't have a whole lot going on. That Pensacola show did, though, and not just inside the ring. As let's go there now. The house show of Pensacola was said to be a good show with an atrocious main event. After strong matches where Justin Krabble kept the ECW title being Jerry Lynn and Rob Van Dam beat Little Guido, here comes the main event. An eight-man tag of the Sandman, the Jerry, Tommy Dreamer, and Raven against Jack Victory, Steve Carino, Scotty Anton, and Rhino. At one point during the match, Sandman, who appeared in no condition to perform, but was still out there, falling all over himself, doing incoherent might work, including saying the reason Raven was seeming so miserable was because he'd been straight for 34 straight days. And finally, after getting everyone in the match mad because he ruined the match, it was described as one of the worst matches you'll ever see, he stripped to where he was totally exposed with Dreamer frantically trying to put his hand in a strategic place to keep him from seeing him, which was an impromptu spot, telling the audience that didn't understand that he was going to do what he did backstage, where he was running around naked wearing nothing but Roadkill's hat. 
He also tried to pull Jazz, who was fully dressed, against her will, into the ring after the match. It was described as funny for the first few minutes, but totally embarrassing quickly enough. In the real world, that would be cause for termination. But since he's been working drunk as his gimmick for years, the company in a sense can't complain when he goes into the ring in no condition to perform, because he borders on that state as his gimmick regularly. But this was said to be the all-time worst. Problems continued after the match was over, particularly involving Jack Victory, who was stiff with Singapore cane shot, and also mad as he promoted the show and thought the main event killed the city for return business. Hamas said afterwards that he was going to suspend Sam for a week or two and heavily find it. Well, let's go to the torch for more on this, shall we? As Sandman's drunken antics reached you low at Pensacola, several sources say Sandman arrived at the show more intoxicated than usual. Prior to the show, even during a Paul Heyman locker room address, sources say he became a nuisance. Before the match, witnesses say Sandman took his clothes off in the backstage area and paraded around naked. Witnesses say at one point he picked up Domery's hairbrush and used it to comb his pubic hair. Later, he grabbed the musketeer's sword and pretended to insert it in his butt. And as the evening went on, Sandman became insanely drunk. And sources observed him to be drunker than he's ever been, at least at work. Sandman exposed himself to the crowd during the main event. He's the last of the eight wrestlers to make their entrance. Correspondents report that he stumbled into the ring, fell a couple times in the process. Once in the ring, he began caning the heels with stiff shots. He took the mic up. He took the house mic, held up his cane, and said, This is my big cane, and this is my little cane, holding, pointing to his penis. After mooning the crowd a couple of times, Sandman dropped his pants, exposed his penis to the crowd. When many of the fans cheered Sandman, the, workers, the wrestlers working with him, and nearly everyone backstage was said to be upset. At one point, Tajiri attempted to pull Sandman's pants up. Witnesses say all the wrestlers... Well, Tajiri's not used to seeing dicks because they're censored in Japan. Uh, witnesses say all the wrestlers, especially Dreamer and Rhino, appear to be furious with Sandman's behavior. Carino walked around ringside telling fans, Sorry we didn't mean to kill the town! Sorry we won't be back! Meanwhile, backstage, Heyman was heard yelling at Bill Alfonso to line up a car so Sandman could be escorted from the building immediately after the match. However, Sandman remained in the building for some reason, and problems escalated. Sandman and Jack Victor got into a fight in the locker room bathroom. After the match, Sandman walked backstage where he was met by an angry Heyman who asked, What the fuck were you thinking? Some of the wrestlers involved in the eight-man tag started complaining about the stiff cane shot Sandman had given them prior to the match. Heyman and Sandman ended up talking later in the bathroom. Jack Victory walked in, expressed his anger with Sandman's cane shots, and exchanged words with him. Heyman stood between the two men, trying to keep peace. Victor reached over Heyman and hit Sandman with a forearm. Sandman retaliated by reaching over Heyman and driving his fingers into Victory's eyes. Victory grabbed Sandman by the ears and gave him four quick headbutts. Saldi Graziano ran to the small room, which was described as being narrow as an airplane bathroom. He got in between them, causing Heyman to jump in onto a toilet seat because of the lack of room. Graziano used his weight to force Sandman and Victory against the bathroom wall and yelled, Fight's over! Both Sandman and Victory calmed down and went their separate ways. Within minutes of the fight, sources say Sandman and Victory were joking together about the fight. Sandman suffered some lacerations to his forehead and cut his eyelid from Victory's headbutts. Victory's eyes were swollen from Sandman poking his fingers in them, but both were said to be alright. Heyman finally suspended Sandman. When asked for comment, Heyman told the torch, Sandman's actions were inappropriate and unprofessional, and he will face disciplinary action for them. Sandman was suspended without pay for this weekend and possibly next weekend shows. 
but the amount of the fine was not known. Sources add that Sandman later apologized to Heyman and was willing to accept whatever punishment he deemed necessary. Heyman has said in the past that all fine money is put towards, towards pay-per-view advertising, so the entire company benefits. Sandman did not respond to Torch's request for comments. Many wrestlers were questioning why Heyman allowed Sandman to wrestle when it was so obvious he was more intoxicated than usual beforehand. The general sentiment on Sandman amongst other wrestlers is that he's a really good guy and has a heart of gold, but lets his drinking get out of hand. Several sources give him credit for being helpful with and lending advice to younger wrestlers. And several wrestlers are complaining this week's paychecks are late, too. Now, New Jack impressed a lot of observers of his behavior at the Sandman's brawl with victory. New Jack cut what one source described as a sermon on the Sandman. Jack has said they've told Sammy he hates him sometimes because he makes him realize how he acts when he's drunk. New Jack said Buffy and Sandman need to become role models for younger wrestlers in the locker room. Ravens also received good reviews of his recent behavior. Sort of say he looks better than he had in a long time and seems to be having fun again. Due to other business matters, ECW lawyers have yet to drop Ravens' release papers. All right, before we get move on anything else, Bix. Um, Ravens' release papers? Oh, yeah. Good luck with that. <laughs> Um, ECW puts themselves in a bind with the Sandman if they wanted to do anything because of, like, like I said here, what his gimmick was. Well, it's not the gimmick. It's that he was actually drinking before the matches on the way to the ring as part of the gimmick. But that's part of the gimmick, though. It's part of the, the presentation. In the recent years, it didn't used to be. But starting in 90, late 95, 96, and on and on and on and on, that's what happened. Yeah. It got worse and worse and worse as it went along. Yes. And what's sad about it is, and God knows we talked about it many times on this show, he goes to WCW and gets in the best shape of his life. It's like he cleaned up. And he does and the he gets, best work of his career, too. And then he gets back in ECW, back in the shit again, and then here we are. You know? Yeah. Well, at least he's been clean for a while now. You know, here in 2022, as far as we know. Yeah, here he is making fun of Raven. You know, for for trying to be clean. Yeah. I mean, he's a mess, so what do you expect? But Yeah. Just what a, a train wreck. Yeah. And, no, and, oh, he's and, getting and fined and suspended without pay, huh? What does that even mean in ECW? And the, and, and the fine money is going to pay-per-view advertising. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> you know, imagine if we had the technology back then to track flights like we do now. And uh, when Paul Heyman always said he had these flights to Los Angeles and stuff, see how we could track that. Well, you you wouldn't have to know what flight he was on. Well, that'd at be least a approximately. Way. I mean, depending, yeah. But yeah, wait, did we no, did we, we have and I glossed over? We have some Los Angeles talk. No, but I'm just saying. I'm just talking <laughs> in general. You know, that's again stuff we talk about on the Patreon. Yeah. You know about how he's always in Los Angeles. Yes, Los Angeles just roaming around looking for a TV deal because that's how that works. And the thing is, is that he's again not at the TV tapings. He, he had to go to a house show. Yeah, to, to, to do his thing. I don't. But anyway, all right. So, anything else on this subject? No, definitely not. I don't blame Jack Victory. No, because <laughs> I mean he's the promoter of the show too. That's the thing. He's a spot promoter, so he's pissed because he's thinking he's losing his town that he wants yes. to promote. So, all right, super crazy is where Visa will be reviewed within next week. Manager still expects him to return imminently. It takes time. Um, 
a little weird that it's not mentioned throughout throughout I mean it's mentioned sometimes if I remember right from the TNN show but it's not always pointed out how it's not ECW getting him the work visa anyway no it's it's Victor Cronones and IWA Puerto Rico yeah alright this week's ECW on TNN was heavily edited by the network and they were removed the audio from a Paul Heyman promo and a Joel Gertner commentary both anti-TNN alright um do you want to go ahead and play this? Yeah, okay, so on the network it has the audio. It did not have the audio on the original airing. So I guess we'll start with the audio and then we'll read what the crawl said after. Or is the yeah. crawl in the notes? Crawl is later on. This is a this is the torch version of this, and then Dave uh, has his version where I think he says crawl stuff. Uh, let me see real quick. Uh. But it's the too the too many tables. Wait, too many. Uh, I don't know if that's the whole crawl though that they're show, that that Dave mentions. But anyway, let's let's play this now. And remember, no one heard this audio when it aired. Nobody. This is how it aired on. T I mean, so on TNN, the audio was muted and it had the crawl mocking what was going on. So here's what we did not hear, but what was intended to be in the show. My name is Paul Heyman, and I'm the executive producer and the owner of Extreme Championship Wrestling. And since this show apparently is going to make air this week, I'd like to take this moment to thank you for watching ECW. You have to be an ECW fan to watch this show because God knows the network has never put out one freaking commercial or one press release to let you know that we're here. But that's their scheme of things. You see, in just a few weeks, the network is going to give $100 million to Vince McMahon like he needs it to replace us. In case they haven't thrown us off before then. And the fact of the matter is, we're not a publicly funded company like Vince McMahon or WCW. We survive or even thrive on your support. And for that, we thank you. Now, in an industry where everybody wants to be real... And everybody wants to do a shoot. This, my friends, is a shoot. We hate this stinking network. We hate their guts for abandoning us. We hate their guts for not supporting us. We hate their guts for not advertising us. And we hate their guts for not having the balls to throw us off the air. And just in case you're watching this, hey, network, I dare you to throw me off the air. Because I'm going to break every rule that you put in front of me until you throw me the hell off the air. This, my friends, is a shoot. You better take that hundred million dollars that you're going to give Vince McMahon, and you better spend it on attorneys, because I promise you, Network, the war has just begun. Still to come. Well, do we have the Gardner commentary? I don't know what match that is that he's talking about, though. Because I remember, I think we played it on the Patreon show. I think we did, but we had to find it. Um, it wasn't that much. Um, what was it? Yeah, but it's got it's got. Oh, here we go. Is it the Paul Heyman interrupts Joel Gertner thing? The pig fucker yes. thing? Okay. Yes, it's the famous line from the show. Yeah. So that's that's an on camera. To take this personal time to say hello to all of my executive friends at TNN, the ones who have been incarcerated for smuggling underage farm animals across state lines for the purposes of sexual gratification. But at least, while they were doing it, they were safe about it. They only picked the calves that didn't kick back. 
Are you ready to throw us off the air yet, Pete? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. So here's the crawl, okay? Yeah. So Bix is getting it set up. All right. All right is it, it's yeah. just Mitchell. All right, so here we go. All right, so just keep it on mute and I'll read what it says. Please ignore this gentleman's temper tantrum. Could it be he's been thrown on through uh, too many tables? Oh, so that That's is the whole crawl. Okay, I thought there was more to it. Well, no. Oh, no, there is more. No, or, no it is the same thing. A, yeah. So, yeah, they they just play that. With no audio. Back and, with, yeah. So. Uh, pig fuckers. <laughs> well, okay. So, uh, when asked to comment on the possibility of seven being a work, TNA publicist David Schwartz told The Torch, That's the beauty of wrestling. Even the people who follow it don't really know what is real and what isn't. We love the episode of TNN because of the grand attention it's brought us. Do you really think a network would air something so inflammatory? Schwartz added a network has control over content, but added, we're not going to tip our cap on it, whether the segments were work or shoot. Schwartz called Heyman a genius, and then the ECW is working on a three-year contract with a network which was signed in August of last year. Schwartz refused to comment on the possibility of WF moving this program to TNN, and where that move will leave ECW, the Torch was unable to reach comment, Heyman for comment on this item, oh, which he's uh, talked about everything else in this fucking thing to him. Yeah. Um, obviously, by seeing how the finished episode was on ECW's end, we know this is legit. That the censorship was legit. That is. Um, yeah, what about David Schwartz, though, huh? Uh, I think, well, you know what, though? He's probably hedging in case uh, WWF loses the lawsuit. I guess, but what a bullshit artist he is. Yeah. Um, I did notice... Okay, wait, Heyman did say TNN at the beginning, right? Yeah. And then later said network. Whereas yeah. in, in the storyline, they only said network. So... I mean, yeah, there's no reason to think this was not a legit show of defiance and a legit instance of censorship because, again, the finished version of the episode that WWE has that was not touched by TNN has the audio and does not have yeah. the crawl. Well, Dave has his, his thoughts on this, so he, the whole show in general. The June 2nd TNN show was from Toledo with some very bad lighting. Raven interview with Justin Grubble came out and they went at it. Raven actually did a drop kit for Justin carried him twice and gave Kane twice, gave him a tombstone. Scotty Anton attacked Raven afterwards. Cyrus also attacked Raven. Anton put AC Loke in the Scorpion, and Cyrus and Anton started doing the American Males clap, which they are terming giving the crowd the clap. Guido and Tony Marinara, who's referred to as the man on WCWS, Tony Marinara, then called Don Tony Mamaluke, argued backstage. Cash defeated Vic Grimes at 421. Grimes was a lot better matched with smaller guys because he has some unique power moves he can pull on them. There were a few missed spots and a lot of good spots. Anyway, Cash went in with a front-rolling cradle. Swinger was posed in front of a fan. You know, the kind that blows the air, not a wrestling fan. And in a double entendre, I said, can't you see my fan is blowing me? Simon Diamond was there and attempting to get away from the comedy while they had Mitch holding the fan. Ah, yes, good old Mitch. And Prodigy and Prodigette arguing in different languages and the Musketeer running around. What a crew. 
Mikey Whipper every Tony Mamaluka 236 with that sick finisher out of a big Japan ends in a version of a tombstone pile driver. Tony Mamaluka missed on a moonsault outside the ring, his head on the guardrail, almost like he pile drove himself. This is that bump. And then he got a fine and finished the match. That may have been the sickest bump of the year. Oh, I'll say, good God almighty. After the match, Guido attacked Rip Whipper, but Whipper gave him two Whipper snappers to set up a spot where Citizen Minister would throw fire, but Sally Graziano made the save. Whipperette threw powder at him. He was blinded, so he thought he grabbed Whipperette, but said he destroyed Mama Lucas, including throwing him into the crowd. Dave was the first skeptical of those stories by him already having 20 concussions or whatever the number was in his early 20s, but seeing what he did in just 2 minutes 30 seconds is totally believable. WCW wouldn't use him for those very medical reasons. He got a job here, so there's that. Didn't we play this on the Patreon show? Yeah, but realizing it's a show, I think we have to play it again, so let me cue it up. Oh, my God. Uh, the thing I remember from the Patreon show is we felt like it looked even worse than we remembered, right? All uh, right, yeah. So, yeah, t- yeah, turn the sound on. We need that. Brazilian slice on Mikey! And the lighting here is horrible. Cover! Yes. Let's see if kick out! We don't have distracting referee Jim Molino. I think there's a replay, right? You can hear people saying he hit his head. Which I never noticed. This match is gonna continue. Mikey Whipwreck has thrown Tony Mama Luke back into the ring. Double underhook. I forgot they go straight to the finish, too. And by the way, you can tell Mom Luke's fucked up the way he went up. Oh, Jesus, that looked worse than I remember, too. Mercifully, this matchup is over, and now Guido is attacking Mikey. The Sicilian shooter is stopping Mikey Whipwreck. Okay, let me see if we get the uh, alternate angle of the bump here, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing people forget, too, is that he does not look like he's going up on the finish well. But then he comes back and fights. Yeah, okay, in, weirdly on the network version, oh, are they cutting out the one wrestling logo, and that's why we're not getting the uh, actual bump on the replay? Maybe. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> of course. Um, but he did not go up well for Mikey's finish and kind of landed on his head there too. So and the the thing though, that I, re- that really struck me when we did the Patreon show though, is I kind of remembered him landing like upper back first on the rail. No, he hits his brain stem on the rail. Yeah. The back of his head. Yeah. It is bad. Thankfully he stops taking all those risks after this point. <sighs> Seems like he got him a job yeah. here, but he starts mainly working that technical style after this. Yeah. <laughs> Which was for the best. Yeah, that was just, oof, brutal. 
Brutal. Alright, um, so next we get the uh, the Heyman thing. Uh, Heyman interview screaming TNF running them down for ruining his company, which is kind of a work semi-shoot type of deal, Dave said. It's clearly the positioning the company is standing up to the oppressive network when the inevitable dumping comes, as well as diverting attention and diverting blame for the ratings. Joel Gertner was edited out as well, talking about them paying Vincent Man $100 million. Dave's sure this is only the beginning. All the audio was edited off both interviews. TNN scrawled over the interview of Heyman. Please ignore this gentleman's temper tantrum. Could it be he's been put through too many tables? Later, as they aired an interview with the audio bleeped out, they ran across stating, TNN harbors no ill feelings on ECW, and TNN fully supports ECW and all of its redeeming qualities. So much for the Cyrus angle they've built the company around. <laughs> on the Gertner interview, you could hear that crowd noise in the background, so the tape was delivered with the ability to audio edit out only the interview, but not the crowd noise. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, no, it was dubbed crowd noise anyway, so that it was just they just used that same track. I don't know why Dave is not noticing that, but anyway. Um, I guess the main event saw Rhino and Sandman in order to schmoz. Dusty Rhodes, who looks painfully overweight, wearing a t-shirt and short jeans, was pounding on Carino outside the ring. Sandman gave Rhino a pile driver on the table, came victory and Carino. They finally got Sandman down and Dusty made the save. They got Dusty down until Tajiri made the save. Scotty Anton attacked Tajiri, leading to a musical save by Rob Van Dam. Complete with everyone outside the ring and Van Dam doing a flip dive. I think about ECW in this time period, it's a, a lot of this stuff is the same stuff that you see on just like every show. Mm-hmm. Same type of stuff. Mm-hmm. It all runs together mm-hmm. in that way. Yep. But, so there you go. There's ECW television there. Um, the rating drew a 0.82, 1.6 share. The show grew throughout, peaking at a point nine nine for the main event, while Roller Jam did a point six seven and Motor Madness did a point seven one. Now Torch said ECW sources report that Masato Tanaka resigned FMW recently. Apparently FMW manager pressured Tanaka by telling him that they would go bankrupt without him. If Tanaka is a part of the deal, it's doubtful ECW would sign Wing Kanamura, Gato, or Jado. What a bunch of bullshit that is. <laughs> From FMW. And they're well. They're probably going to go bankrupt with him anyway. So, well, yeah. Well, they never. I don't think they officially went bankrupt because no, they don't. The debts were all to Yakuza, so you're not going to file bankruptcy for that. It just basically came to an end after Hayabusa got hurt. Yeah. When when was Arise suicide? It was right before well, his book came out, right? So, well, no, it was months before. Two. I'm trying to remember. Because um, 2002 is when all the FMW tribute promotions began. Yeah, I'm pulling so up a rise, the translation of the book on Bahu's website, but he doesn't have a chapter listing. You have to go through all of them individually. So I don't, I don't know if I'd be able to find this. Uh, let me see. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'll be able to find anything like that here for now, but uh, so Tanaka we're in 2000. What does he do for the next year and a half, two years? Japan. No, but I'm saying, what was it? Well, I guess Complete Players ends up starting soon, too. Well, he's all over Japan. That's know? what I was saying, but he becomes more of a freelancer and... Well, he's in FMW. Yeah. So Because they're still in FMW. 
So, I mean, Arai killed himself on May 16, 2002. Okay. So. Yeah, right when FMW fully closes. Uh, so, sorry. yeah. Um. Okay, so I did, I did find this. Searching in, as, as came along for 2000 in the text here. When we were having payment difficulty every day, that was in early 2000, we received shocking news. DirecTV decided suspension of their business and existing and just and their existing business would will be transferred to Sky Perfect TV. It seems like Brett translated some of the stuff literally, so it's not always perfect English. Um, our business partner was giving us uh, 80 million yen, $800,000 a year, and they were going away. We still had a year contract remaining. I heard about the news in February 2000. There we go. Okay, that helps explain things a little bit. Contacted DirecTV. They confirmed it was true. They seemed hard, hard to say for them. Unfortunately, we are not able to pay you all the remaining fees. We might be able to pay one more time, though. We cannot guarantee right now. They usually pay us three times a year, so I tried to negotiate somehow. But they are closing their business because of their financial difficulty. They didn't seem to have any budget left. Other companies like us who were termin- who had their contracts terminated tried to negotiate for longer periods. We gave up early and got the money from DirecTV as much as possible. Thinking ahead, we decided to move to Sky Perfect TV instead of using too much energy for nothing. As a result, we only got paid 16 million yen, about $160,000, which was 20% less, I guess, than what they were owed. Uh, heard a rumor some companies couldn't even get paid a penny after such a long-term negotiation. Excuse me. We might be lucky, but the new Sky per- contract with Sky Perfect TV wasn't a good package. It was all based on commission, and we had to deliver the video source to their studio after making them through optical fiber. Deliver means broadcasting it live from the venue. Okay, so so oh, so they were having to pay for the truck production truck eight thousand a day. Okay, so this is good information here. So right before this, they lose this contract, which was paying them a guarantee, even though there was pay per views, and was paying for the production. Now, if they want to keep anything similar going, not only do they not have a guarantee, they also have to pay for production. So you can see how things got much lower, much worse very quickly. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, and of course, we get this. So in July 2000, when they start with Sky Perfect TV, he did get a five-month advance, which was about $120,000, used it to pay other bills, um, but then they'd have to cover the operating expenses on the pay-per-views by themselves. Um, and he started going to loan sharks and borrowed about twenty-five grand from seven of them. Come on now. Uh, <laughs> By the way, have you ever seen anything more chilling from a pro wrestler than Onita's comments about the Lone Sharks in the Dark Side episode about FMW? Yeah. We're just like, oh, there there are ways you can get them to stop paying. Sure. <laughs> when yeah, pretty much was. everyone else was like, no. <laughs> no, they will keep going. Because we know they went. At, we, I mean, his daughter's in it. They went after his family for the money they were owed. Yeah. They weren't going to stop for anything unless someone very connected got involved, and that's not what happened. Yeah, they're going to get their money. All right, let's go to the rest of the indie scene here, and let's begin with the FWA. They had a show in Palo Alto, Pennsylvania, not California, on June the 3rd. We have Jake Daniels and Sabath over DZ Gillespie and the Cremator. Reckless Youth over Nick Burke. High Voltage 
went to a double DQ of martial law. These are two singles guys, not tag teams. Mafia over low key. Monster Mac over Don Montoya by disqualification. Dino Devine and Colleen over Soda Pop Ronnie Zuko and Candy. A three-way for the FWA tag titles. The Family of Freaks, Adam Flash and Danny Rose, defeated Martin Shark Strait and Reckless Youth. And the Sex Idols, Keenan Creed and Tommy Idol, to win the championships. And then our main event for the FWA heavyweight title, Mike Quackenbush retained over Dan Moreland. Dan Moreland was the heel commissioner guy, wasn't he? I think so. Yes. So FWA was okay. Was Mike Burns the promoter? Smart Mark has some has involvement in it. Yes, I, I know. I think he was. I think Burns was at least booking. I don't know if he was. He, the promoter I think he was. The, he was the booker and maybe money. Okay, but and, not the promoter per se. Okay, um, and it's kind of trying to be the first the first super indie of this era, but not exactly. Because they're trying to find guys from outside the area who they can use, like the, you know, doghouse guys, you know, of, you know, Hit Squad, Loki, etc. Santo. Well, yeah, they book you know, Del Santo against Quack. Um, trying to think what. They have TV. Else. I mean, they have TV, basically. They have TV somewhere, yes. And all of this, of course, is on IWTV. Um, it is. Trying to think what else. You know, you have some of your CZW guys mixed in. You have some of the Maryland guys mixed in, like uh, Mark Schrader and Keenan Creed. So it's kind of an interesting mix. Plus you have, you know, your Pennsylvania guys, Reckless, Nick Burke, Martial Law. Interesting mix. And there's some good stuff on those shows. Definitely worth checking out if you want to see stuff from that era um, on IWTV. And I always mention this when he comes up because he doesn't come up often. Keenan Creed is one of the best guys of this era that never really broke out. He's a good hand. Yes, he was very, very good. It, did he make a Super 8 at any point? It's possible. But it's possible. I don't, I don't know for sure. Yeah, I just remember any time I would see MCW or anything, he was always the highlight. He was very, very good. But I don't know if it's just the era or whatever, but he never really went anywhere. And no, the only Creed ever to be in the Super 8 is uh, Xavier Woods as Austin Creed. There you go. But he was more of a, you know, mid-Atlantic guy. Keenan, Maryland, yes. that is. Yeah, Keenan Creed, yeah. So, Virginia, Maryland, those type of things. But, yeah, the FWA. Frontier Wrestling Association, I think. Yes. Not the future. Cool. No, 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 this one's future. Frontier was the British one. Well, I, I mean, you could have told me it was Frontier, and I believed it because, I mean, just because it's UK doesn't mean they can't do it over here. So. No, but I think this one's Future. I can double check. Well, whatever. Doesn't matter. All right, so we go to Knoxville. Ron Fuller's second K-Town showdown on June 2nd saw the crowd drop from about 2,500 to first week to an estimated 1,400. We had a wide variety of attendance sessions for this show, which is the second week at Chihuahua Park. For a main event, when the Rock and Roll Express beat Jimmy Golden and Dirty White Boy by DQ and Jim Cornette interfered, which led to Bob Armstrong attacking Cornette. Nick Densmore, Russ McCullough, and Robbie D all helped Cornette out until Steve Armstrong and promoter Ron Fuller made the save. And Ron announced the Rock and Rolls, and Bob and Steve each have no DQ tab matches against four Cornette's WF developmental guys. Well, he didn't say that, but it's Ohio Valley guys. 
Actually, we're told the best wrestling match of the show was Mark Henry over Robbie D. Huh. Announcer June 9th was Tommy Rich, Rico Constantino, and the Mongolian Stomper. Terry Landell was there heckling the wrestlers, so it's pretty clear they're doing an angle. They're not. Oh, I don't know. If they're not doing an angle. Most of the show still revolved around the old Smoky Mountain View with Bob Armstrong and Jim Cornette. Okay. Um. Yeah, Terry Landell's ain't working an angle with anyone. Um. And this leads to, during the K-Town SmackDown run, uh, Jim Cornette almost running him over with his car. And as he would later admit, I believe the words were, I was trying to kill the motherfucker. <laughs> and you can believe it, knowing Jimmy. He probably was. Yeah. Um, these shows drew real well, though, while they lasted. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he did. I mean... Ron Fuller still showed he could do things as a promoter, even in the early 2000s. Yep. Yes, and uh, I'm trying to think, was there anything else with these? I, I see we don't have full results, it looks like. No. Okay. I didn't miss South. They had a couple shows during our week. Blood Showers 2000 at the House of Hardcore in Charleston, Indiana. That BJ Whitmer over Rapid Delivery Rory Fox in your opener. Hazaya and Richard X over Nathan Future and Prophet Daniel Quinn. GQ Master Third over Jane Drago. A three-way barbed wire match, rolling hard over me, Mitch Page, and Ox Harley. Cash flow over Paul E. Smooth. Chucky Smooth, yes. Chucky Smooth, yes. Chip Fairway over Jay Prodigy. Iron Man match for IWM itself a heavyweight title. As the American kickboxer uh, went to a no-contest suicide kid. They went for 28 minutes, and Suicide Kid retained his title. Two out three falls, two out three falls, loser leave town, match 30 days. Ian Rotten beat Blaze. And the fans were in the weapons match. Madman Pondo beat Corporal Robinson. June 7th, we have another show at the House of Hardcore. Rolling hard over Paulie Smooth, Cash Love Rocks Harley, GQ Masters and Ian Rotten over Nathan Future and Prophet Daniel Quinn. Chair Fairway went to a tunnel and draw with Tracy Smothers. Zion Richard X over the American Kickboxer Suicide Kid, and a cash flow over Har- Corporal Robinson in a hardcore match. So there's just some 2,000 minutes out there. Yeah, still got more of the HWA guys, and, you know, your older IWA stalwarts like Suicide Kid, because he doesn't get hurt for over a year after this, and no punk hero Cabana a steal as regulars yet, though. Um, that would come in... Even though you have Chucky Smooth, that looks like Cabana at least starts in... Hold on, I need to go to the next page. July. So I'm assuming similar for Punk and Ace. And Heroes separate, so let's see. When would that be for him? I'm I'm assuming it's around about the same time. As I check real quick here. Hero comes in in August. So yeah, all the same general time frame. And they right. changed that promotion yeah. a lot. Oh, no, it was July. Okay, yeah, so all of them coming in July, looks like. Yeah. In the Bay Worldwide, ran a Tojo Yamamoto Memorial Show. Tojo Yamamoto Memorial Show on June the 2nd at the fairgrounds in Nashville, where Tojo wrestled every night for about 100 years. Men in that show saw Chris Harris attain North Mercantile pinning Air Paris in 29 minutes and 59 seconds at the main event. Hmm. So, yeah, they were in that Tojo show... Uh, a little bit here in this time period. I think this is the first one, isn't it? Yes, yeah, the, yeah, the first or second. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, Memphis, we have both uh, shows here on uh, Memphis Championship Wrestling. They made a big deal about Reckless Use winning over Steven Regal, elevating him to a new level of stardom and making him the rival of top contender Kay Crush, Ron Killings, for the Southern Heavyweight Championship held by Jerry Lawler. Rodney and Joey Az from WF ripped on Todd Morton and Bull Payne. And the fabulous rocker who does a retro Robert Gibson gimmick now calls himself Too Sexy. So working towards something with Grandmaster Sexay. Rodney still has a on his arm and they say he had a torn bicep. But the big Memphis news in our week happened on Power Pro Wrestling. They introduced a new tag team called the Texas Outlaws of Austin Rhodes and Ricky Murdoch. There appeared to be a legit injury to Havoc, which held up the live show. From those watching on TV, it appeared to be a neck injury or back spasm. As an ambulance came to the building, it wasn't there already, they showed a lot of videos to kill time. When they came back, Corey Mack was at the paramedics from the ring, but the Havoc had good movement in his limbs. Dave Brown later said it was a neck injury, that he could move his legs and arms and was breathing well, but we took him to the hospital for x-rays. And before the show was out, Brown said Havoc was in good shape. They only had time for two matches on TV, though, because of the expected situation. All right, so let's play the clip, and then we'll talk about what the tour says. So we're picking it up before the incident happens. Back job! From the new outlaw there. That's Ricky Murdoch. Murdoch makes the tag. Here comes Havoc. Well, these Texas outlaws setting it up and making the tag on Havoc. Aristocrat lets it go by oh, from behind. A knee to the back by one of the assassins. Yeah, that was it. Session number two over there, and a nice step. Step there, followed by the elbow from the aristocrat, and down is Havoc. And the aristocrat, Scott Reigns, is working him over. Oh, 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 That's bad. Maybe it might have had him in position to go for the three count, but he thought otherwise. He makes a tag on the assassin, and Havoc... Oh, no, his whole body is spasmed. Jesus. Yes. He got a three count? He got a three count on him there. I don't know what in the world happened. He looks like he might be seizing a, or something. They got a you three see, count yeah. on Havoc, and uh, Havoc his is legs are shaking. Shape. Let's take a break. We'll sure, be yeah. back in a minute. Well, good on Dave. Go, go, go to break. Well, we'll talk about that in the house. It goes along here. What's going on here behind the scenes. Keep it, go, keep it going because we're going to come back. Yeah. Uh, anything uh, in the yeah. ring the ambulance is on the way and uh, we're not we're, what we're going to do right now is show a videotape last week of the Wolfie D and Ali match this is one with a controversial ending let's take a okay I'm curious to see so what was the last spot before he looks like that uh, they do the little like exploder type suplex okay right there that's it I think it's the, el- the no, el- it's the elbow. Oh, did he land on him with his ass? Down is heavy. And the session number two. Let me see. Yep, his hip hit him in the head. There's that too, yeah. No, that's so where he got hurt, because he wasn't hurt on the suplex, I don't think. It could have been. He's fine until the elbow drop. Well, they're playing the suplex. <laughs> so. But if you watch the video, none of this happens until the elbow drop. Well, let, let me let me continue. Okay, let me let mm-hmm. me read what let me read what Wade says. On June third, uh, Power Pro Chuck White, age twenty nine, was injured during a match and went to convulsions on during the show, which broadcast live. During the six man tag, Scott Aristocrat Reigns suplexed White. White took the bump wrong and landed on his head, injuring his neck. 
and knocking himself out. Reigns attempted to pick up White, but then realized he wasn't moving. Tad one of his partners, the assassin, as White began having seizures. Assassin in the ring pinned White. Power Pro owner Randy Hales told Torch that he was in the control room at the time and immediately called for a commercial call for 911. Hales said he feared White had suffered internal bleeding when he began bleeding from the mouth, but it turned out that White had bit his tongue during the convulsions. When the show came back for commercial, Hales aired matches from previous shows for nearly 25 minutes while paramedics arrived in the White in the ring. At the time, Hales and others feared White was dying. Eventually, the paramedics rushed White to the hospital where he regained consciousness. Hale said that White later said he thought he was in the Power Pro locker room. Once White learned he had been taken to the hospital, he became embarrassed, refused treatment, and headed back to the TV studio, where Hale said White actually made it back to the studio with 15 minutes left in the show. Well, wait a second. Which was a one-hour show. Yeah, that doesn't sound right math-wise, because the injury is about 15 minutes, I'm guessing, before into the show, with into the video we have online with the commercials removed, so... Well, on Monday, Hale said tight. that White, yeah, Hale said White told him he was still suffering from dizziness and headed back to the hospital for further examination. White underwent a CAT scan procedure and was told he suffered a concussion. His doctor advised him to take two weeks off before returning to wrestling. Hales added that because of the seriousness of the injury, he believes White will take even more time before returning to the ring. White, who does not rely on wrestling for his income, as do few of the Power Pro wrestlers, owns a construction business in Bartlett, Tennessee. I mean, so they're he blaming takes that the exploder suplex. flat, though. Yeah, they're blaming the suplex, but I mean, it and very well know. could have been. It, it very well could have been because the camera view we had doesn't really show clear that if he really hit him with his hip or not. But he tucks and lands flat on that su- on that exploder, though. Like we just saw it. So, and then he looks fine, elbow. And then immediately, just, it looks like that hip. Hit, it looks like that hip at the mat, though. <sighs> Maybe part of his butt. I don't want to blame the guy if he didn't injure him. But it's like I, do, I guess you can have a delayed effect too. Like there's delayed knockouts in boxing and MMA and kickboxing. But see, we're doing by YouTube. You can't. Yeah, I'd have to download the video to do it frame by frame. Yeah, so I'm we're not gonna do all that. We're not, try, we're not doing all that. We're not doing. We're not doing. We're not. We're not. We're not going to do all that. So it could have been either or, but still, I mean, they got lucky that it was not serious. Serious. Very yeah. lucky. Because this is live television. Yeah. Oh, they uh, tell you two weeks in two thousand, huh? Huh? For a concussion where he went into convulsions. Well, I mean, surprised he come back the week after. I mean, uh, well, he didn't need money, and they weren't giving money so brandon bashers doing most of the booking for power pro power pro has become a tv promotion and that really runs spot shows wmc channel 5 which is their wrestler for all but one of the years since 1977 pays power pro a weekly programming fee plus pays for their production costs power pro start paying the wrestlers for tv appearances back in january before then dating back years promoters rarely paid wrestlers for tv because the show was used as a vehicle to promote spot shows that's right folks <laughs> these guys that worked in the TV studio wrestling for years did not get paid. Well, the job guys would get paid. Job guys got paid. But your top guys didn't get paid. It's promotion, brother. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're wondering why you didn't see Dusty Rose and Ric Flair work a lot of TVs, mm-hmm. that's why. <laughs> um, 
Ali Stevens has had talks with both WF and WCW over the past few months and recently worked out the power plant because he's actively pursuing a job outside of Power Pro. Hales is slowing down his push in case he leaves. He's He signs with WCW, and he's one of those guys that we talk about in the Walk on the Wild Side shows that you know had the look and could have done something, but it just didn't work out for him, and WCW closing was a big part of that. So, yeah. This it's, it, and we, and we talk about it in the Wild Side show. The timing of a lot of these guys and how they, uh, you know, were so young at that time when WCW goes out of business. There's a lot of people that could have been stars in the wrestling business that weren't because there wasn't mm. a WCW. Yeah. I mean, hell, look at all those guys. Look at all the the, the natural born thriller guys that go to WWF and get just squandered. You don't think that a WCW in 2002 would have had like Sean O'Hare as a top main event guy? Absolutely, they would. Mark Jindrak, you know, even Palumbo. Those guys would have been top tier guys in a 2002 WCW, probably. Yep. But didn't happen. And James Crookshanks, JCI, aka Jamie Dundee, is booking wrestlers to do work skits and writing storylines for the Jerry Springer Show. Do that for years. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to the West Coast. All Pro Wrestling. They're in the Carnival of Carnage show on June 2nd in Antioch, California. About a 17-man battle royal won by Michael Modest and Vinny Massaro. Jack Perez beat Bison Smith. Kid Chrome of Vanilla Frost. Not Vanilla Ice, Vanilla Frost. Universal Heavyweight title, Frank Murdoch retained over Boom Boom Kamini. Milk over Jardy France. Ronnie Brown and Johnny Lowe over the Snots, Seymour and Peter. Donovan Morgan retained the worldwide internet title of uh, beating Tony Jones. And then Robert Thompson and Boyce Grand retained the tag titles beating Vinny Massaro and Michael Modest. Hey. So there's your totally APW show there with all the APW guys mm-hmm. there. So there you go. Yes. Uh, what happened to Jardy France? Just got out of the business. Yeah. Just, just felt the face of the air. Yeah, I guess so. And we close out with this little nugget as we go to uh, talk about uh, some television. There's preliminary work and funding being done to start the Fight Channel in the United States. They plan a 24-hour digital satellite television station, which will include boxing, wrestling, martial arts, etc., as well as new shows devoted to the fight world. The plan launch of the station will be late 2001 or early 2002. And I don't know who's behind this, if this becomes Canadian Fight Network or what. It's not the wrestling channel in the UK because that was the wrestling channel at the beginning. It becomes TWC Fight and later the British Fight Network after they get bought. So this could be something that turned into something else, or it might just be something that just never happened. Yeah, too bad it did. No. Yeah. Because that was like a dream for a lot of us wrestling fans, is it was to have like an American version of Samurai TV. Mm-hmm. Or to even have Samurai TV. Yes. <laughs> oh, no, it's good. I mean, that would have been amazing if, if there would have been a way for Americans to have Samurai TV. Holy shit. Well, there are ways to get it now, although... Illegally, and they don't always last, but... No, they don't. <laughs> but, yeah. Sarah, Sarah, I guess. All right, let's close out with the World Wrestling Federation. Daily Variety on June the 1st reported Dwayne Johnson's in the serious negotiation star in two major league films at a price of nearly $5 million a film. 
The story reported that Johnson, The Rock, was negotiated to start an untitled big-budget sci-fi film for Joe Roth, to be directed by Glenn Morgan and James Wong, of Final Destination fame. He's also negotiated to play the Scorpion King in a movie as a prequel to Mummy 2, where he played the same role. Johnson has a limited amount of screen time in the latter movie, but apparently Universal Studios was so impressed with his performance they wanted to build up the character himself in a starring role for a film produced by the same team as The Mummy, of Jim Jacks, Sean Daniel, and Stephen Summers. Vince Lindemann Man would also be involved in producing capacities in any movie starring Johnson. The movie for Roth is scheduled for distribution in summer 2001. What a successful career in movies would mean as far as the wrestling future is uncertain. Johnson, who just signed a renegotiated contract with WFE, would be in the same ballpark doing either movies that he would be in the full year of either being the biggest star in wrestling. Johnson believed they're earning approximately $4.5 million a year at this stage of the game, although probably top that figure for 2000 with the unexpectedly high buy rates of shows he's headlined and the revenue from his book that topped the bestseller charts. There's no question that consistent losses of Johnson from the active WF tour for significant periods of time will impact business. Even though as a movie star, it could and probably would up its marketability within the wrestling world and make him stand out of the pack even more than he does already. Yeah, all that would be true. I mean... Yeah, that's pretty much what happens. I mean, what can you say? I mean, who knows? I mean, who who knows how things would have been if Rock didn't go into the movies? You know how different wrestling is. You know? Because... I don't know if it was ever something that he was as passionate about at the beginning. It was just people offering him work, and, you know, he took it. To, 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 hey, I'm going to be in the movies. Right. I don't think I don't think you would – if you asked him, and in his heart of hearts, I don't think he ever would have thought that he would have become as big of a star in the movies as he is. You know? Well, because his trajectory no. was so weird, too. Because, like, it was expected that it would happen so much sooner than it did. He's only been the biggest movie star in the world since he jumped into the Fa- Fast and Furious series. Yeah, kind of. I mean, he had already... He had already. He was a was bankable star, but he had the, like, first, okay, action movies aren't working. Let me try to be a serious actor. That's not working. Let me do the Disney stuff. The Disney stuff was a big deal. And then um, Fast comes kind of after that. Yeah, because, I mean, you look, I mean, he was, um, he had the rundown, then Walking Tall, Be Cool, Doom, Southland Tales, Gridiron Gang, uh, The Game Plan, Get Smart, Race the Witch Mountain, Planet 51, Two Fairy. Then the other guys, can't forget that, faster. That's that's where it kind of starts. And then he gets in Fast Five. So faster in 2010, and then you go to Fast Five in 2011, and then it's boom. Because then you got Journey to Mysterious Island, Snitch, G.I. Joe, Revelation, Retaliation, where he plays Roblox, Pain and Gain, Fast Six. I mean, it's just from then on. You know, Hercules, Furious 7, San Andreas, Central Intelligence, Fate of the Furious, Baywatch. <laughs> so, I mean, you just keep going and going and going. Yeah, so. But yeah, I mean, it's the it's the, the fast movies that really puts him on that next level. Yeah, absolutely right. So, yeah. 
This is the beginning of it, though. Stuart Schneider was named President and Chief Operating Officer at WFE on June the 7th. Technically, Vincent Mann is the Chairman of the Board, and Linda McMahon, who was President and COO, is now Chief Executive Officer. Schneider, who has recent experience heading the division at USA Network, as well as running the Ringland Brothers Road Tours, is being brought in to lighten the load on Vincent Linda McMahon, excuse me, as it regards to running day-to-day marketing and public relations, as well as the business end. Linda will be spending more time working as the company liaison to Wall Street and working as it pertains to stockholder relations. Schneider's role will be running the day-to-day business decisions and report directly to Vince and Linda. Well, Stuart Schneider will become a major part of the WCW buyout, as you listen to patreon.com slash between the sheets. So, here's the question. If he's not put in this position, that I mean, that drastically changes everything, doesn't it? Because he's Brad Siegel, him and Brad Siegel are tied. Well, not just that, but he was a former Turner executive too. Exactly. So if he's not in this spot, huh? You know, I don't think I realized he had only gotten there so recently. Yeah. So it's in June, and the stuff and the stuff you know is, is takes starts talking towards the end of the year. October, I believe. So it kind of makes you wonder here. Like, let's look at the timing. Snyder gets put in this spot here. What did we talk about at the beginning of the show? What was going on? SFX. Negotiations, yes. Which goes back to what I was saying in that section about Brad Siegel. I'm sure that him and Stu Snyder are already talking. Hmm. Already. Maybe. Because Stu Snyder's got this ju- is now in this position right as these negotiations are supposedly taking place. Hmm. You know? Hmm. So there could be smoke to that fire. Absolutely. Something to just think about. All right, SmackDown tapings on May the 30th in Tacoma, Washington. Drew a set of 17,730, paying 565,642. It started with Too Cool going to a no contest with the Hardys when Kane came out and chokeslammed everybody. Kane still had the WF title belt. Triple H came out and asked him for his belt back. Kane said he'd get the belt back if he could get a title shot. Triple H promised him a title shot if he first beat him in a non-title match on that show. Well, how about that? Vince and DX arrived, and Undertaker came out in his motorcycle. Taker asked for a title shot at Triple H. Vince said no, unless Taker can beat both X-Pac and the Road Dog in a handicap match. You know, well, let me continue real quick, then I'm going to say this. Triple H and Vince went up and argued with each other since each had promised another title shot. You can already see where this is headed. You know what's confusing about the 1999-2000, those two years in general in WWF, is all of these alignments of people that are together and not together on the Vince DX side of things. Yes. Shane. That, it, yes. I mean, well, Xbox and Road Dog. Yeah. They're with them. They're not with them. They're with them. They're not. I mean, it's just like, what? <laughs> it gets so damn confusing. Going back and looking at it in hindsight. Yes. So, yeah. All right. Shane, Edge, and Christian met up with The Rock. Shane promised Edge and Christian a tag title shot. They could beat The Rock in a handicap match. But if Rock won, he'd be no more contender for the singles title. Okay. Triple H and Vince, they both yelled at Shane since they already made deals for no more contenders. <laughs> Oops. 
Angle did an interview saying he'd win the King of the Ring and then pinned Bradshaw clean in a qualifying match. But after the match, Bradshaw got right up and cleaned his clock. Of course. <laughs> He's Bradshaw. Chris Benoit beat D'Lo Brown with a cross face in a good match. And Terry Runnels beat the Cat in the arm wrestling match by squirting water in her face. Cat made a comeback and used a Bronco Buster on Terry. Lawler pulled the Cat off, then laid in the corner and asked Cat to give him a Bronco Buster. But she didn't. <laughs> well, at least they were together at the time, Picks. There's nothing creepy about that, is it? Can we just move on? <laughs> uh, Undertaker beat Road Dogg and X-Pac in a handicap match with a choke slam on X-Pac. Dudley's came out to keep DS from running away. After the match, Taker also choke slammed Devon Dudley. Chris Jericho beat Bob Holly with a lion saw to Holly crashed to a chair. Benoit had set up on the side of the ring after you know, a few missed spots. Robbie and Christian. They did the false finish where Shane hit the rock with a chair, but rock kicked out the pin. And main event saw Kane pin triple H with a choke slam. There were five flashers in the crowd who were kicked off for those keeping score. You know, what the big takeaway of this show is let's just take our tag teams, put them in handicap matches and drop them out. What else is now? I mean, this is, I mean, for those people that always complain about how tag teams are booked in WWE, I mean, Sasha Banks and Naomi, for example. It's nothing new. Look at this. 2000. It's going hot and heavy here. So, nothing new at all. All right. This show drew a 4.63 rating, equivalent to a 5.4 realistic rating, since 15% of the country doesn't have UPN, and network ratings are figured based on the entire universe of homes in the country. While cable ratings, which are misleading, are figured based only on the number of homes that have access to their station. Is that good enough for your explanation, Bix, of realistic rating? You mean that he actually explained it for once? Yes. Yes. It's an 8.2 share as well. The rating is at a lower level than it had been even though the networks are in reruns. The share is pretty well held steady because there are fewer people watching TV due to seasonal viewing patterns. But the share should be expected to increase and not hold steady because network competitions in reruns. SmackDown's always first-run programming, though. The show opened at a 4.02, generally grew, peaking for the Triple H came in event at a 5.23 rating. So there's that. Heat on June the 4th saw Crispin Watt being Rikishi with a German suplex, holding the bridge. Dudley's beat Bossman and Buchanan in a tables match. Fans were into the tables, but the match wasn't good. China beat the Godfather in a King of the Ring qualifying match where Eddie Guerrero interfered. Perry Saturn pin Rios with an elbow at the top rope. Said it'd be sloppy early, but good finish. And Val Venus, now managed by Trish Stratus, beat Al Snow in a real good match. It isn't just the un- it isn't just the main eventers, too. The undercard is also confusing. I mean, Val Venus managed by Trish Stratus. How, I mean, how remember that? How long did that last? Serious Val Venus? I mean, there's just so much stuff that's like, even in 2000 is always considered a great year too, yeah. but it's just so much stuff thrown together, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, raw on June the 5th in Rochester, New York, do it's a 97, 87 paying 286, The show opened with a lengthy as in 27 minutes, way too lengthy gap fest. Yes. It went two full quarter hours. Triple H, who it surely seems to be going babyface sooner or later, went on forever and teased a split with Vince. Vince, who actually came out to a babyface reaction, which was clearly the reaction expected, 
was about to score off with Triple H until Shane was a peacemaker. All three won't be the one who would run the company. Vince and Triple H both decked Shane before Stephanie slapped everybody. Rock, Kane, and Undertaker all came out one and a shot Triple H. They made a three-way with the winner getting a shot later in the show. Let's go to Wade Keller. Wade thought it was a solid seven, but it made little sense for Rock just to walk out as Vince and Triple H were getting ready to fight each other. If WF plans to turn Kane or Undertaker heel, one of them should have walked out first. Later, when Rock moved down the entrance ramp, it became predictable someone else would be walking out behind him. Sure enough, Kane walked out for his promo. And Kane moved, moved down the ramp, making an obvious Undertaker walk out for his promo. As good as segment was, it would have been more exciting and less predictable had Taker Kane walked out through the crowd to cut their promo. Huh? And Kane does turn heel soon. Yes. Yes, all the babyface heel turns. Well, that's another thing. That's, that's a forgotten one. And the only yeah, reason... I mean, oh. you, you know, the only reason I even remember this one happening, though, is... And here's another thing that's forgotten, because he covers up and they don't really do anything with it, is that they have the match at SummerSlam where Undertaker unmasks him. That's the only yeah. reason I remember this turn at all. There's so much. So much going on. But they're kicking ass in the ratings. What can you say? We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Test, Albert, and Val Venus. Uh, well, wait a minute. They made a three-way shot uh, for the title. Blah, 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 blah. All right. Test, Albert, and Venus beat Tuku and Rikishi at 446 when Venus hit Grandmaster Sex A with a title belt for the pin. Grandmaster's really unpopular while the wrestlers. So if Too Cool breaks up, it's because they're trying to get the word out that it's Scotty and Rikishi who are over and Grandmaster Sexay can't hang. Figuring on his own, he'll be stuck in metal matches. Huh. Interesting. Boy, as the bloom fell off the Too Cool and Rikishi rose by this point in time, hadn't it? They were just the hottest act in the company four months earlier. Mm-hmm. Wow. But uh, this... You know this what? Is the, but this is the era where Brian's issues get out of control. So. Yeah, but but what happens though? What as they're getting hot? What happens? What specific? The radicals, uh, the radicals oh, yes. show up. Well, if they're they hottest in up, the match with the radicals, though. Well, yeah, but they take their push. If the radicals don't show up, you know, does the tool cool push last longer? But they feuded with them, kind of. And still, I think I, I think it hurts them to, in a way because they come in and, and you know I mean because I just think it hurts them. I really do. That and other things. Yeah. All right, I got a damn fly flying around my head right now. All right, uh, Crash Holly tried to attack Gerald Briscoe during the faction hug, but the door was shut and he ran into the door. Chris Benoit then beat Road Dog in a King of the Ring qualifier on a minute 41 with a German suplex when the Dudleys distracted Road Dog. Dudleys teased putting Tory through a table afterwards, but X-Pop made the save. There's that too. The Tory uh, stuff as well with X-Pop came, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Patterson and Briscoe doing an interview and Crash tried to hit Briscoe with a chair, but instead hit Patterson, which led to Crash challenging Joe Briscoe. Crash continued to play his role as a petulant little child. Briscoe won the match at 221, despite Briscoe being gagged to death with Pat Patterson's stained underwear. After grossing out Briscoe and most of the audience, Crash ran to a stop sign, and Patterson and Briscoe both covered him for the pin. No, we are not playing none of this shit. No. And uh, Way Keller notes that Pat Patterson's underwear gimmick has already run its course. Yes, because this was not the first time this happened. No. So no, we're not playing this shit. 
Alright, Rock won a three-way in 343, pitting Kane on a rock bottom end after Triple H and Ringside hit both Undertaker and Kane with chair shots. Triple H didn't hit the rock with a chair shot to the match. Undertaker was looking really old and out of shape. If they aren't careful, Undertaker's going to wind up because of his name, and he has to be pushed, but he can't perform or do a good interview like one of those old guys on top in WCW that can't be moved out and the company suffers in the long run. Boy, isn't that an interesting thing to read. <laughs> And let's go to Wade real quick, Bix, for uh, you have any comments possibly. The biggest surprise of the show came when Rock won this match. Wade was surprised, though, if we give away the Rock versus Triple H on Raw. It must be a sign that they plan on moving away from the feud, but wanted to give it some sort of conclusion for the time being. If WF is moving on from Rock and Triple H, the big question now is what to do with Rock. It makes sense to have Taker and Kane turn on him in the pay-per-view. While Taker's really over with the fans, if WF may not be confident his new gimmick will work long-term. At the same time, WF has failed to add any new dimension to Kane's gimmick other than giving him more mic time. WF has a shortage of main event heels, so the timing might be right for a Taker, or a Kane, or maybe even Big Show, heel faction. Any thoughts on all this? The least interesting things happening in the main event scene at the time? No. And, uh, I mean, uh, how about the, you know, uh, that's the thing about The Undertaker. At this time, I mean, he came back from that time off. The new gimmick change and everything. If you would have told me in 2000 what what, what would happen in these future years, I wouldn't have believed you. No, because this felt like his, it was going to be his last run. Yeah, because he's not doing the Undertaker gimmick. He's going out with this character. Which just you know? started, you know, because I forget what day Judgment Day was. It was on, but... it was on that pay-per-view, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah I mean. came back on the May pay-per-view. So yeah, you're thinking this is this is it for this guy. He's not going to last too much longer because he's so beat up. Nope. <laughs> Boy, were we wrong. So hell, and he may not mean he may not even be done now. We got Crown Jewel coming up. <laughs> Don't be surprised if he's not working. Uh, that I mean, show. it wouldn't shock me. Well, they're they're clearly planning something from how they have been hyping it up as some kind of returning legends thing. There's clearly something in mind. I just don't know what. Yeah. All right. Back to 2000. Eddie Guerrero and China beat Dean Malenko on the Godfather in 250 when Guerrero pinned Malenko with some awesome wrestling into an inside cradle. Lawler asked the Godfather about getting a pipe job. <laughs> they teased the spot where Eddie was fooling around with the hose at ringside and China got mad, but didn't go any further. Oh, yeah, we should mention, too, yeah, more explicitly, speaking of turns and everything, the Radicals split up, split up after three months. Oh, oh, God. That, again, 2000 WWF gets all this praise for its great booking and stuff. I think it's mainly because of one angle, Triple H and Kurt Angle. And the Foley stuff. Yeah, early on. yeah, yeah, but good God, the Radicals, I mean, good Lord. So are we oh. already up to James Bond, Malenko? I think we're getting there, yeah. <sighs> That happened so much quicker then than I realized. Good lord. Um, but yeah, Judgment Day. You've got the Benoit Jericho rematch. And then the other three radicals are facing each other in a three way. Insane. It's blowing through stuff left and right. Mm hmm. I mean, and nothing changed either because, you know, they had been around for over a year, but Shield finally turns babyface in 2014. They are split up. What was it, two and a half months later? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Absolutely. All right, uh, another King Ring qualifier. 
Parkour Holly beat Farouk in 304 with the what a maneuver. <laughs> That'd be Alabama Slam, wouldn't it? Uh, no, this would be the Falcon Air. Okay. Or as it would come to be called, the Holly cost. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That didn't last long. As the name, yeah, I don't think they use it that much. But yes, he did do the deal here in this era. Oof. In a really good match, Edge of Christian and Angle, T-Mac, uh, defeated the Dudley's Chris Jericho in 409 when Angle pinned Bubba with his Olympic slam. Jericho was great wrestling, but the fans chanted for tables. After the match, they gave Angle a 3D through the table after Jericho had put Angle in the walls of Jericho. We'll have more on that in just a minute. Hardy's beat Bossman and Bull Buchanan in 239 when Jeff pinned Buchanan after Swan Time. Lita was backstage watching the Hardys. Bossman and Buchanan did their split up after the match with Buchanan walking off, and Bossman hit with a nightstick. Dave said, I think we saw that same angle with Albert. Wade Keller. This was a decent match, but as I said before, Bossman should not appear on Raw or SmackDown until he's over. The mere sound of his music is enough to kill even the hottest crowd. How many times have we seen other wrestlers beat him up and turn their heads only to be attacked with a nightstick? He works hard, but until the writers find a way to get him over again, if that's possible, he should be regulated to work in heat and house shows. Mm. Way bringing the heat. No he's, not wrong. he's not wrong, though. Like, yeah. Bossman's music did get like that noticeable groan reaction at times. Yes. Triple H did yet another interview. Boy, it was clear who was in the ear of people who put together a TV show. They did the angle to set up Stephanie to defend the title on SmackDown with Ivory and Jackie challenging, challenging her. Not good. Not, none of this stuff's good. Uh, basically, Stephanie said there's no challenges for the belt. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jackie and Ivory demanding matches. So Stephanie said there'll be a women's battle royal on SmackDown to determine the number one contender. So there you go. Triple H beat The Rock as the main event on Raw in 931 to keep the title in another really good match. Triple H took the batch off onto the table. DX McMahon's all came out. Rock used people's elbow, but Xbox stopped the count. After a rump bump, all the heels attacked The Rock. Undertaker and Kane came out for the save. Rock went and hit Shane with a chair, but he moves and he hit Rock at the Undertaker. Undertaker then chokes down The Rock. Triple H pinned him. While Rock has done more jobs than anyone with his level of drawing power has done, maybe ever, and certainly ever on television, when this show was over, Dave's got a feeling, even with the nature of the finish, it was the wrong job on the wrong day to the wrong guy. And Dave's right. Rock was one of the most unselfish top guys to ever be in this business. You know? Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, outside of Austin, his programs weren't like heat programs, though. So he didn't really need to play by the usual rules. No, but still. He, uh, I mean, he... Look at, I mean, look at the stuff he did with... Uh, you know, the jobs he did for, was it Rhino? Did he do one for Rhino? Maybe. Did he do a job for Rhino? Did he do one for Christian? These sound familiar. I mean, of course, the stuff with Hurricane. So, yeah, Rot was definitely unselfish. Absolutely. All right, the Torch had more on the Bubba Ray deal from Raw. There was some eyebrow raising when Bubba Ray Dudley kicked that right out, out right at the three count when he had the job to Kurt Angle on Raw. The WF locker room veterans took that look at that look at the quick kick out as immature and markish. Back by with some clashes with wrestlers younger than him has dropped Bubba a few notches in some WWF quarters. I don't think anyone's shocked to read that, are they? Really? 
<laughs> uh, Bob Ackles at the show, running around the stands. It's hard to figure out why, since Rochester isn't exactly part of Connecticut's first district. <laughs> a woman flashed the crowd during a commercial break before Edge Christian and Angles match, which distracted the crowd during the early part of the match. After the live show ended, they didn't do anything after the show to send the phones home, fans home happy with Rock doing a speech as would be expected. Oh, well. Let's talk about the ratings, shall we? The ratings had to be a huge disappointment for WCW. As it was the best hype Nitro since the first Russo Bischoff show on April 10th, complete with Bill Goldberg's first match back, and an almost pay-per-view lineup of matches. During the day, people within the company were talking about the show doing a 4.0 rating. As it turned out, Raw delivered a 5.95 rating. 5.40 first hour, 6.44 second hour, 9.3 share. Nitro did a 2.86 rating. 3.09 first hour, 2.67 second hour, 4.4 share. Head-to-head was 5.49 to 2.67. So a down Raw, still more than double Nitro. The total head-to-head wrestling audience was down to 9.4 million. That's why WCW hyping Nitro so strongly on Thunder, as well as spending more money than usual advertising the show. The return of the mut- ring of much like Goldberg take out match only drew a 2.9 rating, although it held the WS lengthy open conference with the McMahon family, which Rock did come out in the first quarter, he came out second quarter, to a 4.7 rating. The lowest rated Raw quarter in a long time. Nitro dropped 15% of their audience when Raw started, which at least was a little more than half of what it does a t- typical week, like the previous one, so that's a positive. That's because they did a tremendous job in the first hour of hyping Goldberg's return, not to mention buying a giant ad in USA Today hyping Goldberg's return. Even though Tank Abbott was totally mishandled as far as making him a threat to Goldberg and building intrigue for their meeting, the fact is Goldberg against a broomstick after six months off should have resulted in stronger numbers the past two weeks, which shows he's not going to be anything close to fixing the problem. And Dave thinks a heel turn will only negate the drawing power he does have, just as he did for Ric Flair, who was the company's only other true draw in the babyface role, and then draw ratings nearly as well as a heel. Now, as far as main event comparisons, Rocket Triple H drew a 6.47 final quarter, 7.58 overrun. WCW's main event in Nashville on the gauntlet did a 2.70. Other head-to-head numbers saw Raw at a 5.97, where the conference continued to a 2.15, Sting and Jarrett, which really drives home the value of the WCW title when someone other than Flair has it, because Sting is a quality contender, and nobody knew until after the fact this was a non-title match, as it was sold on TV beforehand as a title match. WCW, everybody. Raw fell to a 5.38. Rikishi Too Cool versus Valvius TNA and Benoit Rodal, while Nitro grew to a 2.86 for Kimberly and Mike Awesome against DDP and Miss Hancock and Hogan versus Horace. Raw did a 5.26 for the Briscoe Crash Holly thing. Nitro did a 2.79 for Flair and Russo. So both both shows fell in that quarter. <laughs> Raw did a 6.13 for the Rock came Undertaker against Nitro's 2.7 for Nash running the gauntlet. Ratings are telling the story, aren't they, Bix? Uh, yes. I mean, this is Goldberg's first match back after six months. And it's against Tank Abbott, who... I mean, they hadn't done the greatest job in the world of building Tank Abbott up, but he's still Tank Abbott, and it's Goldberg. I mean, it's a matchup that should be intriguing to a significant group of people. No. Yeah. 
And we should also note, by the way, the, the number that Dave gave in millions for the total audience, it's 2,000, so that's households. That's not viewers. Yeah. Uh, let me see if I have anything more detailed here in the... Okay, here we go. So we do have... Um, in the spreadsheet, we have the take stuff from more than one source. Okay, we do actually have viewership for this week, all right? Nitro, we only have hour one for some reason, but it's... Um... So wait, what did Gabe give as the total earlier, since I'm not looking at that right now? Uh, 2.7? No, total number of them in millions that he said, so that's presumably household. Uh, let me look. Here, so I moved off of that. Uh, they did a 2.86 rating, 3.09 first hour, 2.67 second hour, 4.4 share. Oh, so 9.4 million is what he was uh, below that, though. Okay, I just see it. Now. Well, that's the total audience. Right. That. Okay, no, that might actually be viewers. No, no, no. It, okay, no. He. I don't know. Okay, yeah, it is viewers because he we don't have the hour two night number for Nitro. So that actually is viewers. That is not households. Because household-wise, um, the overlapping for the – I mean, in the opposed hour, it was a little over 6.1, like 6.2 million households. Because, so, yeah, Raw, though, did 6.92 million viewers in the first hour, 7.89 million viewers in the second. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and it just shows you how hot wrestling was at that time. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. Mm-hmm. And you look at the shows and it's not that good. Mm. But it was hot and people loved it back then, you know? Yeah. Where were we? How much rating, more ratings talk do we have? Uh, we got a little bit of the weekend stuff to talk about. Um, as I scroll back down here. Uh, the weekend range from June 3rd and 4th were not kind at all. Livewire did a 1.1. Third highest rated show of the day on USA, which may be the lowest market the show's done in years. Superstars did a 1.3. The high, eighth highest rated show in the station for the day, and the lowest rated from the period of 10 a.m. through 8 p.m. Wasn't much better. Sunday Night Heat did a 2.45. Highest rated show on MTV for the day. It's now falling below Thunder. It's the third highest rated cable rated show of the week. After consistently being number two for most of the past year. And like last week, more there was a legitimate excuse for the rating. This wasn't a holiday weekend. The rating basically stayed steady. W7 Saturday Night did a 1.4. Fourth highest rated show on the station, but second lowest between noon and 2 a.m. People just don't watch wrestling on the weekends no more. They, the, the, the conditioning of, of wrestling fans has become that the weekends don't matter. It's about the weekly shows during mm-hmm. the week. And Sunday nights once a month. Or twice a month if you're watching both. Yeah. They take SmackDown during our week on June the 6th. Uh, they drew 11,636 paying 386,806 at the HSBC Arena in Buffalo. The show had dark matches with the Dubs over Funaki and Takamichinoku and Joey Legend over Rob Echeverria. Of course, SmackDown taping would be after our week, so we're not going to talk yes, about that. Yes, but uh, Rob Echeverria, though, would be uh, Rob Fuego, one of, I believe, yes. one of the trainers of Joe Legend. Yes. House shows Milwaukee on June the third. You're thirteen thousand five sixty, paying three eighty four twenty one. June fourth in Toronto, you're sixteen thousand three ninety nine at the Sky Dome, paying five fifty six nine ninety three. Merchandise for the week of the venues totaled four hundred eight thousand three eighty eight, which was seven dollars and eleven cents per head. 
in Milwaukee. They had the Rock and the Dudleys over TX in the main event, which they put on midway in the show. But the tag title match with Too Cool and TNA in the final slot. Oof. Toronto was a similar show. Rock and Triple H win the six-man with April's elbow. Lita wearing pants like the Hardys interfered, giving the Hardys a win over Christian and Edge. Christian and Edge turned on Toronto home fans when Edge wore a New Jersey Devils hockey jersey. Talking about the Devils beating the Maple Leafs. Cat was in Too Cool's corner to counter Trish being in the corner of TNA in the final match of the show. So there's your house show stuff. All right, Torch. Michael Hayes has been working as an agent for some time now. Some wrestlers feel he has gotten a big head ever since and describe him as being a know-it-all. Hayes continues to be the Hardys boys' biggest supporter behind the scenes. Well, of course. He wasn't already an agent? It says as an agent. That's what I'm saying. He wasn't already until recently? I guess not. I guess it, I guess he was more just personally mentoring the Hardys while doing whatever other backstage stuff he was doing. Well, you know, he was doing... Creative. He had been in Power Pro. Well, he'd been in Power Pro in 99. I mean, he was doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Although some in the locker room can't understand why, Shane McMahon is a big fan of Steve Blackman's work and plans to get him a push. Well, he does. <laughs> WF Riders had planned to split up the Blackman Al Snow team, but Vince McMahon decided to keep them together once he found out that Al Snow has legitimate karate background. One source said he's under the impression that Snow was a black belt. Ah, uh, head cheese. Who cares? <laughs> oh, yeah, Al Snow, by the way, which, by the way, <laughs> Now that all this OVW Park Drama and bullshit is back in the news, I asked someone on Twitter how much does OVW charge these days now that um, they're actually pro wrestling's only school that is like an accredited trade school that you can get financial aid and stuff for. How much do you think OVW charges, Chris? No idea. A little under 16 grand. <clears throat> the owner of OVW is, I mean, a guy well, that's. Snow is current owner, though. Snow, it, well, Matt Matt Jones is the uh, he's the face of it, yeah, yeah. But Snow is still a part owner in some form, and it's his business. Um, but seriously, for even setting aside all this stuff that happened more recently with Facade and Danny Mo, and you can Google that if you don't know what happened. If you're listening, please just go to any other reputable wrestling school. Please don't spend all that money. Don't ever Rogers hear you say that. He blocked me on Twitter for reasons I still don't know. So, <laughs> I'm not going to my ideas <laughs> about Rip. What? Well, well okay. Because, I mean, because Rip's still in line with those guys. So, well, okay, yeah, there is that. But it was well at the time he did it, though. I don't know. Anyway, all right. Let's continue on here. There's still plans to bring May Foley back as the commissioner. Shawn Michaels relinquishing the commissioner on Raw means it could happen any time, but no date's been set. Undertaker's still not 100%, so Dave is being careful with how he's used. He's supposed to be ready to go all out around King of the Ring shortly thereafter. If Lex Luger become a free agent, WF has zero interest in him. Luger left the WF on bad terms, working on a contract. Luger in the process, and McMahon were in the process of working on a new deal. He wrestled on TV tape for WF, then debuted on Nitro as a surprise for the WF footage made the television. Also, WF doesn't want a locker room malcontent polluting their generally positive morale. Yeah, that's a definite no. That's on Luger, so there's that. Yes, generally positive WCW, morale. I like that. Yeah. If the current Haynes WCW deal aspires, he's not supposed to be offered a Luger a contract by WF. Odds are against them even offering him any kind of a contract because his track record and fear that he, like Luger, might rile up the young wrestlers with anti-management sentiment if he were to become disenchanted with his push. 
Oh no, not anti-management sentiment. That would be terrible. So that's at a WrestleMania. Some mid carters <laughs> claim that WF Office has turned out Hollywood producers who have requested some mid carters by name for roles, but offered up top wrestlers as replacements. The more things change. <laughs> I mean, what was it? And in this case, he's not even a mid carter at the time. What was the story Punk told on the podcast when he told everything that there was someone that wanted him for a movie? Triple H told him he couldn't do it. Well, no. It, the filming was scheduled for during the European tour. And Punk was like, well, wait, isn't that the European tour when he was checking the dates? And Hunter was like, I don't know. I don't know why that turned into Johnny Ace. But um, and then it ends up being the European tour. And didn't wasn't it Orton got it? Yeah. So everything old is new again. Nothing changes. Well, Randy Orton looks like somebody should be in the movies, big. not seeing Punk. Yeah. I mean, also, I, mean, I was looking back, I found the stuff from, I tweeted like a year or two ago, um, I think it was an article in Channels Magazine, where they talked to like Basil DeVito or someone, and talking about the edits they do for Saudi Arabia, for syndication, and stuff like that, and how they have to tailor their product there. Oh, well, cool. I think, but also because it's lucrative, so more things change. Well, I'm sure... I'm sure they've had to do that in other countries too over the years that were kind of strict on content. Oh, I'm sure, but still. I mean, they ain't gonna send you know a show to the Saudis uh, with all the stuff that they they show. So, you know, yeah. But anyway, I right, step so back to this here. Uh, there's some guard interest in Raven. But he would need to prove himself with a low downside contract to be drug free for the WF to even consider him. Well, they bring him in. So there is that. Although, and, well, yeah. Chris, remember there's the story, I believe, which comes from Raven that when Vince found out he was hired, who the fuck hired Raven again? <laughs> well, him and Vince didn't actually. Uh, have great terms leaving. I mean, Vince was pissed off at him because he was corrupt and chain. So yes. Oh, okay. I've, it wasn't. Uh, oh no. Wait. Well, so, okay. I got confused. Uh, which was part? Uh, the, okay. This, so this is from the January '89 issue of Channels. Titan carefully edits out immodestly dressed female fans for the Middle East market. It's worth the effort to adapt to local customs. WWF wrestling is quote the highest rated program in the United Arab Emirates. Jim Troy says. Reflecting its appeal in that part of the world, he adds, Hulk Hogan recently did a commercial for mobile oil in Saudi Arabia in Arabic, which is real. And I tweeted it at some point. See, I thought you were talking about shit they were doing for Saudi Arabia now. No, I was saying that as a more things change, more say the same, that they were doing that for the Arabic language version. But editing out fans, immodestly dressed female fans. Well, they, we can't see what they look like over here, Bex. I mean, the women can't over there can't see... The women over here being able to dress however they like. Well, God forbid. I, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. Speak. Hey, what a great segue. Parents Television Council honorary national chairman Steve Allen and PTC advisory board member Dr. C. Dolores Tucker. Oh, that's a blast in the past. Spoke this past week at the MCI WorldCom shareholders meeting in Clinton, Mississippi, to demand the company pull its advertising out of SmackDown. The PTC has pressured MCI to pull out the show for months, but the company's response has been it denies 
it bears the responsibility for content the programs and sponsors. Alan spoke about four children who had killed other children by mimicking pro wrestling moves. Luckily, they only know about four because there are several more than that. Alan gave MCI one week to pull out the show or threaten them with nation, nationwide educational campaign to inform Americans that MCI WorldCom shares the offensive values of the World Wrestling Federation. The PTC claims that more than 35 companies listing Wendy's, Ford, General Motors, Coca-Cola, AT&T, M&M Mars, Clorox, State Farm Insurance, Office Depot, Walgreens, Saks, Inc., Delta, Southwest Airlines, Allstate Insurance, The Gap, Procter & Gamble, Hershey's, McDonald's, SBC Enterprises, that's not Sinclair Broadcasting, Maytag, Colgate, Palmolive, Kellogg's, Pfizer, Domino's, Federated Department Stores, Best Foods, Wrigley's, Bank of America, Johnson & Johnson, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Coast Guard. <laughs> I guess this is what they're claiming that's, uh, that's not going to advertise the WF programming, I guess. That's all Dave says. He said it claims that more than 35 companies, and that's the end of the paragraph, end of the sentence. He didn't claim what they what, he doesn't say what they claim the companies are doing. Amazing. There's an amazing contradiction from L. Brent Bozell, who spearheaded the original sponsorship boycott of SmackDown, since he lashed out at Procter & Gamble for dropping sponsorship of Dr. Laura's TV show in the fall because of what they perceived as anti-gay comments on her radio show, claiming the pull-out sponsorship amounted to a form of censorship. Well, of course, Bix. I mean, it's okay for us to, you know, have these companies pull out of this thing that we deem is, you know, um, inappropriate or immoral inappropriate, or whatever. Offensive. Yeah. But if somebody is making anti-gay comments, you know, we're not against, we're, we're against gays, basically. So we agree with that. So you're censorship. That's censoring. Yep. It's funny how things are, you know, this is 2000 and we see this, you know, even back then. Yep. You know? Yep. And a bunch of those companies, it turned out, had never advertised on SmackDown. No. They, they were just companies that I think it was PTC reached out to and asked, do you have any plans of advertising on SmackDown? If they were not previously advertising on SmackDown. No. You think Saks Fifth Avenue was putting some, some stuff on there? I mean, no. On, and SBC Enterprises, I'm guessing, is SBC Global, the ISP. I guess. Also, would Pfizer be advertising on w on SmackDown in 2000? Would Bank of America uh, even be advertising on SmackDown in 2000? Maytag, <laughs> just uh, ridiculous. Forge GM. Yeah. After his problems last week, Dave Boy Smith was taken off the active roster and was sent home for treatment in Calgary. Davey was taking care of his children and has gone through a myriad of problems. Some stuff created and others, such as the loss of family members, not the case. He's got numerous personal issues as well as tax issues pressing. He's still being kept on the payroll. Torch so, follows up. Okay. Torch. There's fear in the WF that they release him, he won't get better. So they're continuing to help try to help him. Management is trying to save his life, said one wrestler. When rumors surfaced that WF1 is too hard to come people like at the Calgary House show late last month. The Hart family arranged to take Stu camping that weekend, the first time he went camping in decades. Some members of the Hart family criticized WF for running a live event in Calgary one year after Owen's death. The WF, though, usually runs shows out of the United States on more than a weekend, 
says that we can historically draw terribly in the United States. All right, what were you going to say about Davy? This was just a no condition to perform kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, he had problems before, but the back issues just made it so much worse. Yeah. Sad. The plan right now is for Paul Bear to be repackaged and kept on the Undertaker Kane storyline. Perhaps returning an old-time manager role under his previous name of Percy Pringle, or another name, but taking a similar Pringle-like character. If only. But no, that doesn't happen. No, he's just taken off TV. And starts working a little in production before, I believe—I mean, there was a mix of the trying to get help for some of the weight issues, and then also— I think it's around this time also where his wife gets cancer, right? Yeah. So there, there's just a lot going on, and that's why he doesn't really come back for another run at this point. Yeah. A 30-minute film called Dead Beats that may follow did back in his WCW days playing a bill collection being released on video. I have no recollection of this. I don't either, but like, wasn't Big Money Hustlers also released years after the fact, too? Yeah. Like what is what is it with all this stuff Mick does showing not showing up like so much later than originally intended? Other than it's just direct to video, whatever. Who knows? Crash Holland was given a new hire contract, although his distant contract and not expired. Well, they're uh, proud of his work, I guess. Yes, yes. It's almost as if sometimes if you're outperforming your contract, you should expect to get paid more and have it a renegotiated contract. But of course you should expect for that contract to be in, in to be uh, extended because otherwise contracts don't work that way. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a shame, by the way, that there are certain wrestlers who are being uh, smeared as not understanding that contracts don't work that way, even though they clearly understood that contracts don't work that way. And I'm sure it has nothing to do with the uh, religious or ethnic origins of this pro wrestler that this false rumor was raised. And possibly that other wrestler may want out, too, because he wants to go somewhere else. So there's that as well. All right. After some discussion, the decision seems to be made to keep Takamichinoku and Shofunaki after their current deal expires. Which well, Funa- Funaki, Funaki stays there forever. Taka, yeah. Taka leaves and goes back to Japan. Yes. Yeah. The Dups are said to be close to debuting on television, and there's discussion of a possible angle for Scott Vick. Of course there is. Joe Heiklin, Joey Legend's visa problems have been taken care of, so that issue delaying his debut is no longer there. Hmm. Okay. Just yet. WF has yet to make a decision on whether or not to renew Rick Grimes' step up little deal. And to close out, Kevin Kelly on Bite This claimed that Todd Pettengill was lying when he claimed he would be returning to the World Wrestling Federation. Well, clearly. <laughs> but Todd had went on his radio show and saying that he was going to come back. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing in New York. And, yeah, I mean, they came out and said, no, that's not true. Yeah, um... It happens so rarely, too. I mean, since you were kind of lightning round in this one, it's weird to look back at a time where they actually weren't getting all their visas just quickly rubber stamped. Different times. Because, like, I mean, I've never published this just because I never found a good opportunity to. But a while back, I did a FOIA request with, you know, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to try to see if there was anything about how they determine visa eligibility for pro wrestlers and what class and stuff. And they sent me some emails back, and one of them basically said, yeah, we pretty much just approve everything WWE asks for. This was maybe like 2016, maybe a little later. 
So things have changed. And there are occasionally delays and stuff. There was that lawsuit we don't know the nature of because you couldn't pull the records online last year um, where they sued over some issues, clearly with someone's visa. But other than that, this kind of thing very rarely happens now. I mean, look, you know, as obviously the NXT UK thing was going to help and then also the pandemic calming down. But like in an earlier era where they're not getting all of them rubber stamped this easily. I don't know if Ben Carter gets his visa as soon as he did, right? Probably not. You know, I mean, they're able to show he's a WWE wrestler because of NXT UK, and they have that advantage that they didn't have before. But still, it could have been a lot trickier, you know? So, yeah. And uh, Grimes does not get renewed, I don't believe, right? At all. No. 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 So, that is it for this week's episode of Between the Sheets. Next week on Between the Sheets, a Patreon-requested show. As uh, Jace Nakarado requested us to do 1991, which we did uh, last year. The week before this week that we're doing here. So, uh, some familiarity going on here. Now, World Championship Wrestling during our week has Clash of the Champions 15 in Knoxville. Featuring the main event of Ric Flair and Bobby Eaton. So we'll have that, plus all the other stuff going on the Clash. And Steve Beverly has a major rant and rave job about uh, the stuff going on here with uh, the Clash. And, um, yeah, it's very interesting stuff here. A lot of Steve Beverly in this section. Well, so get, re- get ready for WCW here. I mean, that is one of the worst timed, and when I say timed, it means of term. I mean, in terms of laying out and timing the show, major shows in the history of professional wrestling. So, of course, Steve oh, yeah. is going to have a lot of thoughts on that. And Dusty Rhodes appears on Jim Ross's radio show and all kinds of other stuff for WCW. So, it should be fun there. All right, uh, we have news on the end of the National, which Dave Meltzer was writing for. So, we'll have that. We'll have news on a meeting uh, in Dallas between Joe Pettacino, Max Andrews, and others. So we'll talk about that. Jerry Lawler returns to Memphis after some time off. And uh, we'll talk about that. We got uh, we got Lucha. We got uh, some interesting stuff in Lucha, by the way, as well, uh, for 1991. As Conan becomes the very first ever CMLO heavyweight champion. And we'll have news on the other stuff there as well. We got some Europe. We got some Canada. We got some Universal Lucha Libre in Japan to talk about. We got uh, FMW, Mr. Pogo, in a big angle there. Uh, SWS running shows with WF Talent. New Japan at the Budokan. We'll talk about that. We got a very interesting name that wants to work with all Japan Pro Wrestling that you might not expect. Then we got the World Wrestling Federation, where... They got uh, stuff going on, including the Dr. George Zaharian trial is looming. So Dave has talk talk about that, including Dave appears on the John Arezzi show, Polo Russell Spotlight, during our week. We have the World Bodybuilding Federation making this debut. But the big story of our week, and we have not talked about this yet because we missed it by one day last year. UWF Beach Brawl 91, Herb Abrams pay-per-view next week on Between the Sheets. And I do have a guest who hasn't committed yet 
So I'm not going to say it right now. Hopefully, by the time you'll listen to halftime, that will be taken care of. But I do have a guest that is uh, trying to work out the logistics of doing the show. So there's that for next week on Between the Sheets. All right, Bix, thanks as always. You're to rock the show. This is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Sheets Patreon special edition number 68. I'm your host Chris Zelda, joined as always by my co-host David Bix and Spin. And Bix, it's time to go back to Titan Gate as we resume where we left off at March of 1992. And uh, yeah, this is going to be another one of those shows. Yeah, we've got, I think, about another month or so, another four weeks or so. And it's not going to be as dense as uh, part one, but we're still in a fairly dense part of the coverage. Yes, and uh, we'll have all kinds of uh, stuff playing off the last show, which, of course, the last show had a lot of uh, sensitive content. So I guess go ahead and get the disclaimer. Yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably listened to part one, and so I don't need to go too deep into it. But yes, because we're still fairly early on and still a lot of specific stuff breaking. If you think there's stuff that you might find uh, triggering or otherwise upsetting in terms of the 
discussions of or descriptions of, in some cases, sexual assault and child abuse and things like that, then this might not be the show for you. So, like like I said, you know, if you listen to part one, you get the idea. But still, you know, want to put that in there and in the description and all that. But yeah, so we still got plenty of steroids and stuff, too. I don't know how much Hulk Hogan cocaine we have this time, though. All right, so let's go to Mike Mooneyham in the Charleston Post Courier. Continuing controversy over Shadow's ring action for WWF. An agreement was reached with Tom Cole, whereby he got what he wanted from the beginning, and that is work here, Plenamina said. Tom feels he was discriminated against, and he stands by a story that he was discriminated against, and we gave him what he wanted. What the we fuck gave, does that mean? We gave him his job back. He wasn't looking for a million-dollar settlement. He wasn't looking for media attention. Unfortunately, he was manipulated. He was coerced, and he was used by certain media members for their own purposes. That being getting the exclusive story when unfortunately nobody out there was taking a young man's feelings into consideration. Okay, we have to stop here. I am pulling <laughs> up the unfiled Tom Cole complaint. The word discrimination appears exactly once um, in when they, as far as the first cause of action, which is uh, pursuant to New York's executive law for legal sexual harassment. And it says a uh, plaintiff repeats and realleges each and every allegation contained herein through this blah, 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 blah. And then it says the foregoing acts of defendants constitute unlawful sexual harassment and discrimination against plaintiff in violation of New York executive uh, law 296. So this is Steve Planamenta and whoever else at Titan going out of their way to find the wording in Tom's unfiled complaint that they can use that will sound the least thorny when commenting to a newspaper. Well, right? here's the thing, though. No, here, well, here's the thing. What's he being discriminated against? I mean, if you're going to say he's being discriminated, why was he discriminated? What 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 happened that he was discriminated for? Right. Not yeah. not, not not you know not doing sexual favors for Terry Garvin. Well, that makes you look bad, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. What, why was he discriminated? Right. You know, I mean, l- let's hear about it, Steve. Why was he discriminated? What did he? What was it he he didn't do? That see, that's where who you know if it needs to be called out by whoever is talking to Steve. Like, wait a minute, what's he being discriminated against? Why? It's not the color of his skin. <laughs> no. It's not. It's not anything else like that. Is that he refused sexual advances from Terry Garvin. Specific to the firing, yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, he but Steve Lamenta won't come out and say that because then you can't, I mean, then we're fucked. <laughs> because oh, now you're admitting that this happened. Mm-hmm. Okay? See, Platt, <clears throat> if that had been me as Mooneyham, Oh, I would have went to town on this. Oh, oh, Media. so how? So how did they discriminate? How, what what type of discrimination, Steve? Yes, where's the follow ups on that? I, I mean, Steve Lamenta gave opened the door right there for some, you know, hard ass questions that would have made him sweat worse than uh, what's his name on uh, brought on a network, uh, the movie. Oh uh, God, fuck. I'm drawing the blank too. I don't know why. Or not now. We're broadcast news, Jeff. Um, oh fuck. Who was on a broadcast news that sweat so much? I can't remember. <laughs> Hold on, movie broadcast sweating. News sweaty guy. Oh, uh, Albert Brooks. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when Albert Brooks was sweating like a motherfucker on broadcast news. Um, yeah. Or Martin Short on that uh, on SNL on the skit on the sixty minutes thing about cigarettes. I mean, well, yeah, and playing Nathan Thurm in general. Yeah. So bad missed opportunity there by Steve, my bestie, by Mike Mooneyham there on that one. Yes. All right. Phil Mushick of the New York Post in a recent scathing column, blasted him at man. Never will you encounter a human being more cold-blooded, more devoid of humor and propriety than Vincent Mann, America's foremost TV babysitter, Mushnet wrote. In your wildest, most twisted dreams, you won't meet up with a likesmith man, a miscreant so practiced in the art of deception, the half-truth, and the bald-faced lie as to make the artful dodger appear clumsy. A George Steinbrenner or Don King pale by comparison. Indeed, Hannibal Lecter is the only fictional character who comes close. Mushnet storage your immediate response from WF headquarters. Oh, boy. The article was bad to the point of being good, Planamenta said. I think people have finally come to realize what Phil Mushnick's agenda is. It's a personal attack against Vince McMahon. He's made mo- no bones about the fact he hates Vince McMahon for no particular reason. Fuck you. He never had the guts to meet with Vince McMahon. John Filippelli, who's one of our executive de- television producers, has known Phil for years. John was a producer at NBC, and Mushnick had told John long before he had read anything about us that Vince was an evil person and should burn in hell. I think he just doesn't like what we do. Maybe resents Vince's success and resents defeat. No, re- re- resents feet no matter what he writes about. Nobody seems to give a crap. <laughs> uh... Could you imagine? I mean, could you imagine Steve Planamena working for WWE during this week that we record this with Sasha and Naomi and all that stuff going on? You mean the most Planamenta-esque statement outside of the Benoit? stuff in the last 20 plus years well that would well, yeah but still if he was giving interviews about this subject how well, oh, how he would <laughs> uh, and again uh chris shall we return uh to that column quickly just to give an example of perhaps why phil would feel this way yeah, go ahead. Let me make sure I have the actual quote here. Uh, Meltzer, 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 Meltzer. Let me make sure I find the right quote. Uh, Mel- Mel- Meltzer, Meltzer, Meltzer. Yeah. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. There's a joke to make here about another sheet writer, but I'm not going to. I'm saying that, but okay. Uh, why is this not here? Why am I not seeing this part? Um, oh wait, I know what to do. Peculiar. Okay, here we go. McMahon also told King's national audience that he had, quote, no idea whatsoever, end quote, about any sexual misconduct by employees, not even a hint. Yet two weeks ago, during poor his hard out phone calls, he told West Coast-based journalist Dave Meltzer, then me, that he had let Phillips go four years ago because Phillips' relationship with kids seemed peculiar and unnatural. McMahon said he rehired Phillips, with the caveat that Phillips steer clear of kids. And yet, oh, he he hates Vince McMahon for no particular reason. No, if he does hate Vince McMahon, it's because Vince McMahon told him that he fired someone because he thought he might be a child molester, and then rehired him as long as he agree to stay away from kids. Yeah. I know. 
And oh, maybe he just doesn't like what we do. Maybe he resents Vince's success. <laughs> and no, I'm not sure what FEAT was an OCR for that I missed because otherwise everything came out okay. But uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we still got a little bit more. Planet Menace said, though, if we continue to address the issues as they develop, we're confident that we're doing the right thing, Planet Menace said. If anybody feels they've been wronged by us, we urge them to come forward so we can address the issues. Uh-huh. Things are becoming so convoluted and clustered in these shows. Bruno Sammartino has had an axe to grind with Vince for a long time. He's made no bones about it, but Bruno's axe to grind was what he perceived that Vince did to the wrestling business. And that's fine. It's a legitimate case to argue from his perspective. Billy Graham's agenda is steroid abuse. That's all well and good. If they stick to their agendas, that's fine. Well, let's address the issues. Bruno's hopping on the bandwagon saying he saw sexual assets take place, and now you got Billy Graham saying, I saw that too. Brother, give me a break. No, he's saying, I saw that too, brother. Yeah. Man, give me a break. Ugh. How did this guy last so long? He's, I mean, I'm sure Vince loved him because he did shit like this. That he's being confrontational, yes, but he's clearly yeah. a fucking terrible public relations guy. Yeah, but Vince, this is the type of guy Vince would love because he's confrontational and he he, he's a, he talks the company line. He, you know, I mean. But here's the thing, though. He loves McDevitt because McDevitt's confrontational, but McDevitt is a freaking amazing lawyer. Well, of course. That That's the distinction I'm making. Like, yeah, obviously Vince <laughs> likes his style and the cut of his jib. Here's the other thing, though. Uh, I wish he had a LinkedIn or something so I would know exactly how long he had been doing PR. I guess if I just searched newspapers.com for his name, I would you know, get an idea of when he started doing PR for them. But Steve Planamento was just a guy who was a fan who rose up through the ranks and became their PR guy. Yeah. He's not, and I don't mean this as a negative in any way, because I do genuinely like him. He's not unlike Adam Hopkins now. Adam Hopkins, mainly, and for most of his adult life, has worked for, the w for WWE. He's in PR, but he is not the main PR person. Like Planamenta was. You know, you have other, you know, previously, you know, you're Brian Flynn. I think Matt Altman's still there and technically is either considered adjacent to or above him. You know, guys like that. The people who are the more experienced outside PR professionals would be the ones handling stuff like this. You know, Adam handles interview bookings and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, and... Look, and I obviously he has a lot of experience now. I'm sure he would be more than competent if he had to assume a more senior role in their communications department, as Adam did. But, like, it's insane that this Steve Planamenta is the guy, is what I'm saying. Like, let's put it this way. Like, if Mike Weber was still there, he wouldn't be spouting off like this. No. But again, Vince... Vince probably loved this. Yeah. Because this guy's a fighter like he was. Uh, you know, he fucking compared me to Hannibal Lecter. God. He's standing up to these people. Yeah. Um, okay. <clears throat> At least searching newspapers.com, the first reference to Steve Planamenta as a media coordinator for the World Wrestling Federation comes in the March 23rd, 1988 Albuquerque Journal in a WrestleMania Hype article. Which includes the box out quote, 
We don't even bother to respond to critics who say it's phony. We respond to our fans. We're here for their enjoyment. Yeah. So I'd love to know exactly what his background was, but, you know, as far as. I mean, basically what he is, he, he is a White House press secretary who is one of those confrontational ones that, you know, is going to come after the reporters and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that's what he is. Yeah. So. And the people that are fans of that per- political political party are going to defend them, and the ones that are are not fans are going to come out and rip them up. You know, mm-hmm. so that's what he is. What a friggin' maroon, though. <laughs> eh? All right, excerpts from today's WrestleMania Eight could be Hogan's WWE finale by Mike Mooneyham of the Charleston Post Courier. Y'all, real quick. New York Post comments Phil Mushnick, who in a recent article entitled Sex Life and WWF compared Vincent Man and to Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter. Disputed comments made by WS Post with Steve Planeman in last week's column. Planeman said Mushnick had a personal vendetta against McMahon. He's made no bones about the fact that he hates Vincent Man for no particular reason. Planeman said in the column, he's never had the guts to meet with Vincent Man. John Filippelli, who's one of our executive te- television producers, has known Phil for years. Much like I told John Law before he had read anything about us, that Vince was an evil person and should burn in hell. John Phillip is an old friend, and clearly this has more done more than strain our relationship. It's virtually destroyed it, Mushnick said Thursday night. This story has grown far beyond my relationship with John Filippelli. It's far more insidious than my relationship with John Filippelli. John called me shortly after I started writing about the steroid trial and how the media had abandoned such a big story. John says, just for you nuts, Vince is a good guy. Lay off of him. I told him anyone who says that trial has nothing to do with the WF should go straight to hell. He basically agreed with me. He said he, I didn't know the half of it, but at that point I was just starting to. I didn't hear another word about it until Vince McMahon got on the Larry King show and said, Phil Mushnick despised me so much, he, he told John Filippelli I should go to hell. And he made it sound as if that was a, on the sex charges. That was clearly long before the sex charges. Tom Cole, 21, who has worked as a member of the WF Ring Crew, told the San Diego Union Tribune in a recent article that he was sexually harassed or abused by several WF employees. Cole started working with WF in 1985 as a ring boy when he was 13, so the sexual harassment continued unabated until he was fired in February 1990 after rebuffing advances by another WF official. Cole threatened a lawsuit earlier this year, but he and WF reached a settlement after meeting with a man. Cole reportedly received $50,000 back pay and returned to his former job as a ring boy. Why would John Filippella call me to explain Vincent Mann to me for ever wrote anything at Smushnik? If I hadn't been in person, why would I have a personal vendetta against him? I spoke with him. I wouldn't give him two minutes of my time now. There's none he says I believe. Philip Pelli, a veteran NBC Sports producer, signed as a senior producer at WF Broadcasts in October 1990. He had been nominated for 23 Emmy Awards and was coordinating producer for four World Series, three all- baseball All-Star games, several Super Bowl pregame shows, and NBC Sports World. Filippelli's hiring placed him over former senior producer Bruce Pritchard. Pritchard, who was eventually fired by Titan Sports in May 1991 after only four years in the top day of production post. I can't believe John's doing what he's doing, Mushnick said. John keeps telling me to put myself in his place. But wait a second. That's what they said in Nazi Germany. Nobody has to do anything here. And so I close to the story also took exception to Planet Men's claims that Cole was manipulated by the media. Tom Cole called Phil Mushnick last July, said the source. He called him every day for months. Phil Mushnick didn't find him. He called Phil last July to fill the steroid story. He thought about, there might be a guy willing to go head-to-head with WWF. He called him almost every day for months and wanted Phil to write a story. It wasn't until they got two other kids come forward that Phil agreed. 
Phil wanted that exclusive, but he was still beaten by a week for the story. Whatever Tom Cole said about being manipulated by the media, my feeling is that if Tom Cole won this job back, he manipulated the media. If you're not looking for media attention, you don't call a reporter almost every day for eight months, and you don't go to the New York Post. Okay. First things first, who do you think this insider close to the story is? Uh, if Phil know. wasn't quoted earlier, I'd think it was Phil. Possible, yeah. But I, it, it doesn't make sense to me that there's no reason, especially with how Phil Mushnick is fairly open with his quotes and stuff, I don't see any reason why it would be him. Even, you know, because like, you know, obviously you can give stuff on the record and on background, but it I don't see a reason why bo- why it would be him. So, someone else at the Post? Jeff Savage, maybe? You know, with his, doing his article? Like, I, I find it a little interesting that they don't mention why it, it ended up going to Jeff Savage or discussing that. Um, but, I mean, look, I know more about this than most. As far as I can tell, this source is giving the truth here. So, you know, look, because Phil, Phil had really done nothing other than be the first to report that the Ring Boy stuff was coming by the time Vince is on Larry King. I mean, granted, Vince has talked to him on the phone when Vince is on Larry King, but those phone calls ended well. Like, after those calls, Phil was swayed at the moment and probably why he didn't run with what Vince told him right away because he he felt like Vince seemed like he wanted to genuinely clean everything up. So this is just really just them realize, you know, especially early on that Vince went on the offensive with him. This was realizing like, I guess his role in everything and just trying to deciding he's the one who's responsible for all this and trying to discredit him or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's much else to say beyond that. But by the way, I mean, especially since this is the type of thing that really should be covered in the newsletters, too. Great work by Mike Mooneyam on this story. Yeah. You know, this is some of his very best work. Yeah. So. And John Filippelli and and John Filippelli is is an interesting deal here. You know, um, John Filippelli mentioned in part one, too, as whose couch uh, Murray stayed on after he got fired for a little bit. I mean, it sounds like he's begging Phil to lay off, and Phil's not going to do it. So, yeah, here's something I'm wondering too. Did did Murray have his story when he was living with John Filippelli? Had he told John that story? And if so, awesome. is that also weighing on John Filippelli here at all? Which I mean, he's a credentialed enough sports producer by this point that he could have you know, written his ticket anywhere if you want to leave WWF. So I, I'm intrigued by him being this kind of a tribalist about his, uh, job there at the time. But, you know, it's, it's interesting how he's roped into this regardless, you know, and that it ruined much next friendship with him, which maybe got repaired after. I don't know, but close out this week though. Oh, go ahead. Go and when, when does Filippelli leave? Ooh. You want me to see if it's on? 92. It is in 92? Yeah, because that's when Bruce comes back. No, but Bruce doesn't take over that job. Oh, but no, but you're right. Gone. But it's but right. But Filippelli was involved in getting rid of him, so Bruce doesn't come back until Filippelli's gone, regardless, right? Um, His LinkedIn does not go back that far. 
So I don't know. Yeah. But you're, you're right. That was part of the catalyst for Bruce coming back. Was that Filippelli was – oh, actually, no, no, no. You know what? I'm remembering differently now. I think he was put in a different job because Filippelli was still there. I so think Filippelli left night too. Though. I don't think he's there. I forget the exact he's not there that. timing though. Because the reason why I ask is because how much does this weigh into him in, in his time there? Mm. All this stuff going on, you know? Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, let's uh, close out this week, though, as we go to the reader's pages in The Observer. Your response to Mark Castle's uh, or Cassell's letter to seems to equate unwarranted sexual encounters between the executives and underage male employees to sexual encounters between pro wrestlers and women under 18. There's some major differences. First, relationship between an employer and employee is inherently coercive since the employees depend upon the employer for a paycheck. This puts some constraints upon a person's ability to say no. A refusal may cause a person to lose a job or promotion. It's difficult to see an employee could have a sexual relationship with an employer that wasn't abusive unless the employee felt freely consented. However, since underage females are really employees of wrestlers, it's difficult for me to see this encounter as coercive. This is especially true when the female has not only freely consented, but actually sought out the encounter. This may be stupid, dangerous, or even and even illegal, but it may not be abusive depending upon the age. Clearly, a 17-year-old is not the same as a 13-year-old. Signed, Betsy Anderson of Brighton, Massachusetts. Well, that letter started well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she had a good point, at least up front, that there are comparisons to draw to that, but that is not one of them. Yeah. So, uh, another week down. One more to go on this show. So, I'm reading... Yeah. Uh -huh. About I'm reading this. Did you see the Dave Sahadi interview with Post Wrestling from at, at, like uh, three weeks ago? Mm -mm. He talks about when he joined WWF coming from NBC in '92. Okay. And it, it, this is just this is how John Philip got gone. Oh, okay. I, I came I came from NBC Sports and I joined WWE, WWE back in 1992. In 1992, you know they were down the dumps. I just wanted to bring a real sports feel to it because I always thought wrestlers were fucking tremendous athletes and they were mainly considered goopballs by people who weren't wrestling fans. I'm like, that's bullshit, man. These guys are legitimate athletes. Oh, and real you quick, this is, from, uh, this is from Doc Gallows and Carl Anderson's podcast. This is a transcript. Yeah, but it's on, it's on post-wrestling. Yes. Uh, do you, you want to hear a funny story? I'm in there for two weeks. John Filippelli, he's now the head of the Yes Network. Yes, he was the Kevin Dunn. For two weeks, and then Kevin Dunn did a coup, and he got Filippelli fired. And there were two other former NBC employees working there, and he got them fired too. So I'm two weeks in, and I'm working on the opening for Raw that comes up in January. Kevin calls me up and says, Sahadi, just so you know, Philip gone. John Anonymous, gone. He just went down this list of 20 people, and I thought it was like that scene in The Godfather at the end when Al Pacino was saying like, and he said to me, he goes, if it was up to me, your fucking ass would be put out of here too, because I hate you, NBC guys. But guess what? You're working on this opening for Raw. Vince wants to give you a chance, so you better be fucking good because your career is riding on it. So, dude, I walk in about a week later. It's opening, and the room is Vince McMahon, Kevin Dunn, Kerwin Silfies, director or number one there, Kevin Quinn, Bruce Pritchard's in there, Pat Patterson's in there, because passed back by then. And there's like 10 people there, and I get the thing loaded, and Vince says, play it. And I know this is already. I'm giving you the impersonation. So Vince sees it. It airs 25 seconds. And when it's over, he does this. Looking down, 
He spent one minute, didn't say a word. Nobody else said anything. He walks back to the coffee machine, pours a cup, one pack of sweet and low, boom, another pack of sweet and low, boom. Yeah. Silence in the room. And I'm like, I'm fucking fucked, man. I'm not going to be here next Monday. This is it. He didn't like it. So he goes, all right, pal, play it again. And the other plays again. Then Vince looks up, starts looking down again. There's like four minutes of silence. And I'm in the corner like, all right, well, you know, I guess I'll sign my forms right now for my termination release. And he goes, I don't know. What do you guys think? And Bruce Pritchard goes, I like it, Vince. It's really different. We haven't done anything like that before. And someone else is like, I love the music. I love this, you know? And all of a sudden, once Vince asked people's opinion because it was so different, they were doing things that, that were a lot of pink and yellow, kind of like, you know, color palettes or whatever. And I was bringing in like black and white and red. So, yes, Kevin Dunn got John Philip Pelley fired. How about that? That is the least shocking thing I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> to hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash Between the Sheets.